Part 4. Ataism and Nationalism Part 1. The Principle of Nationality In the early 19th century, the political vocabulary of the citizens of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland did not differentiate between the concepts state, people, and nation. The conquests which expanded the realm and brought countries and their inhabitants into subjection did not alter the size of the nation and the state. These annexed areas, as well as the overseas settlements of British subjects, remained outside the state and the nation. They were property of the crown under the control of Parliament. The nation and the people were the citizens of the three kingdoms, England, Scotland, and Ireland. England and Scotland had formed a union in 1707. In 1801, Ireland joined this union. There was no intention of incorporating into this body the citizens settled beyond the sea in North America. Every colony had its own parliament and its own local government. When the Parliament of Westminster attempted to include in its jurisdiction the colonies of New England and those south of New England, it kindled the conflict which resulted in American independence. In the Declaration of Independence, the 13 colonies call themselves a people different from the people represented in the Parliament at Westminster. The individual colonies, having proclaimed their right to independence, formed a political union and thus gave to the new nation, set up by nature and by history, an adequate political organization. Even at the time of the American conflict, British liberals sympathized with the aims of the colonists. In the course of the 19th century, Great Britain fully recognized the right of the white settlers in overseas possessions to establish autonomous governments. The citizens of the Dominions are not members of the British nation. They form nations of their own with all the rights to which civilized peoples are entitled. There has been no effort to expand the territory from which members are returned to the Parliament of Westminster. If autonomy is granted to a part of the empire, that part becomes a state with its own constitution. The size of the territory whose citizens are represented in the Parliament at London has not expanded since 1801. It was narrowed by the founding of the Irish Free State. For the French revolutionists, the terms state, nation, and people were also identical. France was for them the country within the historical frontiers. Foreign enclaves like Papal Avignon and the possessions of German princes were, according to natural law, parts of France and therefore to be reunited. The victorious wars of the Revolution and of Napoleon I temporarily relegated these notions to oblivion. But after 1815, they were restored to their previous meaning. France is the country within the frontiers fixed by the Congress of Vienna. Napoleon III later incorporated into this realm Savoy and Nice, districts with French-speaking inhabitants for whom there was no longer room left in the new Italian kingdom, in which the state of Savoy-Piedmont-Sardinia had been merged. The French were not enthusiastic about this expansion of their country. The new districts were slow to be assimilated to the French Commonwealth. The plans of Napoleon III to acquire Belgium, Luxembourg, and the left bank of the Rhine were not popular in France. The French do not consider the Walloons or the French-speaking Swiss or Canadians members of their nation or people. They are, in their eyes, French-speaking foreigners, good old friends, but not Frenchmen. It was different with the German and Italian liberals. The states which they wanted to reform were products of dynastic warfare and intermarriage. They could not be considered natural entities. It would have been paradoxical indeed to destroy the despotism of the Prince of Ruchonier branch in order to establish a democratic government in the scattered territories owned by that potentate. The subject of such princelings did not consider themselves Russians of the junior branch or Saxe-Weimar-Eisenachians, but Germans. They did not aim at a liberal Schomburg-Lippe. They wanted a liberal Germany. It was the same in Italy. The Italian liberals did not fight for a free state of Parma or of Tuscany, but for a free Italy. 
As soon as liberalism reached Germany and Italy, the problem of the extent of the state and its boundaries was raised. Its solution seemed easy. The nation is the community of all people speaking the same language. The state's frontiers should coincide with the linguistic demarcations. And Germany is the country inhabited by German-speaking people. Italy is the land of the people using the Italian idiom. The old border lines drawn by the intrigues of dynasties were doomed to disappear. Thus, the right of self-determination and of government by the people, as expounded by Western liberalism, becomes transformed into the principle of nationality as soon as liberalism becomes a political factor in Central Europe. The political terminology begins to differentiate between state and nation, people. The people, the nation, are all men speaking the same idiom. Nationality means community of language. According to these ideas, every nation should form an independent state, including all members of the nation. When this has one day been achieved, there will be no more wars. The princes fight each other because they wish to increase their power and wealth by conquest. No such motives are present with nations. The extent of a nation's territory is determined by nature. The national boundaries are the linguistic boundaries. No conquest can make a nation bigger, richer, or more powerful. The principle of nationality is the golden rule of international law which will bring undisturbed peace to Europe. While kings were still planning wars and conquests, the revolutionary movements of young Germany and of young Italy were already cooperating for the realization of this happy constitution of a new Europe. The Poles and Hungarians joined the choir. Their aspirations also met with the sympathies of liberal Germany. German poets glorified the Polish and Hungarian struggles for independence. But the aspirations of the Poles and Magyars differed in a very important way from those of the Germans and Italian liberals. The former aimed at a reconstruction of Poland and Hungary within their old historical boundaries. They did not look forward to a new liberal Europe, but backward to the glorious past of their victorious kings and conquerors, as depicted by their historians and writers. Poland was for the Poles all the countries that their kings and magnates had once subjugated. Hungary was for the Magyars all the countries that had been ruled in the Middle Ages by the successors of St. Stephen. It did not matter that these realms included many people speaking idioms other than Polish and Hungarian. The Poles and the Magyars paid lip service to the principles of nationality and self-determination. And this attitude made the liberals of the West sympathetic to their programs. Yet what they planned was not the liberation, but the oppression of other linguistic groups. So too with the Czechs. It is true that in earlier days, some champions of Czech independence proposed a partition of Bohemia according to linguistic demarcations. But they were very soon silenced by their fellow citizens for whom Czech self-determination was synonymous with the oppression of millions of non-Czechs. The principle of nationality was derived from the liberal principle of self-determination. But the Poles, the Czechs, and the Magyars substituted for this democratic principle an aggressive nationalism aiming at the domination of people speaking other languages. Very soon, German and Italian nationalists and many other linguistic groups adopted the same attitude. It would be a mistake to ascribe the ascendancy of modern nationalism to human wickedness. The nationalists are not innately aggressive men. They become aggressive through their conception of nationalism. They are confronted with conditions which are unknown to the champion of the old principle of self-determination. And their atas prejudices prevent them from finding a solution for the problems they have to face other than that provided by aggressive nationalism. What the Western liberals have failed to recognize is that there are large territories inhabited by people of different idioms. This important factor could once be neglected in Western Europe, but it could not be overlooked in Eastern Europe. The principle of nationality cannot work in a country where linguistic groups are inextricably mixed. Here you cannot draw boundaries which clearly segregate linguistic groups. 
every territorial division necessarily leaves minorities under foreign rule. The problem becomes especially fateful because of the changeability of linguistic structures. Men do not necessarily stay in the place of their birth. They have always migrated from comparatively overpopulated into comparatively underpopulated areas. In our age of rapid economic change brought about by capitalism, the propensity to migrate has increased to an unprecedented extent. Millions move from the agricultural districts into the center of mining, trade, and industry. Millions move from countries where the soil is poor to those offering more favorable conditions for agriculture. These migrations transform minorities into majorities and vice versa. They bring alien minorities into countries formerly linguistically homogenous. The principle of nationality was based on the assumption that every individual clings throughout his life to the language of his parents, which he has learned in early childhood. This too is an error. Men can change their language in the course of their life. They can daily and habitually speak a language other than that of their parents. Linguistic assimilation is not always the spontaneous outcome of the conditions under which the individual lives. It is caused not only by environment and cultural factors. Governments can encourage it or even achieve it by compulsion. It is an illusion to believe that language is a non-arbitrary criterion for an impartial delimitation of boundaries. The state can, under certain conditions, influence the linguistic character of its citizens. The main tool of compulsory denationalization and assimilation is education. Western Europe developed the system of obligatory public education. It came to Eastern Europe as an achievement of Western civilization. But in the linguistically mixed territories, it turned into a dreadful weapon in the hands of governments determined to change the linguistic allegiance of their subjects. The philanthropists and pedagogues of England who advocated public education did not foresee what waves of hatred and resentment would rise out of this institution. But the school is not the only instrument of linguistic oppression and tyranny. Etaism puts a hundred more weapons in the hands of the state. Every act of the government, which can and must be done by administrative discretion, with regard to the special merits of each case, can be used for the achievement of the government's political aims. The members of the linguistic minority are treated like foes or like outlaws. They apply in vain for licenses, for foreign exchange under a system of foreign exchange control, or for import licenses under a quota system. Their shops and plants, their clubhouses, school buildings, and assembly halls are closed by the police because they allegedly do not comply with the rules of the building code or with the regulations for preventing fires. Their sons somehow fail to pass the examinations for civil service jobs. Protection is denied to their property, persons, and lives when they are attacked by armed gangs of zealous members of the ruling linguistic group. They cannot even undertake to defend themselves. The licenses required for the possession of arms are denied to them. The tax collectors always find that they owe the treasury much more than the amount shown on the returns they have filed. All this indicates clearly why the attempts of the Covenant of the League of Nations to protect minorities by international law and international tribunals were doomed to failure. A law cannot protect anybody against measures dictated by alleged considerations of economic expediency. All sorts of government interference in business, in the countries inhabited by different linguistic groups, are used for the purpose of injuring the pariahs. Custom tariffs, taxations, foreign exchange regulations, subsidies, labor legislation, and so on may be utilized for discrimination, even though this cannot be proved in court procedure. The government can always explain these measures as being dictated by purely economic considerations. With the aid of such measures, life for the undesirables, without formal violation of legal equality, can be made unbearable.
In an age of interventionism and socialism, there is no legal protection available against an ill-intentioned government. Every government interference with business becomes an act of national warfare against the members of the persecuted linguistic groups. With the progress of Ataism, the antagonism between the linguistic groups becomes more bitter and more implacable. Thus, the meaning of the concepts of Western political terminology underwent a radical change in Central and Eastern Europe. The people differentiate between the good state and the bad state. They worship the state as do all other Ataists, but they mean only the good state, i.e. the state in which their own linguistic group dominates. For them, this state is God. The other states in which their own linguistic group does not dominate are, in their opinion, devils. Their concept of fellow citizens includes all people speaking their own language, all Volkgenossen, as the Germans say, without any regard to the country where they live. It does not include citizens of their own state who happen to speak another language. These are foes and barbarians. The Volksgenossen, living under a foreign yoke, must be freed. They are the Eredenta, the unredeemed people. And every means is believed right and fair if it can accelerate the coming of the day of redemption. Fraud, felonious assault, and murder are noble virtues if they serve the cause of irredentism. The war for the liberation of the Volksgenossen is a just war. The greatness of the linguistic group and the glory of the right and true state are the supreme criteria of morality. There is but one thing that counts, their own linguistic group. The community of men speaking the same language, the Volksgemeinschaft. Part 2. The Linguistic Group Economists, sociologists, and historians have provided us with different definitions of the term nation. But we are not interested here in what meaning social science ought to attach to it. We are inquiring what meaning the European supporters of the principle of nationality attach to the concepts nation and nationality. It is important to establish the way in which these terms are used in the vocabulary of present-day political action and the role they play in actual life and in contemporary conflicts. The principle of nationality is unknown to American or Australian politics. When the Americans freed themselves from the rule of Great Britain, Spain, and Portugal, their aim was self-determination, not the establishment of national states in the sense that the principle of nationality gives to the term nation. Linguistically, they resemble the old countries overseas from which their ancestors once came to America. The people who now form the United States of America did not want to annex English-speaking Canada, nor did the French-speaking Canadians who opposed the British system of administration fight for a French-speaking state. Both linguistic groups cooperate in a more or less peaceful way within the Dominion of Canada. There is no irredenta. Latin America is also free from linguistic problems. What separates Argentina from Chile or Guatemala from Mexico is not the idiom. There are many racial, social, political, and even religious conflicts in the Western Hemisphere, too. But in the past, no serious linguistic problem has troubled American political life. Neither are there any grave linguistic antagonisms in present-day Asia. India is linguistically not homogenous, but the religious discrepancy between Hinduism and Islam is much more important there than the problem of idioms. Conditions may perhaps soon change. But at the present moment, the principle of nationality is more or less a European concept. It is the main political problem of Europe. According to the principle of nationality, then, every linguistic group must form an independent state, and this state must embrace all people speaking this language. The prestige of this principle is so great that a group of men who for some reason wish to form a state of their own, which would otherwise not conform to the principle of nationality, 
are eager to change their language in order to justify their aspirations in the light of this principle. The Norwegians now speak and write an idiom that is almost identical with that of Denmark, but they are not prepared to renounce their political independence. To provide linguistic support for their political program, eminent Norwegians have wanted to create a language of their own, to form out of their local dialects a new language, something like a return to the Old Norse used up to the 15th century. The greatest Norwegian writer, Henrik Ibsen, considered these endeavors lunacy and scorned them as such in pure gin. The people of Ireland speak and write English. Some of the foremost writers of the English language are Irishmen, but the Irish want to be politically independent. Therefore, they reason it is necessary to return to the Gaelic idiom once used in their country. They have excavated this language from old books and manuscripts and tried to revive it. To some extent, they have even succeeded. The Zionists want to create an independent state composed of those professing the Jewish religion. For them, the Jews are a people and a nation. We are not concerned here with whether these historical arguments brought forward for the justification of these claims are correct or not, or whether the plan is politically sound or unsound. But it is a fact that the Jews speak many different languages. From the viewpoint of the principle of nationality, the aspirations of Zionism are no less irregular than those of the Irish. Therefore, the Zionists try to induce the Jews to speak and write Hebrew. These plans are paradoxical in the face of the fact that in the days of Christ, the inhabitants of Palestine did not speak Hebrew. Their native tongue was Aramaic. Hebrew was the language of the religious literature only. It was not understood by the people. The second language generally known was Greek. These facts demonstrate the meaning and prestige of the principle of nationality. The terms nation and nationality as applied by the advocates of this principle are equivalent to the term linguistic group. The terms used in the Habsburg Empire for these conflicts were die Nationalfrage, the national question, and synonymously die Sprachenfrage, the linguistic problem, Nationalkampf, national struggles, and synonymously Sprachenkampf, linguistic struggles. The main subject of conflict has always been which language should be used by the administration, by the tribunals, and by the army and which language should be taught in the schools. It is a serious error of English and French books and newspapers to refer to these conflicts as racial. There is no conflict of races in Europe, no distinct bodily features which an anthropologist could establish with the aid of the scientific methods of anatomy separate the people belonging to different groups. If you presented one of them to an anthropologist, he would not be able to decide by biological methods whether he was a German, Czech, Pole, or Hungarian. Neither have the people belonging to any one of these groups a common descent. The right bank of the Elbe River, the whole of northeastern Germany, 800 years ago was inhabited only by Slavs and Baltic tribes. It became German-speaking in the course of the processes which the German historians call the colonization of the East. Germans from the west and south migrated into this area, but in the main its present population is descended from the indigenous Slavs and Baltic peoples who under the influence of church and school adopted the German language. Prussian chauvinists, of course, assert that the native Slavs and Balts were exterminated and that the whole population today is descended from German colonists. There is not the slightest evidence for this doctrine. The Prussian historians invented it in order to justify, in the eyes of German nationalists, Prussia's claim to hegemony in Germany. But even they have never dared to deny that the Slav ancestry of the autochthonous princely dynasties of Pomerania, Silesia, and Mecklenburg, and of most of the aristocratic families, is beyond doubt. Queen Louise of Prussia, whom all German nationalists consider the paragon of German womanhood, was a scion of the Duke Kalhaus of Mecklenburg, 
whose original Slav character has never been contested. Many noble families of the German Northeast can be traced back to Slav ancestors. The genealogical trees of the middle classes and the peasantry, of course, cannot be established as far back as those of the nobility. This alone explains why the proof of Slav origin cannot be provided for them. It is indeed paradoxical to assume that the Slavonic princes and knights should have exterminated their Slav serfs in order to settle their villages with imported German serfs. Shifting from one of these linguistic groups to another occurred not only in earlier days. It happened, and happened so frequently that nobody remarks upon it. Many outstanding personalities in the Nazi movement in Germany and Austria and in the Slavonic, Hungarian, and Romanian districts claimed by Nazism were the sons of parents whose language was not German. Similar conditions prevail all over Europe. In many cases, the change of loyalties has been accompanied by a change in family name. More often, people have retained their foreign-sounding family names. The Belgian poets Metterlink and Verharen have written in French. Their names suggest a Flemish ancestry. The Hungarian poet Alexander Petofi, who died for the cause of the Hungarian Revolution in the Battle of Schasburg, 1849, was the son of a Slavonic family named Petrovics. Thousands of such cases are known to everyone familiar with European soil and people. Europe, too, is a melting pot, or rather a collection of melting pots. Whenever the question is raised whether a group must be considered a distinct nation and therefore entitled to claim political autonomy, the issue is whether the idiom involved is a distinct language or only a dialect. The Russians maintain that the Ukrainian or Ruthenian idiom is a dialect, like Plattdeutsch in northern Germany or Provençal in southern France. The Czechs use the same argument against the political aspirations of the Slovaks and the Italians against their Reto-Romanic idiom. Only a few years ago, the Swiss government gave the Romansh the legal status of a national language. Many Nazis declare that Dutch is not a language but a German dialect, a plat which has arrogated to itself the status of a language. The principle of nationality has been late in penetrating into the political thought of Switzerland. There are two reasons why Switzerland has up to now successfully resisted its disintegrating power. The first factor is the quality of the three main languages of Switzerland, German, French, and Italian. For every inhabitant of continental Europe, it is a great advantage to learn one of these languages. If a German Swiss acquires command of French or Italian, he not only becomes better equipped for business life, but gains access to one of the great literatures of the world. It is the same for the French Swiss and for the Italian Swiss when learning Italian or German. The Swiss, therefore, do not object to a bilingual education. They consider it a great help for their children to know one or both of the two other main languages of the country. But what gain can a French-Belgian derive from a knowledge of Flemish, a Slovak from a knowledge of Hungarian, or a Hungarian from a knowledge of Romanian? It is almost indispensable for an educated Pole or Czech to know German, but for a German it is a waste of time to learn Czech or Polish. This explains why the educational problem is of minor importance under the linguistic conditions of Switzerland. The second factor is the political structure. The countries of Eastern Europe were never liberal. They jumped from monarchical absolutism directly into etaism. Since the 1850s, they have clung to the policy of interventionism, which only in the last decades has overwhelmed the West. Their intransigent economic nationalism is a consequence of their etaism. But on the eve of the First World War, Switzerland was still a predominantly liberal country. Since then, it has turned more and more to interventionism. And as that spread, the linguistic problem has become more serious. There is Italian irredentism in the Ticino, 
There is a pro-Nazi party in the German-speaking parts, and there are French nationalists in the southwest. A victory of the Allied democracies will doubtless stop these movements. But in that case, Switzerland's integrity will be safeguarded by the same factor to which it owed its origin and its maintenance in the past, namely the political conditions of its neighbor countries. There is one instance in continental Europe in which the characteristic feature that separates two nations is not language, but religion and the alphabetical types used in writing and printing. The Serbs and the Croats speak the same idiom, but while the Serbs use the Cyrillic alphabet, the Croats use the Roman. The Serbs adhere to the Orthodox creed of the Oriental Church. The Croats are Roman Catholics. It must be emphasized again and again that racism and considerations of racial purity and solidarity play no role in these European struggles of linguistic groups. It is true that the nationalists often resort to race and common descent as catchwords. But that is mere propaganda without any practical effect on policies and political actions. On the contrary, the nationalists consciously and purposely reject racism and racial characteristics of individuals when dealing with political problems and activities. The German racists have provided us with an image of the prototype of the noble German or Aryan hero and with a biologically exact description of his bodily features. Every German is familiar with his archetype and most of them are convinced that this portrait is correct. But no German nationalist has ever ventured to use this pattern to draw the distinction between Germans and non-Germans. The criterion of Germanism is found not in a likeness to the standard, but in the German tongue. Breaking up the German-speaking group according to racial characteristics would result in eliminating at least 80% of the German people from the ranks of the Germans. Neither Hitler, nor Goebbels, nor most of the other champions of German nationalism fit the Aryan prototype of the racial myth. The Hungarians are proud to be the descendants of a Mongolian tribe, which in the early Middle Ages conquered the country they call Hungary. The Romanians boast their descent from Roman colonists. The Greeks consider themselves scions of the ancient Greeks. Historians are rather skeptical in regard to these claims. The modern political nationalism of these nations ignores them. It finds the practical criterion of the nation in the language instead of in racial characteristics or in the proof of descent from the alleged ancestry. Part 3. Liberalism and the Principle of Nationality The foes of liberalism have failed in their endeavors to disprove liberalism's teaching concerning the value of capitalism and democratic government. Have they succeeded better in criticizing the third part of the liberal program, namely the proposals for peaceful cooperation among different nations and states? In answering this question, we must emphasize again that the principles of nationality does not represent the liberal solution of the international problem. The liberals urged self-determination. The principle of nationality is an outcome of the interpretation which people in Central and Eastern Europe, who never fully grasped the meaning of liberal ideas, gave to the principle of self-determination. It is a distortion, not a perfection, of liberal thought. We have already shown that the Anglo-Saxon and the French fathers of liberal ideas did not recognize the problems involved. When these problems became visible, the old liberalism's creative period had already been brought to an end. The great champions were gone. Epigons, unable successfully to combat the growing socialist and interventionist tendencies, filled the stage. These men lacked the strength to deal with new problems. Yet the Indian summer of the old classical liberalism produced one document worthy of the great tradition of French liberalism. Ernest Renan, it is true, cannot really be considered a liberal. He made concessions to socialism because his grasp of economic theories was rather poor. He was consequently too accommodating to the anti-democratic prejudices of his age. But his famous letter, Qu'est-ce que nation, 
delivered in the Sorbonne on March 11, 1882, is thoroughly inspired by liberal thought. It was the last word spoken by the older Western liberalism on the problems of state and nation. For a correct understanding of Renan's ideas, it is necessary to remember that for the French, as for the English, the terms nation and state are synonymous. When Renan asks, what is a nation, he means, what should determine the boundaries of the various states? And his answer is, not the linguistic community, not the racial kinship founded on parentage from common ancestors, not religious congeniality, not the harmony of economic interests, not geographical or strategical considerations, but the right of the population to determine its own destiny. The nation is the outcome of the will of human beings to live together in one state. The greater part of the lecture is devoted to showing how the spirit of nationality originates. The nation is a soul, a moral principle. Unant, un principe spirituel. A nation, says Renan, daily confirms its existence by manifesting its will to political cooperation within the same state, a daily repeated plebiscite, as it were. A nation, therefore, has no right to say to a province, you belong to me, I want to take you. A province consists of its inhabitants. If anybody has a right to be heard in this case, it is these inhabitants. Boundary disputes should be settled by plebiscite. It is important to realize how this interpretation of the right of self-determination differs from the principle of nationality. The right of self-determination, which Renan has in mind, is not a right of linguistic groups, but of individual men. It is derived from the rights of man. Man belongs neither to his language nor to his race. He belongs to himself. Seen from the point of view of the principle of nationality, the existence of states like Switzerland, composed of people of different languages, is as anomalous as the fact that the Anglo-Saxons and the French are not eager to unite into one state all the people speaking their own language. For Renan, there is nothing irregular in these facts. More noteworthy than what Renan says is what he does not say. Renan sees neither the fact of linguistic minorities nor that of linguistic changes. Consult the people, let them decide. All right. But what if a conspicuous minority dissents from the will of the majority? To that objection, Renan does not make a satisfactory answer. He declares, with regard to the scruple that plebiscites could result in the disintegration of old nations and in a system of small states, we say today balkanization, that the principle of self-determination should not be abused, but only employed in a general way. D'une façon très générale. Renan's brilliant exposition proves that the threatening problems of Eastern Europe were unfamiliar to the West. He prefaced his pamphlet with a prophecy. We are rushing into wars of destruction and extermination because the world has abandoned the principle of free union and has granted to the nations, as it once did to the dynasties, the right to annex provinces contrary to their desires. But Renan saw only half the problem involved and therefore his solutions could be but a halfway one. Yet it would be wrong to say that liberalism has failed in this field. Liberalism's proposals for the coexistence and cooperation of nations and states are only a part of the total liberal program. They can be realized. They can be made to work only within a liberal world. The main excellence of the liberal scheme of social, economic, and political organization is precisely this, that it makes the peaceful cooperation of nations possible. It is not a shortcoming of the liberal program for international peace that it cannot be realized within an anti-liberal world and that it must fail in an age of interventionism and socialism. In order to grasp the meaning of this liberal program, we need to imagine a world order in which liberalism is supreme. 
Either all the states in it are liberal, or enough are so that when united they are able to repulse an attack of militarist aggressors. In this liberal world, or liberal part of the world, there is private property and the means of production. The working of the market is not hampered by government interference. There are no trade barriers, men can live and work where they want. Frontiers are drawn on the maps, but they do not hinder the migrations of men and shipping of commodities. Natives do not enjoy rights that are denied to aliens. Governments and their servants restrict their activities to the protection of life, health, and property against fraudulent or violent aggression. They do not discriminate against foreigners. The courts are independent and effectively protect everybody against the encroachments of officialdom. Everyone is permitted to say, to write, and to print what he likes. Education is not subject to government interference. Governments are like night watchmen whom the citizens have entrusted with the task of handling the police power. The men in office are regarded as mortal men, not as superhuman beings or as paternal authorities who have the right and duty to hold the people in tutelage. Governments do not have the power to dictate to the citizens what language they must use in their daily speech or in what language they must bring up and educate their children. Administrative organs and tribunals are bound to use each man's language in dealing with him, provided this language is spoken in the district by a reasonable number of residents. In such a world, it makes no difference where the frontiers of a country are drawn. Nobody has a special material interest in enlarging the territory of a state in which he lives. Nobody suffers loss if a part of this area is separated from the state. It is also immaterial whether all parts of the state's territory are in direct geographical connection or whether they are separated by a piece of land belonging to another state. It is of no economic importance whether the country has a frontage on the ocean or not. In such a world, the people of every village or district could decide by plebiscite to which state they want to belong. There would be no more wars because there would be no incentive for aggression. War would not pay. Armies and navies would be superfluous. Policemen would suffice for the fight against crime. In such a world, the state is not a metaphysical entity, but simply the producer of security and peace. It is the night watchman, as LaSalle contemptuously dubbed it, but it fulfills this task in a satisfactory way. The citizen's sleep is not disturbed, bombs do not destroy his home, and if somebody knocks at his door late at night, it is certainly neither the Gestapo nor the OGPU. The reality in which we have to live differs very much from this perfect world of ideal liberalism. But this is due only to the fact that men have rejected liberalism for atazism. They have burdened the state, which could be a more or less efficient night watchman, with a multitude of other duties. Neither nature, nor the working of forces beyond human control, nor inevitable necessity, has led to atazism, but the acts of men. Entangled by dialectic fallacies and fantastic illusions, blindly believing in erroneous doctrines, biased by envy and insatiable greed, Men have derided capitalism and have substituted for it an order engendering conflicts for which no peaceful solution can be found. Part 4. Aggressive Nationalism Etaism, whether interventionism or socialism, must lead to conflict, war, and totalitarian oppression of large populations. The right and true state under Etaism is the state in which I or my friends, speaking my language and sharing my opinions, are supreme. All other states are spurious. One cannot deny that they too exist in this imperfect world, but they are enemies of my state, of the only righteous state, even if the state does not yet exist outside of my dreams and wishes. Our German Nazi state, says Stedding, is the Reich. The other states are deviations from it. Politics, says the foremost Nazi jurist Karl Schmidt, is the discrimination between friend and foe. 
In order to understand these doctrines, we must look first at the liberal attitude toward the problem of linguistic antagonisms. He who lives as a member of a linguistic minority within a community where another linguistic group forms the majority is deprived of the means of influencing the country's politics. We are not considering the special case in which such a linguistic minority occupies a privileged position and oppresses the majority as, for example, the German-speaking aristocracy in the Baltic duchies in the years preceding the Russianization of these provinces. Within a democratic community, public opinion determines the outcome of elections and thereby the political decisions. Whoever wants to make his ideas prevalent in political life must try to influence public opinion through speech and writing. If he succeeds in convincing his fellow citizens, his ideas obtain support and persist. In this struggle of ideas, linguistic minorities cannot take part. They are voiceless spectators of the political debates out of which the deciding vote emerges. They cannot participate in the discussions and negotiations. But the result determines their fate too. For them, democracy does not mean self-determination. Other people control them. They are second-class citizens. This is the reason why men in a democratic world consider it a disadvantage to be members of a linguistic minority. It explains at the same time why there were no linguistic conflicts in earlier ages, where there was no democracy. In this age of democracy, people in the main prefer to live in a community where they speak the same language as the majority of their fellow citizens. Therefore, in plebiscites concerning the question to which state a province should belong, people as a rule, but not always, vote in favor of the country where they will not be members of a linguistic minority. But the recognition of this fact by no means leads liberalism to the principle of nationality. Liberalism does not say, every linguistic group should form one state and one state only, and each single man belonging to this group should, if at all possible, belong to the state. Neither does it say, no state should include people of several linguistic groups. Liberalism postulates self-determination. That men in the exercise of this right allow themselves to be guided by linguistic considerations is for liberalism simply a fact, not a principle or a moral law. If men decide in another way which was the case, for example, with the German-speaking Alsatians, that is their own concern. Such a decision, too, must be respected. But it is different in our age of Etahism. The Etah state must necessarily extend its territory to the utmost. The benefits it can grant to its citizens increase in proportion to its territory. Everything that the interventionist state can provide can be provided more abundantly by the larger state than by the smaller one. Privileges become more valuable the larger the territory in which they are valid. The essence of Etahism is to take from one group in order to give to another. The more it can take, the more it can give. It is to the interest of those whom the government wishes to favor that their state become as large as possible. The policy of territorial expansion becomes popular. The people, as well as the governments, become eager for conquest. Every pretext for aggression is deemed right. Men then recognize but one argument in favor of peace, that the prospective adversary is strong enough to defeat their attack. Woe to the weak! The domestic policies of a nationalist state are inspired by the aim of improving the conditions of some group of citizens by inflicting evils on foreigners and those citizens who use a foreign language. In foreign policy, economic nationalism means discrimination against foreigners. In domestic policy, it means discrimination against citizens speaking a language which is not that of the ruling group. These pariahs are not always minority groups in a technical sense. The German-speaking people of Meran, Bozen, and Brixen are majorities in their districts. They are minorities only because their country has been annexed by Italy. The same is true for the Germans of the Egerland, 
for the Ukrainians in Poland, the Magyars of the Zelker district in Transylvania, the Slovenes in Italian-occupied Carniola. He who speaks a foreign mother tongue in a state where another language predominates is an outcast to whom the rights of citizens are virtually denied. The best example of the political consequences of this aggressive nationalism is provided by conditions in Eastern Europe. If you ask representatives of the linguistic group of Eastern Europe what they consider would be a fair determination of their national states, and if you mark these boundaries on a map, you will discover that the greater part of this territory is claimed by at least two nations, and not a negligible part by three or even more. Every linguistic group defends its claims with linguistic, racial, historical, geographical, strategic, economic, social, and religious arguments. No nation is prepared sincerely to renounce the least of its claims for reasons of expediency. Every nation is ready to resort to arms to satisfy its pretensions. Every linguistic group, therefore, considers its immediate neighbors mortal enemies and relies on its neighbors' neighbors for armed support of its own territorial claims against the common foe. Every group tries to profit from every opportunity to satisfy its claims at the expense of its neighbors. The history of the last decades proves the correctness of this melancholy description. Take, for example, the case of the Ukrainians. For hundreds of years, they were under the yoke of the Russians and the Poles. There has been no Ukrainian national state in our day. One might assume that the spokesman of a people which has so fully experienced the hardships of ruthless foreign oppression would be prudent in their pretensions. But nationalists simply cannot renounce. Thus, the Ukrainians claim an area of more than 360,000 square miles, with a total population of some 60 millions, of whom, according even to their own declaration, only more than 40 millions are Ukrainians. These oppressed Ukrainians would not be content with their own liberation. They strive at the oppression of 20 or more millions of non-Ukrainians. In 1918, the Czechs were not satisfied with the establishment of an independent state of their own. They incorporated into their state millions of German-speaking people, all the Slovaks, tens of thousands of Hungarians, the Ukrainians of Carpatho-Russia, and for considerations of railroad management, some districts of Lower Austria. And what a spectacle was the Polish Republic, which, in the 21 years of its independence, tried to rob violently three of its neighbors, Russia, Lithuania, and Czechoslovakia, of a part of their territories. These conditions were correctly described by August Stringberg in his trilogy to Damascus. Father Melcher At the Amsteg station on the Gothard line, you have probably seen a tower called the Castle of Zwinguri. It is celebrated by Schiller in Wilhelm Tell. It stands there as a monument to the inhuman oppression which the inhabitants of Uri suffered at the hands of the German Kaiser. Lovely. On the Italian side of the St. Gothard lies the station of Bellinzona, as you know. There are many towers there, but the most remarkable is the Castel Duri. It is a monument to the inhuman oppression, which the Italian cantons suffered at the hands of the inhabitants of Uri. Do you understand? The stranger replies, Liberty! Liberty give us in order that we may suppress. However, Strindberg did not add that the three cantons, Uri, Schwiz, and Unterwalden, under 19th century liberalism, peacefully cooperated with the Tikino, whose people they had oppressed for almost 300 years. Part 5. Colonial Imperialism In the 15th century, the Western nations began to occupy territories in non-European countries peopled by non-Christian populations. They were eager to obtain precious metals and raw materials that could not be produced in Europe. To explain this colonial expansion as a search for markets is to misrepresent the facts. These traders wanted to get colonial products. 
They had to pay for them, but the profit they sought was the acquisition of commodities that could not be bought elsewhere. As businessmen, they were not so foolish as to believe in the absurd teaching of mercantilism, old and new, that the advantage derived from foreign trade lies in exporting and not in importing. They were so little concerned about exporting that they were glad when they could obtain the goods they wanted without any payment at all. They were often more pirates and slaves than merchants. They had no moral inhibitions in their dealings with the heathen. It was not in the plans of the kings and royal merchants who inaugurated European overseas expansion to settle European farmers in the occupied territories. They misprized the vast forests and prairies of North America, from which they expected neither precious metals nor spices. The rulers of Great Britain were much less enthusiastic about founding settlements in continental America than about their enterprises in the Caribbean, in Africa, and the East Indies, and their participation in the slave trade. The colonists, not the British government, built up the English-speaking communities in America and later in Canada, in Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. The colonial expansion of the 19th century was very different from that of the preceding centuries. It was motivated solely by considerations of national glory and pride. The French officers, poets, and after-dinner speakers, not the rest of the nation, suffered deeply from the inferiority complex which the battles of Leipzig and Waterloo, and later those of Metz and Sedan, left with them. They thirsted for glory and fame, and they could quench their thirst neither in liberal Europe nor in an America sheltered by the Monroe Doctrine. It was the great comfort of Louis Philippe that his sons and his generals could reap laurels in Algeria. The Third Republic conquered Tunis, Morocco, Madagascar, and Tonkin in order to reestablish the moral equilibrium of its army and navy. The inferiority complex of Costoza and Liza drove Italy to Abyssinia, and the inferiority complex of Adua to Tripoli. One of the important motives that made Germany embark on colonial conquests was the turbulent ambition of shabby adventurers like Dr. Karl Peters. There were other cases, too. King Leopold II of Belgium and Cecil Rhodes were belated conquistadors. But the main incentive of modern colonial conquest was the desire for military glory. The defenselessness of the poor aborigines, whose main weapons were the dreariness and impassableness of their countries, was too tempting. It was easy and not dangerous to defeat them and to return home a hero. The modern world's paramount colonial power was Great Britain. Its East India Empire surpassed by far the colonial possessions of all other European nations. In the 1820s, it was virtually the only colonial power. Spain and Portugal had lost almost their entire overseas territories. The French and the Dutch retained at the end of the Napoleonic Wars as much as the British were willing to leave them. Their colonial rule was at the mercy of the British Navy. But British liberalism has fundamentally reformed the meaning of colonial imperialism. It granted autonomy, dominion status to the British settlers, and ran the East Indies and the remaining crown colonies on free trade principles. Long before the covenant of the League of Nations created the concept of mandates, Great Britain acted virtually as mandatory of European civilization in countries whose population was, as the Britons believed, not qualified for independence. The main blame which can be laid on British East Indian policies is that they respected too much some native customs, that, for example, they were slow to improve the lot of the untouchables. But for the English, there would be no India today, only a conglomeration of tyrannically misruled petty principalities fighting each other on various pretexts. There would be anarchy, famines, and epidemics. The men who represented Europe in the colonies were seldom proof against the specific moral dangers of the exalted positions they occupied among backward populations. Their snobbishness poisoned their personal contact with the natives. The marvelous achievements of the British administration in India 
were overshadowed by the vain arrogance and stupid race pride of the white men. Asia is in open revolt against the gentleman for whom socially there was but little difference between a dog and a native. India is, for the first time in its history, unanimous on one issue, its hatred for the British. This resentment is so strong that it has blinded for some time even those parts of the population who know very well that Indian independence will bring them disaster and oppression. The 80 millions of Muslims, the 40 millions of untouchables, the many millions of Sikhs, Buddhists, and Indian Christians. It is a tragic situation and a menace to the cause of the United Nations. But it is at the same time the manifest failure of the greatest experiment in benevolent absolutism ever put to work. Great Britain did not, in the last decades, seriously oppose the step-by-step -step liberation of India. It did not hinder the establishment of an Indian protectionist system, whose foremost aim is to lock out British manufacturers. It connived at the development of an Indian monetary and fiscal system which, sooner or later, will result in a virtual annulment of British investments and other claims. The only task of the British administration in India in these last years has been to prevent the various political parties, religious groups, races, linguistic groups and castes from fighting one another. But the Hindus do not long for British benefits. British colonial expansion did not stop in the last 60 years, but it was an expansion forced upon Great Britain by other nations' lusts of conquest. Every annexation of a piece of land by France, Germany or Italy curtailed the market for the products of all other nations. The British were committed to the principles of free trade and had no desire to exclude other people. But they had to take over large blocks of territory, if only to prevent them from falling into the hands of exclusive rivals. It was not their fault that under the conditions brought about by the French, German, Italian, and Russian colonial methods, only political control could adequately safeguard trade. It is a Marxian invention that the 19th century colonial expansion of the European powers was engendered, by the economic interests of the pressure groups of finance and business. There have been some cases where governments acted on behalf of their citizens who had made foreign investments. The purpose was to protect them against expropriation or default. But historical research has brought evidence that the initiative for the great colonial projects came not from finance and business but from the governments. The alleged economic interest was a mere blind. The root cause of the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 was not the desire of the Russian government to safeguard the interests of a group of investors who wanted to exploit the Yalu timber estates. On the contrary, because the government needed a pretext for intervention, it deployed a fighting vanguard disguised as lumbermen. The Italian government did not conquer Tripoli on behalf of the Banco di Roma. The bank went to Tripoli because the government wanted it to pave the way for conquest. The bank's decision to invest in Tripoli was the result of an incentive offered by the Italian government, the privilege of rediscount facilities at the Bank of Italy, and further compensation in the form of a subsidy to its navigation service. The Banco di Roma did not like the risky investment from which, at best, but very poor returns could be expected. The German Reich did not care a whit for the interests of the Mannesmans in Morocco. It used the case of this unimportant German firm as a lame excuse for its aspirations. German big business and finance were not at all interested. The Foreign Office tried in vain to induce them to invest in Morocco. As soon as you mention Morocco, said the German Secretary for Foreign Affairs, Herr von Richthofen, the banks all go on strike, every last one of them. At the outbreak of the First World War, a total of less than 25,000 Germans, most of them soldiers and civil servants and their families, lived in the German colonies. The trade of the mother country with its colonies was negligible. It was less than 0.5% of Germany's total foreign trade. 
Italy, the most aggressive colonial power, lacked the capital to develop its domestic resources. Its investments in Tripoli and in Ethiopia perceptibly increased the capital shortage at home. The most modern pretense for colonial conquest is considered in the slogan, Raw Materials. Hitler and Mussolini tried to justify their plans by pointing out that the natural resources of the earth were not fairly distributed. As have-nots, they were eager to get their fair share from those nations, which had more than they should have had. How could they be branded aggressors when they wanted nothing but what was, in virtue of natural and divine right, their own? In the world of capitalism, raw materials can be bought and sold like all other commodities. It does not matter whether they have to be imported from abroad or bought at home. It is of no advantage for an English buyer of Australian wool that Australia is a part of the British Empire. He must pay the same price that his Italian or German competitor pays. The countries producing the raw materials that cannot be produced in Germany or in Italy are not empty. There are people living in them, and these inhabitants are not ready to become subjects of the European dictators. The citizens of Texas and Louisiana are eager to sell their cotton crops to anyone who wants to pay for them, but they do not long for German or Italian domination. It is the same with other countries and other raw materials. The Brazilians do not consider themselves an appurtenance of their coffee plantations. The Swedes do not believe that their supply of iron ore justifies Germany's aspirations. The Italians would themselves consider the Danes lunatics if they were to ask for an Italian province in order to get their fair share of citrus fruits, red wine, and olive oil. It would be reasonable if Germany and Italy were to ask for a general return to free trade and laissez-passer, and for an abandonment of the, up to now, unsuccessful endeavors of many governments to raise the price of raw materials by a compulsory restriction of output. But such ideas are strange to the dictators who do not want freedom, but Zwang Swartschaft and self-sufficiency. Modern colonial imperialism is a phenomenon by itself. It should not be confused with European nationalism. The great wars of our age did not originate from colonial conflicts, but from nationalist aspirations in Europe. Colonial antagonisms kindled colonial campaigns without disturbing the peace between the Western nations. For all the saber-rattling, neither Fashoda nor Morocco nor Ethiopia resulted in European war. In the complex of German, Italian, and French foreign affairs, colonial plans were mere byplay. Colonial aspirations were not much more than a peacetime outdoor sport. The colonies a tilting ground for ambitious young officers. Part 6. Foreign Investment and Foreign Loans the main requisite of the industrial changes which transformed the world of handicraftsmen and artisans, of horses, sailing ships, and windmills, into the world of steam power, electricity, and mass production, was the accumulation of capital. The nations of Western Europe brought forth the political and institutional conditions for safeguarding saving and investment on a broader scale, and thus provided the entrepreneurs with the capital needed. On the eve of the Industrial Revolution, the technological and economic structure of Western economy did not differ essentially from conditions in the other parts of the inhabited surface of the Earth. By the second quarter of the 19th century, a broad gulf separated the advanced countries of the West from the backward countries of the East. While the West was on the road of quick progress, in the East there was stagnation. Mere acquaintance with Western methods of production, transportation, and marketing would have proved useless for the backwards nations. They did not have the capital for the adoption of the new processes. It was not difficult to imitate the technique of the West, but it was almost impossible to transplant the mentalities and ideologies which had created the social, legal, constitutional, and political milieu from which these modern technological improvements had sprung. 
An environment which could make for domestic capital accumulation was not so easy to produce as a modern factory. The new industrial system was but the effect of the new spirit of liberalism and capitalism. It was the outcome of a mentality which cared more about serving the consumer than about wars, conquest, and the preservation of old customs. The essential feature of the advanced West was not its technique, but its moral atmosphere which encouraged saving, capital formation, entrepreneurship, business, and peaceful competition. The backwards nations, perhaps, might have come to understand this basic problem and might have started to transform their social structures in such a way that autochthonous capital accumulation would have resulted. Even then, it would have been a slow and troublesome process. It would have required a long time. The gulf between West and East, between advanced nations and backward nations, would have broadened more and more. It would have been hopeless for the East to overtake the head start gained by the West. But history took another course. A new phenomenon appeared, the internationalization of the capital market. The advanced West provided all parts of the world with the capital needed for the new investments. Loans and direct investments made it possible to outfit all countries with the paraphernalia of modern civilization. Mahatma Gandhi expresses a loathing for the devices of the petty West and of devilish capitalism. But he travels by railroad or by motor car and when ill goes for treatment to a hospital equipped with the most refined instruments of Western surgery. It does not seem to occur to him that Western capital alone made it possible for the Hindus to enjoy these facilities. The enormous transfer of capital from Western Europe to the rest of the world was one of the outstanding events of the age of capitalism. It has developed natural resources in the remotest areas. It has raised the standard of living of peoples who, from time immemorial, had not achieved any improvement in their material conditions. It was, of course, not charity but self-interest which pushed the advanced nations to the export of capital. But the profit was not unilateral, it was mutual. The once-backward nations have no sound reason to complain because foreign capitalists provided them with machinery and transportation facilities. Yet in this age of anti-capitalism, hostility to foreign capital has become general. All debtor nations are eager to expropriate the foreign capitalist. Loans are repudiated either openly or by the more tricky means of foreign exchange control. Foreign property is liable to discriminatory taxation, which reaches the level of confiscation. Even undisguised expropriation without any indemnification is practiced. There has been much talk about the alleged exploitation of the debtor nations by the creditor nations. But if the concept of exploitation is to be applied to these relations, it is rather an exploitation of the investing by the receiving nations. These loans and investments were not intended as gifts. The loans were made upon solemn stipulation of payment of principal and interest. The investments were made in the expectation that property rights would be respected. With the exception of the bulk of the investments made in the United States, in some of the British dominions and in some smaller countries, these expectations have been disappointed. Bonds have been defaulted or will be in the next few years. Direct investments have been confiscated or soon will be. The capital exporting countries can do nothing but wipe off their balances. Let us look at the problem from the point of view of the predominantly industrial countries of Europe. These comparatively overpopulated countries are poorly endowed by nature. In order to pay for badly needed foodstuffs and raw materials, they must export manufacturers. The economic nationalism of the nations which are in a position to sell them these foodstuffs and raw materials shuts the doors in their face. For Europe, the restriction of exports means misery and starvation. Yet there was one safety valve left, as long as the foreign investments could be relied upon. The debtor nations were obliged to export some quantities of their products as payment of interest and dividends. 
Even if the goal of present-day foreign trade policies, the complete prevention of any import of manufactures, were to be obtained, the debtor nations would still have to provide the creditor nations with the means to pay for a part of the former's excess production of food and raw materials. The consumers of the creditor nations would be in a position to buy these goods on the sheltered home market, as it were, from the hands of those receiving the payments from abroad. These foreign investments represented in a certain manner the share of the creditor nations in the rich resources of the debtor nations. The existence of these investments softened to some extent the inequality between the haves and the have-nots. In what sense was pre-war Great Britain a have-nation? Surely not in the sense that it owned the empire. But the British capitalists owned a considerable amount of foreign investments, whose yield made it possible for the country to buy a corresponding quantity of foreign products in excess of that quantity, which was the equivalent of current British exports. The difference in the economic structures of pre-war Great Britain and Austria was precisely that Austria did not own such foreign assets. The British worker could provide for a considerable quantity of foreign food and raw materials by working in factories which sold their products on the sheltered British market to those people who received these payments from abroad. It was as if these foreign wheat fields, cotton and rubber plantations, oil wells and mines had been situated within Great Britain. After the present war, with the foreign assets gone either through the methods applied in financing the war expenditure or by default and confiscation on the part of the government of the debtor nations, Great Britain and some other countries of Western Europe will be reduced to the status of comparatively poor nations. This change will affect very seriously the conditions of British labor. Those quantities of foreign food and raw material which the country could previously procure by means of the interest and dividend payments received from abroad will in the future be sought by desperate attempts to sell manufactures to which every country wants to bar access. Part 7 Total War The princes of the ancient regime were eager for aggrandizement. They seized every opportunity to wage war and to conquer. They organized comparatively small armies. These armies fought their battles. The citizens detested the wars which brought mischief to them and burdened them with taxes. But they were not interested in the outcome of the campaigns. It was more or less immaterial to them whether they were ruled by a Habsburg or by a Bourbon. In those days, Voltaire declared, the peoples are indifferent to their rulers' wars. Modern war is not a war of royal armies. It is a war of the peoples, a total war. It is a war of states which do not leave to their subjects any private sphere. They consider the whole population a part of the armed forces. Whoever does not fight must work for the support and equipment of the army. Army and people are one and the same. The citizens passionately participate in the war, for it is their state, their god, who fights. Wars of aggression are popular nowadays with those nations which are convinced that only victory and conquest could improve their material well-being. On the other hand, the citizens of the nations assaulted know very well that they must fight for their own survival. Thus, every individual in both camps has a burning interest in the outcome of the battles. The annexation of Alsace-Lorraine by Germany in 1871 did not bring about any change in the wealth or income of the average German citizen. The inhabitants of the annexed province retained their property rights. They became citizens of the Reich and returned deputies to the Reichstag. The German treasury collected taxes in the newly acquired territory, but it was, on the other hand, burdened with the expense of its administration. This was in the days of laissez-faire. The old liberals were right in asserting that no citizen of a liberal and democratic nation profits from a victorious war. But it is different in this age of migration and trade barriers. 
Every wage earner and every peasant is heard by the policy of a foreign government, barring his access to countries in which natural conditions of production are more favorable than in his native country. Every toiler is heard by a foreign country's import duties penalizing the sale of the products of his work. If a victorious war destroys such trade and migration walls, the material well-being of the masses concerned is favored. Pressure on the domestic labor market can be relieved by the emigration of a part of the workers. The emigrants earn more in their new country, and the restriction of the supply on the domestic labor market tends to raise wage rates at home too. The abolition of foreign tariffs increases exports and thereby the demand on the domestic labor market. Production on the least fertile soil is discontinued at home, and the farmers go to countries in which better soil is still available. The average productivity of labor all over the world increases because production under the least favorable conditions is curtailed in the emigration countries and replaced by an expansion of production in the immigration countries, offering more favorable physical opportunities. But on the other hand, the interests of the workers and farmers in the comparatively underpopulated countries are injured. For them, the tendency toward an equalization of wage rates and farm yields, per capita of the men tilling a unit of land, inherent in a world of free mobility of labor, results for the immediate future in a drop of income, no matter how beneficial the later consequences of this free mobility may be. It would be futile to object that there is unemployment in the comparatively underpopulated countries, foremost among them Australia and America, and that immigration would only result in an increase of unemployment figures, not in an improvement of the conditions of the immigrants. Unemployment as a mass phenomenon is always due to the enforcement of minimum wages, higher than the potential wages which the unhampered labor market would have fixed. If the labor unions did not persistently try to raise wage rates above the potential market rates, there would be no lasting unemployment of many workers. The problem is not the differences in union minimum rates in different countries, but those in potential market wage rates. If there were no trade union manipulation of wages, Australia and America could absorb many millions of immigrant workers until an equalization of wages was reached. The market wage rates both in manufacturing and in agriculture are many times higher in Australia, in New Zealand, and in Northern America than in continental Europe. This is due to the fact that in Europe, poor mines are still exploited, while much richer mining facilities remain unused in overseas countries. The farmers of Europe are tilling the rocky and barren soil in the Alps, the Carpathians, the Apennines, and the Balkan Mountains, and the sandy soil of the plains of northeastern Germany, while millions of acres of more fertile soil lie untouched in America and Australia. All these peoples are prevented from moving to places where their toil and trouble would be much more productive and where they could render better services to the consumers. We can now realize why Ataism must result in war whenever the underprivileged believe that they will become victorious. As things are in this age of Ataism, the Germans, the Italians, and the Japanese could possibly derive profit from a victorious war. It is not a warrior caste which drives Japan into ruthless aggression, but considerations of wage policies which do not differ from those of the trade unions. The Australian trade unions wish to close their ports to immigration in order to raise wage rates in Australia. The Japanese workers wish to open the Australian ports in order to raise wage rates for the workers of their own race. Pacifism is doomed in an age of Ataism. In the old days of royal absolutism, philanthropists thus address the kings. Take pity on suffering mankind. Be generous and merciful. You, of course, may profit from victory and conquest. But think of the grief of the widows and orphans, the desolation of those maimed, mutilated, and crippled, 
the misery of those whose homes have been destroyed. Remember the commandment, Thou shalt not kill. Renounce glory and aggrandizement. Keep peace. They preached to deaf ears. Then came liberalism. It did not declaim against war. It sought to establish conditions in which war would not pay, to abolish war by doing away with the causes. It did not succeed because along came Ataism. When the pacifists of our day tell the peoples that war cannot improve their well-being, they are mistaken. The aggressor nations remain convinced that a victorious war could improve the fate of their citizens. These considerations are not a plea for opening America and the British dominions to German, Italian, and Japanese immigrants. Under present conditions, America and Australia would simply commit suicide by admitting Nazis, fascists, and Japanese. They could as well directly surrender to the Fuhrer and to the Mikado. Immigrants from the totalitarian countries are today the vanguard of their armies, a fifth column whose invasion would render all measures of defense useless. America and Australia can preserve their freedom, their civilizations, and their economic institutions only by rigidly barring access to the subjects of the dictators. But these conditions are the outcome of Etaism. In the liberal past, the immigrants came not as pacemakers of conquest, but as loyal citizens of their new country. However, it would be a serious omission not to mention the fact that immigration barriers are recommended by many contemporaries without any reference to the problem of wage rates and farm yields. Their aim is the preservation of the existing geographical segregation of various races. They argue this. Western civilization is an achievement of the Caucasian races of Western and Central Europe and their descendants in overseas countries. It would perish if the countries peopled by these Westerners were to be overflowed by the natives of Asia and Africa. Such an invasion would harm both the Westerners and the Asiatics and Africans. The segregation of various races is beneficial to all mankind because it prevents a disintegration of Western civilization. If the Asiatics and Africans remain in that part of the earth in which they have been living for many thousands of years, they will be benefited by the further progress of the white man's civilization. They will always have a model before their eyes to imitate and to adapt to their own conditions. Perhaps in a distant future, they themselves will contribute their share to the further advancement of culture. Perhaps at that time, it will be feasible to remove the barriers of segregation. In our day, they say, such plans are out of the question. We must not close our eyes to the fact that such views meet with the consent of the vast majority. It would be useless to deny that there exists a repugnance to abandoning the geographical segregation of various races. Even men who are fair in their appraisal of the qualities and cultural achievements of the colored races and severely object to any discrimination against those members of these races who are already living in the midst of white populations are opposed to a mass immigration of colored people. There are few white men who would not shudder at the picture of many millions of black or yellow people living in their own countries. The elaboration of a system making for harmonious coexistence and peaceful economic and political cooperation among the various races is a task to be accomplished by coming generations. But mankind will certainly fail to solve this problem if it does not entirely discard Etaism. Let us not forget that the actual menace to our civilization does not originate from a conflict between the white and colored races, but from conflicts among the various peoples of Europe and of European ancestry. Some writers have prophesied the coming of a decisive struggle between the white race and the colored races. The reality of our time, however, is war between groups of white nations and between the Japanese and the Chinese who are both Mongolians. These wars are the outcome of Etaism. Part 8 Socialism and War 
The socialists insist that war is but one of the many mischiefs of capitalism. In the coming paradise of socialism, they hold, there will no longer be any wars. Of course, between us and this peaceful utopia, there are still some bloody civil wars to be fought. But with the inevitable triumph of communism, all conflicts will disappear. It is obvious enough that within the conquest of the whole surface of the earth by a single ruler, all struggles between states and nations would disappear. If a socialist dictator should succeed in conquering every country, there would no longer be external wars, provided that the OGPU were strong enough to hinder the disintegration of this world state. But the same holds true for any other conqueror. If the Mongol great Khans had accomplished their ends, they too would have made the world safe for eternal peace. It is too bad that Christian Europe was so obstinate as not to surrender voluntarily to their claims of world supremacy. However, we are not considering projects for world pacification through universal conquest and enslavement, but how to achieve a world where there are no longer any causes of conflict. Such a possibility was implied in liberalism's project for the smooth cooperation of democratic nations under capitalism. It failed because the world abandoned both liberalism and capitalism. There are two possibilities for world-embracing socialism, the coexistence of independent socialist states on the one hand, or the establishment of a unitary world-embracing socialist government on the other. The first system would stabilize existing inequalities. There would be richer nations and poorer ones, countries both underpopulated and overpopulated. If mankind had introduced this system a hundred years ago, it would have been impossible to exploit the oil fields of Mexico or Venezuela, to establish the rubber plantations in Malaya, or to develop the banana production of Central America. The nations concerned lacked both a capital and trained men to utilize their own natural resources. A socialist scheme is not compatible with foreign investment, international loans, payments of dividends and interest, and all such capitalist institutions. Let us consider what some of the conditions would be in such a world of coordinate socialist nations. There are some overcrowded countries peopled by white workers. They labor to improve their standard of living, but their endeavors are handicapped by inadequate natural resources. They badly need raw materials and foodstuffs that could be produced in other better-endowed countries. But these countries which nature has favored are thinly populated and lack the capital required to develop their resources. Their inhabitants are neither industrious nor skillful enough to profit from the riches which nature has lavished upon them. They are without initiative. They cling to old-fashioned methods of production. They are not interested in improvement. They are not eager to produce more rubber, tin, copper, and jude, and to exchange these products for goods manufactured abroad. By this attitude, they affect the standard of living of those peoples whose chief asset is their skill and diligence. Will these peoples of countries neglected by nature be prepared to endure such a state of things? Will they be willing to work harder and to produce less because the favorite children of nature stubbornly abstain from exploiting their treasures in a more efficient way? Inevitably, war and conquest result. The workers of the comparatively overpopulated areas invade the comparatively underpopulated areas, conquer these countries, and annex them. And then follow wars between the conquerors for the distribution of the booty. Every nation is prepared to believe that it has not obtained its fair share, that other nations have got too much and should be forced to abandon a part of their plunder. Socialism in independent nations would result in endless wars. These considerations prepare for a disclosure of the nonsensical Marxian theories of imperialism. All these theories, however much they conflict with each other, have one feature in common. They all maintain that the capitalists are eager for foreign investment because production at home tends, with the progress of capitalism, to a reduction in the rate of profit, 
and because the home market under capitalism is too narrow to absorb the whole volume of production. This desire of capitalists for exports and for foreign investment, it is held, is detrimental to the class interests of the proletarians. Besides, it leads to international conflict and war. Yet the capitalists did not invest abroad in order to withhold goods from home consumption. On the contrary, they did so in order to supply the home market with raw materials and foodstuffs, which could otherwise not be obtained at all, or only in insufficient quantities or at higher costs. Without export trade and foreign investment, European and American consumers would never have enjoyed the high standard of living that capitalism gave them. It was the wants of the domestic consumers that pushed the capitalists and entrepreneurs toward foreign markets and foreign investment. If the consumers had been more eager for the acquisition of a greater quantity of goods that could be produced at home without the aid of foreign raw materials, then for imported food and raw materials, it would have been more profitable to expand home production further than to invest abroad. The Marxian doctrinaires shut their eyes purposely to the inequality of natural resources in different parts of the world. And yet these inequalities are the essential problem of international relations. But for them, the Teutonic tribes and later the Mongols would not have invaded Europe. They would have turned toward the vast empty areas of the tundra or of northern Scandinavia. If we do not take into account these inequalities of natural resources and climate, we can discover no motive for war, but some devilish spell, for example, as the Marxians say, the sinister machinations of capitalists, or as the Nazis say, the intrigues of world Jewry. These inequalities are natural and can never disappear. They would present an insoluble problem for a unitary world socialism also. A socialist world-embracing management could, of course, consider a policy under which all human beings are treated alike. It could try to ship workers and capital from one area to another without considering the vested interests of the labor groups of different countries or of different linguistic groups. But nothing can justify the illusion that these labor groups, whose per capita income and standard of living would be reduced by such a policy, would be prepared to tolerate it. No socialist of the Western nations considers socialism to be a scheme which, even if we were to grant the fallacious expectations that socialist production would increase the productivity of labor, must result in lowering living standards in those nations. The workers of the West are not striving for equalization of their earnings with those of the more than 1,000 million extremely poor peasants and workers of Asia and Africa. For the same reason that they oppose immigration under capitalism, these workers would oppose such a policy of labor transfer on the part of a socialist world management. They would rather fight than agree to abolition of the existing discriminations between the lucky inhabitants of comparatively underpopulated areas and the unfortunate inhabitants of the overpopulated areas. Whether we call such struggles civil wars or foreign wars is immaterial. The workers of the West favor socialism because they hope to improve their condition by the abolition of what they described as unearned incomes. We are not concerned with the fallacies of these expectations. We have only to emphasize that these Western socialists do not want to share their incomes with the underprivileged masses of the East. They are not prepared to renounce the most valuable privilege which they enjoy under Ataism and economic nationalism, the exclusion of foreign labor. The American workers are for the maintenance of what they call the American way of life, not for a world socialist way of life, which would lie somewhere between the present American and the Cooley level, probably much nearer to the latter than to the former. This is stark reality that no socialist rhetoric can conjure away. 
The same selfish group interests which, through migration barriers, have frustrated the liberal plans for worldwide peaceful cooperation of nations, states, and individuals would destroy the internal peace within a socialist world state. The peace argument is just as baseless and erroneous as all the other arguments brought forward to demonstrate the practicability and expediency of socialism. Section 5. Refutation of Some Fallacious Explanations Part 1. The Shortcomings of Current Explanations The current explanations of modern nationalism are far from recognizing that nationalism within our world of international division of labor is the inevitable outcome of etaism. We have already exposed the fallacies of the most popular of these explanations, namely of the Marxian theory of imperialism. We have now to pass in review some other doctrines. The faultiness of the Marxian theory is due to its bad economics. Most of the theories with which we shall deal now do not take economic factors into account at all. For them, nationalism is a phenomenon in a sphere not subject to the influence of factors commonly called economic. Some of these theories even go so far as to assert that nationalistic motivations arise from an intentional neglect of economic matters for the other matters. A thorough scrutiny of all these dissenting opinions would require an examination of all the fundamental problems of social life and social philosophy. We cannot achieve this in a study devoted to nationalism and the conflicts it has aroused, but must limit ourselves to the problems under investigation. With regard to prevalent mistakes, it may be necessary to emphasize again that we are considering policies and political actions and the doctrines influencing them, not mere views and opinions without practical effect. Our purpose is not to answer such questions as, in what respect do people of various nations, states, linguistic, and other social groups differ from one another? Or do they love or hate one another? We wish to know why they prefer a policy of economic nationalism and war to one of peaceful cooperation. Even nations bitterly hating one another would cling to peace and free trade if they were convinced that such a policy best promoted their own interests. Part 2. The Alleged Irrationality of Nationalism There are people who believe that they have satisfactorily explained nationalism by establishing its irrationality. They hold it a serious mistake, common mostly to economists, to assume that human action is always rational. Man is not, they say, a rational being. The ultimate goals of his actions are often, if not always, irrational. The glory and the greatness of their own nation, state, race, linguistic group, or social class are such irrational goals, which men prefer to increase in wealth and welfare or to the improvement of their standard of living. Men do not like peace, security, and a quiet life. They long for the vicissitudes of war and conquest, for change, adventure, and danger. They enjoy killing, robbing, and destroying. They yearn to march against the enemy when the drums beat, when the trumpets sound, and flags flutter in the wind. We must recognize, however, that the concepts rational and irrational apply only to means, never to ultimate ends. The judgments of value through which people make their choice among conflicting ultimate ends are neither rational nor irrational. They are arbitrary, subjective, and the outcome of individual points of view. There are no such things as objective absolute values, independent of the individual's preferences. The preservation of life is, as a rule, considered an ultimate goal. But there have always been men who preferred death to life when life could be preserved only under conditions that they considered unbearable. Human actions consist always in a choice between two goods or two evils which are not deemed equivalent. Where there is perfect equivalence, man stays neutral and no action results. 
But what is good and what is better, or what is bad and what is worse, is decided according to subjective standards, different with different individuals, and changing with the same individuals according to circumstances. As soon as we apply the concepts rational and irrational to judgments of value, we reduce ends to means. We are referring to something which we have set as a provisional end and considering the choice made on the basis of whether it is an efficient means to attain this end. If we are dealing with other people's actions, we are substituting our own judgments for theirs. And if we are dealing with our own past actions, we are substituting our present valuations for our valuations at the instant in which we acted. Rational and irrational always mean reasonable or not from the point of view of the end sought. There is no such thing as absolute rationality or irrationality. We may now understand what people are trying to say when they ascribe irrational motives to nationalism. They mean that liberalism was wrong in assuming that men are more eager to improve the material conditions of their well-being than to attain other ends, example national glory, the enjoyment of the dangerous life, or an indulgence in a taste for sadistic pleasures. Men, they say, have rejected capitalism and free trade because they aim at goals other than those that liberalism considers supreme. They do not seek a life free from want and fear or one of steadily increasing security and riches, but the particular satisfactions with which the totalitarian dictators provide them. Whether these statements are true or untrue cannot be determined by philosophical or a priori considerations. These are statements about facts. We need to ask whether the attitude of our contemporaries is really such as these explanations would have us believe. There is no doubt that there really are some people who prefer the attainment of other ends to the improvement of their own material well-being. There have always been men who voluntarily renounced many pleasures and satisfactions in order to do what they considered right and moral. Men have preferred martyrdom to the renunciation of what they believe to be true. They have chosen poverty and exile because they wanted to be free in the search for truth and wisdom. All that is noblest in the progress of civilization, welfare, and enlightenment has been the achievement of such men who braved every danger and defied the tyranny of powerful kings and fanatical masses. The pages of history tell us the epic of heretics burned at the stake, of philosophers put to death from Socrates to Giordano Bruno, of Christians and Jews heroically clinging to their faith in spite of murderous persecutions, and of many other champions of honesty and fidelity, whose martyrdom was less spectacular but no less genuine. But these examples of self-denial and readiness to sacrifice have always been exceptional. They have been the privilege of a small elite. It is furthermore true that there have always been people who have sought power and glory, but such aspirations are not contrary to the common longing for more wealth higher income, and more luxuries. The thirst for power does not involve the renunciation of material improvement. On the contrary, men want to be powerful in order to acquire more wealth than they could get by other methods. Many expect to acquire more treasures by robbing others than they could get by serving consumers. Many choose an adventurous career because they were confident that they could succeed better that way. Hitler, Goebbels, and Goering were simply unfit for any honest job. They were complete failures in the peaceful business of capitalist society. They strove for power, glory, and leadership, and thus became the richest men in present-day Germany. It is nonsense to assert that the will to power with them is something contrary to the longing for more material well-being. The explanation of modern nationalism and war, with which we have to deal at this point in our investigation, refers not only to the leaders but also to their followers. With regard to these, the question is, is it true that people, 
The voters, the masses of our contemporaries, have intentionally abandoned liberalism, capitalism, and free trade and substituted for them etaism, interventionism or socialism, economic nationalism and wars and revolutions, because they care more for a dangerous life in poverty than for a good life in peace and security. Do they really prefer being poorer in an environment where no one is better off than they to being richer within a market society where there are people wealthier than they? Do they choose the chaos of interventionism, socialism, and endless wars, although they are fully aware that this must mean poverty and hardships for them? Only a man lacking all sense of reality or common observation could venture to answer these questions in the affirmative. Clearly, men have abandoned liberalism and are fighting capitalism because they believe that interventionism, socialism, and economic nationalism will make them richer, not poorer. The socialists did not and do not say to the masses, we want to lower your standard of living. The protectionists do not say, your material well-being will suffer by import duties. The interventionists do not recommend their measures by pointing out their detrimental effects for the commonweal. On the contrary, all these groups insist again and again that their policy will make their partisans richer. People favor etaism because they believe that it will make them richer. They denounce capitalism because they believe that it deprives them of their fair share. The main point in the propaganda of Nazism between 1919 and 1933 was, world Jewry and Western capitalism have caused your misery. We will fight these foes, thus rendering you more prosperous. German Nazis and Italian fascists fought for raw materials and fertile soil, and they promised their followers a life of wealth and luxury. The sacro egoismo of the Italians is not the mentality of idealists, but that of robbers. Mussolini did not praise the dangerous life for its own sake, but as a means of getting rich booty. When Goering said that guns are more important than butter, he explained that Germans in the immediate future had to restrict their consumption of butter in order to get the guns necessary for the conquest of all the treasures of the world. If this is altruism, self-denial, or irrational idealism, then the gentlemen of Brooklyn's murder syndicate were the most perfect altruists and idealists. The nationalists of all countries have succeeded in convincing their followers that only the policies they recommend are really advantageous to the well-being of the whole nation and of all its honest citizens, of the we, and that all other parties are treacherously ready to sell their own nation's prosperity to foreigners, to the they. By taking the name nationalist, they insinuate that the other parties favor foreign interests. The German nationalists in the First World War called themselves the Party of the Fatherland, thus labeling all those who favored a negotiated peace, a sincere declaration that Germany did not want to annex Belgium, or no more sinking of liners by submarines, as treacherous foes of the nation. They were not prepared to admit that their adversaries also were honest in their affection for the commonweal. Whoever was not a nationalist was in their eyes an apostate and traitor. This attitude is common to all contemporary anti-liberal parties. The so-called labor parties, for example, pretend to recommend the only means favorable to the, of course, material interests of labor. Whoever opposes their program becomes for them a foe of labor. They do not permit rational discussion concerning the expediency of their policies for the workers. They are infatuated enough to pay no attention at all to the objections raised against them by economists. What they recommend is good, what their critics urge is bad for labor. This intransigent dogmatism does not mean that nationalists or labor leaders are in favor of goals other than those of the material well-being of their nations or classes. It merely illustrates a characteristic feature of our day.
the replacement of reasonable discussion by the errors of polylogism. We will deal with this phenomenon in a later chapter. Part 3. The Aristocratic Doctrine Among the infinity of fallacious statements and factual errors that go to form the structure of Marxian philosophy, there are two that are especially objectionable. Marx asserts that capitalism causes increasing pauperization of the masses and blithely contends that the proletarians are intellectually and morally superior to the narrow-minded, corrupt, and selfish bourgeoisie. It is not worthwhile to waste time in a refutation of these fables. The champions of a return to oligarchic government see things from a quite different angle. It is a fact, they say, that capitalism has poured a horn of plenty for the masses who do not know why they become more prosperous from day to day. The proletarians have done everything they could to hinder or slow down the pace of technical innovations. They have even destroyed newly invented machines. Their unions today still oppose every improvement in methods of production. The entrepreneurs and capitalists have had to push the reluctant and unwilling masses toward a system of production which renders their lives more comfortable. Within an unhampered market society, these advocates of aristocracy go on to say, there prevails a tendency toward a diminution of the inequality of incomes. While the average citizen becomes wealthier, the successful entrepreneurs seldom attain wealth which raises them far above the average level. There is but a small group of high incomes and the total consumption of this group is too insignificant to play any role in the market. The members of the upper middle class enjoy a higher standard of living than the masses, but their demands are also unimportant in the market. They live more comfortably than the majority of their fellow citizens, but they are not rich enough to afford a style of life substantially different. Their dress is more expensive than that of the lower strata, but it is of the same pattern and is adjusted to the same fashions. Their bathrooms and their cars are more elegant, but the service they render is substantially the same. The old discrepancies in standards have shrunk to differences that are mostly but a matter of ornament. The private life of a modern entrepreneur or executive differs much less from that of his employees than, centuries ago, the life of a feudal landlord differed from that of his serfs. It is, in the eyes of these pro-aristocratic critics, a deplorable consequence of this trend toward equalization and a rise in mass standards that the masses take a more active part in the nation's mental and political activities. They not only set artistic and literary standards, they are supreme in politics also. They now have comfort and leisure enough to play a decisive role in communal matters. But they are too narrow-minded to grasp the sense in sound policies. They judge all economic problems from the point of view of their own positions in the process of production. For them, the entrepreneurs and capitalists, indeed most of the executives, are simply idle people whose services could easily be rendered by anyone able to read and write. The masses are full of envy and resentment. They want to expropriate the capitalists and entrepreneurs whose fault it is to have served them too well. They are absolutely unfit to conceive the remoter consequences of the measures they are advocating. Thus, they are bent on destroying the sources from which their prosperity stems. The policy of democracies is suicidal. Turbulent mobs demand acts which are contrary to societies and their own best interests. They return to Parliament corrupt demagogues, adventurers, and quacks who praise patent medicines and idiotic remedies. Democracy has resulted in an upheaval of the domestic barbarians against reason, sound policies, and civilization. The masses have firmly established the dictators in many European countries. They may succeed very soon in America, too. The great experiment of liberalism and democracy has proved to be self-liquidating. 
it has brought about the worst of all tyrannies. Not for the sake of the elite, but for the salvation of civilization, and for the benefit of the masses, a radical reform is needed. The incomes of the proletarians, say the advocates of an aristocratic revolution, have to be cut down. Their work must be made harder and more tedious. The laborer should be so tired after his daily task is fulfilled that he cannot find leisure for dangerous thoughts and activities. He must be deprived of the franchise. All political power must be vested in the upper classes. Then the populace will be rendered harmless. They will be serfs, but as such happy, grateful, and subservient. What the masses need is to be held under tight control. If they are left free, they will fall an easy prey to the dictatorial aspirations of scoundrels. Save them by establishing in time the oligarchic paternal rule of the best, of the elite, of the aristocracy. These are the ideas that many of our contemporaries have derived from the writings of Burke, Dostoevsky, Nietzsche, Pareto, and Michaels, and from the historical experience of the last decades. You have the choice, they say, between the tyranny of men from the scum and the benevolent rule of wise kings and aristocracies. There has never been in history a lasting democratic system. The ancient and medieval republics were not genuine democracies. The masses, slaves and medics, never took part in government. Anyway, these republics too ended in demagogy and decay. If the rule of a grand inquisitor is inevitable, let him rather be a Roman cardinal, a Bourbon prince, or a British lord than a sadistic adventurer of low breeding. The main shortcoming of this reasoning is that it greatly exaggerates the role played by the lower strata of society in the evolution toward the detrimental present-day policies. It is paradoxical to assume that the masses, whom the friends of oligarchy describe as riffraff, should have been able to overpower the upper classes, the elite of entrepreneurs, capitalists, and intellectuals, and to impose on them their own mentality. Who is responsible for the deplorable events of the last decades? Did perhaps the lower classes, the proletarians, evolve the new doctrines? Not at all. No proletarian contributed anything to the construction of anti-liberal teachings. At the root of the genealogical tree of modern socialism, we meet the name of the depraved scion of one of the most eminent aristocratic families of royal France. Almost all the fathers of socialism were members of the upper middle class or of the professions. The Belgian Henri de Man, once a radical left-wing socialist, today a no less radical pro-Nazi socialist, was quite right in asserting. If one accepted the misleading Marxist expression which attaches every social ideology to a definite class, one would have to say that socialism as a doctrine, even Marxism, is of bourgeois origin. Neither did interventionism and nationalism come from the scum. They also are products of the well-to-do. The overwhelming success of these doctrines, which have proved so detrimental to peaceful social cooperation and now shake the foundations of our civilization, is not an outcome of lower-class activities. The proletarians, the workers, and the farmers are certainly not guilty. Members of the upper class were the authors of these destructive ideas. The intellectuals converted the masses to this ideology. They did not get it from them. If the supremacy of these modern doctrines is a proof of intellectual decay, it does not demonstrate that the lower strata have conquered the upper ones. It demonstrates, rather, the decay of the intellectuals and of the bourgeoisie. The masses, precisely because they are dull and mentally inert, have never created new ideologies. This has always been the prerogative of the elite. The truth is that we face a degeneration of a whole society and not an evil limited to some parts of it. 
When liberals recommend democratic government as the only means of safeguarding permanent peace, both at home and in international relations, they do not advocate the rule of the mean, of the low-bred, of the stupid, and of the domestic barbarians, as some critics of democracy believe. They are liberals and democrats precisely because they desire government by the men best fitted for the task. They maintain that those best qualified to rule must prove their abilities by convincing their fellow citizens so that they will voluntarily entrust them with office. They do not cling to the militarist doctrine, common to all revolutionaries, that the proof of qualification is the seizure of office by acts of violence or fraud. No ruler who lacks the gift of persuasion can stay in office long. It is the indispensable condition of government. It would be an idle illusion to assume that any government, no matter how good, could lastingly do without public consent. If our community does not beget men who have the power to make sound social principles generally acceptable, civilization is lost, whatever the system of government may be. It is not true that the dangers to the maintenance of peace, democracy, freedom, and capitalism are a result of a revolt of the masses. They are an achievement of scholars and intellectuals, of sons of the well-to-do, of writers and artists pampered by the best society. In every country of the world, dynasties and aristocrats have worked with the socialists and interventionists against freedom. Virtually all the Christian churches and sects have espoused the principles of socialism and interventionism. In almost every country, the clergy favor nationalism. In spite of the fact that Catholicism is world-embracing, even the Roman Church offers no exception. The nationalism of the Irish, the Poles, and the Slovaks is to a great extent an achievement of the clergy. French nationalism found most effective support in the church. It would be vain to attempt to cure this evil by a return to the rule of autocrats and noblemen. The autocracy of the Tsars in Russia or that of the Bourbons in France, Spain, and Naples was not an assurance of sound administration. The Hohenzollerns and the Prussian Junkers in Germany and the British ruling groups have clearly proved their unfitness to run a country. If worthless and ignoble men control the governments of many countries, it is because eminent intellectuals have recommended their rule. The principles according to which they exercise their powers have been framed by upper-class doctrinaires and meet with the approval of intellectuals. What the world needs is not constitutional reform but sound ideologies. It is obvious that every constitutional system can be made to work satisfactorily when the rulers are equal to their task. The problem is to find the men fit for office. Neither a priori reasoning nor historical experience has disproved the basic idea of liberalism and democracy, that the consent of those ruled is the main requisite of government. Neither benevolent kings nor enlightened aristocracies, nor unselfish priests or philosophers, can succeed when lacking this consent. Whoever wants lastingly to establish good government must start by trying to persuade his fellow citizens and offering them sound ideologies. He is only demonstrating his own incapacity when he resorts to violence, coercion, and compulsion instead of persuasion. In the long run, force and threat cannot be successfully applied against majorities. There is no hope left for a civilization when the masses favor harmful policies. The elite should be supreme by virtue of persuasion, not by the assistance of firing squads. Part 4. Misapprehended Darwinism Nothing could be more mistaken than the now fashionable attempt to apply the methods and concepts of the natural sciences to the solution of social problems. In the realm of nature, we cannot know anything about final causes by reference to which events can be explained. But in the field of human actions, there is the finality of acting men. Men make choices. 
They aim at certain ends and they apply means in order to attain the end sought. Darwinism is one of the great achievements of the 19th century. But what is commonly called social Darwinism is a garbled distortion of the ideas advanced by Charles Darwin. It is an ineluctable law of nature, say these pseudo-Darwinists, that each living being devours the smaller and weaker ones, and that when its turn comes, it is swallowed by a still bigger and stronger one. In nature, there are no such things as peace or mutual friendship. In nature, there is always struggle and merciless annihilation of those who do not succeed in defending themselves. Liberalism's plans for eternal peace are the outcome of an illusory rationalism. The laws of nature cannot be abolished by men. In spite of the liberals' protest, we are witnessing a recurrence of war. There have always been wars. There will always be wars. Thus, modern nationalism is a return from fallacious ideas to the reality of nature and life. Let us first incidentally remark that the struggles to which this doctrine refers are struggles between animals of different species. Higher animals devour lower animals. For the most part, they do not feed in a cannibalistic way on their own species. But this fact is of minor importance. The only equipment which the beasts have to use in their struggles is their physical strength, their bodily features, and their instincts. Man is better armed. Although bodily much weaker than many beasts of prey, and almost defenseless against the more dangerous microbes, man has conquered the earth through his most valuable gift, reason. Reason is the main resource of man in his struggle for survival. It is foolish to view human reason as something unnatural or even contrary to nature. Reason fulfills a fundamental biological function in human life. It is the specific feature of man. When man fights, he nearly always makes use of it as his most efficient weapon. Reason guides his step in his endeavors to improve the external conditions of his life and well-being. Man is the reasonable animal, Homo sapiens. Now, the greatest accomplishment of reason is the discovery of the advantages of social cooperation and its corollary, the division of labor. Thanks to this achievement, man has been able to centuple his progeny and still provide for each individual a much better life than nature offered to his non-human ancestors some hundred thousand years ago. In this sense, that there are many more people living today, and that each of them enjoys a much richer life than his fathers did, we may apply the term progress. It is, of course, a judgment of value, and as such arbitrary. But it is made from a point of view which practically all men accept, even if they, like Count Tolstoy or Mahatma Gandhi, seem unconditionally to disparage all our civilization. Human civilization is not something achieved against nature. It is rather the outcome of the working of the innate qualities of men. Social cooperation and war are in the long run incompatible. Self-sufficient individuals may fight each other without destroying the foundations of their existence. But within the social system of cooperation and division of labor, war means disintegration. The progressive evolution of society requires the progressive elimination of war. Under present conditions of international division of labor, there is no room left for wars. The great society of world-embracing mutual exchange of commodities and services demands a peaceful coexistence of states and nations. Several hundred years ago, it was necessary to eliminate the wars between the noblemen ruling various countries and districts in order to pave the way for a peaceful development of domestic production. Today, it is indispensable to achieve the same for the world community. To abolish international war is not more unnatural than it was 500 years ago, to prevent the barons from fighting each other, or 2,000 years ago to prevent a man from robbing and killing his neighbor. If men do not now succeed in abolishing war, civilization and mankind are doomed. 
From a correct Darwinist viewpoint, it would be right to say, social cooperation and division of labor are man's foremost tools in his struggle for survival. The intensification of this mutuality in the direction of a world-embracing system of exchange has considerably improved the conditions of mankind. The maintenance of the system requires lasting peace. The abolition of war is therefore an important item in man's struggle for survival. Part 5. The Role of Chauvinism Confusing nationalism and chauvinism or explaining nationalism as a consequence of chauvinism is a widespread error. Chauvinism is a disposition of character and mind. It does not result in action. Nationalism is, on the other hand, a doctrine recommending a certain type of action and, on the other hand, the policy by which this action is consummated. Chauvinism and nationalism are therefore two entirely different things. The two are not necessarily linked together. Many old liberals were also chauvinists. But they did not believe that inflicting harm upon other nations was the proper means of promoting the welfare of their own nation. They were chauvinists, but not nationalists. Chauvinism is a presumption of the superiority of the qualities and achievements of one's own nation. Under present condition, this means in Europe of one's own linguistic group. Such arrogance is a common weakness of the average man. It is not too difficult to explain its origin. Nothing links men more closely together than a community of language, and nothing segregates them more effectively than a difference of language. We may just as well invert this statement by asserting that men who associate with each other use the same idiom, and men between whom there is no direct intercourse do not. If the lower classes of England and of Germany had more in common with each other than with the upper strata of the society of their own countries, then the proletarians of both countries would speak the same idiom, a language different from that of the upper classes. When, under the social system of the 18th century, the aristocracies of various European countries were more closely linked with each other than with the commoners of their own nation, they used a common upper-class language, French. The man who speaks a foreign language and does not understand our language is a barbarian, because we cannot communicate with him. A foreign country is one where our own idiom is not understood. It is a great discomfort to live in such a country. It brings about uneasiness and homesickness. When people meet other people speaking a foreign language, they regard them as strangers. They come to consider those speaking their own tongue as more closely connected, as friends. They transfer the linguistic designations to the people speaking the languages. Although speaking Italian as their main and daily language are called Italians. Next, the linguistic terminology is used to designate the country in which the Italians live and finally, to designate everything in this country that differs from other countries. People speak of Italian cooking, Italian wine, Italian art, Italian industry, and so on. Italian institutions are naturally more familiar to the Italians than foreign ones. As they call themselves Italians in speaking of these institutions, they use the possessive pronouns mine and our. Overestimation of one's own linguistic community and of everything commonly called by the same adjective as the language is psychologically not more difficult to explain than the overvaluation of an individual's own personality or underestimation of that of other persons. The contrary, undervaluation of a man's own personality and nation and overestimation of other people and of foreign countries may sometimes happen too, although more rarely. At any rate, it must be emphasized that chauvinism was more or less restricted up to the beginning of the 19th century. Only a small minority had a knowledge of foreign countries, languages, and institutions, 
and these few were, in the main, educated enough to judge foreign things in a relatively objective way. The masses knew nothing about foreign lands. To them, the foreign world was not inferior, but merely unfamiliar. Whoever was conceded in those days was proud of his rank, not of his nation. Differences in caste counted more than national or linguistic ones. With the rise of liberalism and capitalism, conditions changed quickly. The masses became better educated, they acquired a better knowledge of their own language. They started reading and learned something about foreign countries and habits. Travel became cheaper and more foreigners visited the country. The schools included more foreign languages in their curriculum. But nevertheless, for the masses, a foreigner is still in the main a creature whom they know only from books and newspapers. Even today, there are living in Europe millions who have never had the opportunity of meeting or speaking with a foreigner except on a battlefield. Conceit and overvaluation of one's own nation are quite common. But it would be wrong to assume that hatred and contempt of foreigners are natural and inequalities. Even soldiers fighting to kill their enemies do not hate the individual foe, if they happen to meet him apart from the battle. The boastful warrior neither hates nor despises the enemy. He simply wants to display his own valor in a glorious light. When a German manufacturer says that no other country can produce as cheap and good commodities as Germany, it is no different from his assertion that the products of his domestic competitors are worse than his own. Modern chauvinism is a product of literature. Writers and orators strive for success by flattering their public. Chauvinism spread, therefore, with the mass production of books, periodicals, and newspapers. The propaganda of nationalism favors it. Nevertheless, it has comparatively slight political significance and must in any case be clearly distinguished from nationalism. The Russians are convinced that physics is taught in the schools of Soviet Russia only, and that Moscow is the only city equipped with a subway system. The Germans assert that only Germany has true philosophers. They picture Paris as an agglomeration of amusement places. The British believe that adultery is quite usual in France, and the French-style homosexuality, le visalement. The Americans doubt whether the Europeans use bathtubs. These are sad facts, but they do not result in war. It is paradoxical that French boors pride themselves on the fact that Descartes, Voltaire, and Pasteur were Frenchmen and take a part of Moliere's and Balzac's glory to themselves but it is politically innocuous. The same is true of the overestimation of one's own country's military achievements and of the eagerness of historians to interpret lost battles, after decades or even centuries, as victories. It gives an impartial observer a curious feeling when Hungarians or Romanians speak of their nation's civilization in epithets, which would be grotesquely incongruous even if the Bible, the Corpus Juris Civilis, the Declaration of Rights of Man, and the works of Shakespeare, Newton, Goethe, Laplace, Ricardo, and Darwin were written by Hungarians or Romanians in Hungarian or Romanian. But the political antagonism of these two nations has nothing to do with such statements. Chauvinism has not begotten nationalism. Its chief function in the scheme of nationalist policies is to adorn the shows and festivals of nationalism. People overflow with joy and pride when the official speakers hail them as the elite of mankind, and praise the immortal deeds of their ancestors and the invincibility of their armed forces. But when the words fade away and the celebration reaches its end, people return home and go to bed. They do not mount the battle horse. From the political point of view, it is no doubt dangerous that men are so easily stirred by bombastic talk. 
but the political actions of modern nationalism cannot be explained or excused by chauvinist intoxication. They are the outcome of cool, though misguided, reasoning. The carefully elaborated, although erroneous, doctrines of scholarly and thoughtful books have led to the clash of nations, to bloody wars, and destruction. Part 6. The Role of Myths The term myths has long been used to signify purely fictitious narratives and doctrines. In this sense, Christians call the teachings and stories of paganism myths. In this sense, those who do not share the Christian faith call the Bible tales mythical. For the Christian, they are not myths but truth. This obvious fact has been distorted by writers who maintain that doctrines which cannot stand the criticism of reason can nonetheless be justified by ascribing to them a mythical character. They have tried to build up a rationalistic theory for the salvation of error and its protection against sound reasoning. If a statement can be disproved, you cannot justify it by giving it the status of a myth and thus making it proof against reasonable objections. It is true that many fictions and doctrines, today generally or in the main, refuted and therefore called myths, have played a great role in history. But they played this role not as myths, but as doctrines considered true. In the eyes of their supporters, they were entirely authentic. They were their honest convictions. They turned to myths in the eyes of those who considered them fictitious and contrary to fact, and who therefore did not let their actions be influenced by them. For Georges Sorel, a myth is the imaginary construction of a future successful action. But we must add, to estimate the value of a method of procedure, one point only has to be taken into account, namely whether or not it is a suitable means to attain the end sought. If reasonable examination demonstrates that it is not, it must be rejected. It is impossible to render an unsuitable method of procedure more expedient by ascribing to it the quality of a myth. Sorel says, if you place yourself on this ground of myths, you are proof against any kind of critical refutation. But the problem is not to succeed in polemic by taking recourse to subtleties and tricks. The only question is whether or not action guided by the doctrine concerned will attain the end sought. Even if one sees, as Sorel does, the task of myths to be that of equipping men to fight for the destruction of what exists, one cannot escape the question, do these myths represent an adequate means to achieve this task? It needs to be pointed out, incidentally, that destruction of existing conditions alone cannot be considered as a goal. It is necessary to build up something new in the place of what is destroyed. If it is proved by reasonable demonstration that socialism as a social system cannot realize what people wish or expect to realize through it, or that the general strike is not the appropriate means for the attainment of socialism, you cannot change these facts by declaring, as Sorel did, that socialism and the general strike are myths. People who cling to socialism and the general strike wish to attain certain names through them. They are convinced that they will succeed by these methods. It is not as myths, but as doctrines considered to be correct and well-founded, that socialism and the general strike are supported by millions of men. Some freethinkers say Christianity is an absurd creed, a myth, yet it is useful that the masses should adhere to the Christian dogmas. But the advantage that these freethinkers expect depends upon the masses actually taking the Gospels as truth. It could not be attained if they were to regard the commandments as myths. Whoever rejects a political doctrine as wrong agrees with a generally accepted terminology in calling it a myth. But if he wants to profit from a popular superstition in order to attain his own ends, he must be careful not to disparage it by calling it a myth openly. 
for he can make use of this doctrine only so long as others consider it to be truth. We do not know what those princes of the 16th century believed who joined the religious reformation. If not sincere conviction, but the desire for enrichment guided them, then they abused the faith of other people for the sake of their own selfish appetites. They would have prejudiced their own interests, however, if they had called the new creed mythical. Lenin was cynical enough to say that revolutions must be achieved with the catchwords of the day, and he achieved his own revolution by affirming publicly, against his better conviction, the catchwords that had taken hold of public opinion. Some party leaders may be capable of being convinced of the falsehood of their party's doctrine, but doctrines can have real influence only so far as people consider them right. Socialism and interventionism, etaism and nationalism are not myths in the eyes of their advocates, but doctrines indicating the proper way to the attainment of their aims. The power of these teachings is based on the firm belief of the masses that they will effectively improve their lot by applying them. Yet they are fallacious. They start from false assumptions and their reasoning is full of paralogisms. Those who see through these errors are right in calling them myths. But as long as they do not succeed in convincing their fellow citizens that these doctrines are untenable, the doctrines will dominate public opinion and politicians and statesmen will be guided by them. Men are always liable to error. They have erred in the past. They will err in the future. But they do not err purposely. They want to succeed and they know very well that the choice of inappropriate means will frustrate their actions. Men do not ask for myths, but for working doctrines that point the right means for the end sought. Nationalism in general, and Nazism in particular, are neither intentional myths nor founded or supported by intentional myths. They are political doctrines and policies, though faulty, and are even scientific intent. If somebody were prepared to call myths the variations on themes like we are the salt of the earth, or we are the chosen people, in which all nations and castes have indulged in one way or another, we should have to refer to what has been said about chauvinism. This is music for the enchantment and gratification of the community, mere pastime for the hours not devoted to political business. Politics is activity and striving toward aims. It should not be confused with mere indulgence in self-praise and self-adulation. Part 3. German Nazism Section 6. The Peculiar Characteristics of German Nationalism Part 1. The Awakening German nationalism did not differ from other people's nationalism until, in the late 1870s and early 80s, the German nationalists made what they believed to be a great discovery. They discovered that their nation was the strongest in Europe. They concluded that Germany was therefore powerful enough to subdue Europe or even the whole world. Their reasoning ran as follows. The Germans are the most numerous people in Europe, Russia accepted. The Reich itself has within the boundaries drawn by Bismarck more inhabitants than any other European country with the same exception. Outside the Reich's borders, many millions of German-speaking people are living, all of whom, according to the principle of nationality, should join the Reich. Russia, they said, should not be considered, since it is not a homogenous nation, but a conglomeration of many different nationalities. If you deduct from Russia's population figures the Poles, Finns, Estonians, Letts, Lithuanians, White Russians, the Caucasian and Mongolian tribes, the Georgians, the Germans in the Baltic provinces, and on the banks of the Volga, and especially the Ukrainians, there remain only the Great Russians, who are fewer in number than the Germans. Besides, Germany's population is increasing faster than that of other European nations and much faster than that of the hereditary foe, France. 
The German nation enjoys the enormous advantage of occupying the central part of Europe. It thus dominates strategically the whole of Europe and some parts of Asia and Africa. It enjoys in warfare the advantages of standing on interior lines. The German people are young and vigorous, while the Western nations are old and degenerate. The Germans are diligent, virtuous, and ready to fight. The French are morally corrupt. The idol of the British is mammon and profit. The Italians are weaklings. The Russians are barbarians. The Germans are the best warriors. That the French are no match for them has been proven by the battles of Rossbach, Katzbach, Leipzig, Waterloo, St. Privat, and Sedan. The Italians always take to their heels. The military inferiority of Russia was evidenced in the Crimea and in the last war with the Turks. English land power has always been contemptible. Britain rules the waves only because the Germans, politically disunited, have in the past neglected the establishment of sea power. The deeds of the old hands clearly proved Germany's maritime genius. It is therefore obvious that the German nation is predestined for hegemony. God, fate, and history chose the Germans when they endowed them with their great qualities. But unfortunately, this blessed nation has not yet discovered what is right and its duty demand. Oblivious of the historic mission, the Germans have indulged in internal antagonisms. Germans have fought each other. Christianity has weakened their innate warlike ardor. The Reformation has split the nation into two hostile camps. The Habsburg emperors have misused the empire's forces for the selfish interests of their dynasty. The other princes have betrayed the nation by supporting the French invaders. The Swiss and the Dutch have seceded. But now finally the day of the Germans has dawned. God has sent to his chosen people their saviors, the Hohenzollerns. They have revived the genuine Teutonic spirit, the spirit of Prussia. They have freed the people from the yoke of the Habsburgs and of the Roman Church. They will march on and on. They will establish the German Imperium Mundi. It is every German's duty to support them to the extent of his own ability. Thus he serves his own best interests. Every doctrine by which Germany's foes attempt to weaken the German soul and hinder it in accomplishing its task must be radically weeded out. A German who preaches peace is a traitor and must be treated as such. The first step of the new policy must consist in the reincorporation of all Germans now outside. The Austrian Empire must be dismembered. All its countries, which until 1866 were parts of the German Federation, must be annexed. This includes all Czechs and Slovenes. The Netherlands and Switzerland must be reunited with the Reich, and so must the Flemings of Belgium, and the Baltic provinces of Russia, whose upper classes speak German. The army must be strengthened until it can accomplish these conquests. A navy has to be built strong enough to smash the British fleet. Then, the most valuable British and French colonies must be annexed. The Dutch East Indies and the Congo state will come automatically under German rule with the conquest of the mother countries. In South America, the Reich must occupy a vast area where at least 30 million Germans can settle. This program assigned a special task to the German emigrants living in different foreign countries. They were to be organized by nationalist emissaries to whom the consular service of the Reich should give moral and financial backing. In countries which were to be conquered by the Reich, they were to form a vanguard. In the other countries, they were, by political action, to bring about a sympathetic attitude on the part of the government. This was especially planned in regard to the German-Americans, as the plan was to keep the United States neutral as long as possible. Part 2. The Ascendancy of Pan-Germanism Pan-Germanism was an achievement of intellectuals and writers. The professors of history, law, economics, political science, geography, and philosophy were its most uncompromising advocates. They converted the students of the universities to their ideas. Very soon the graduates made more converts. 
as teachers in the field of higher education in the famous German gymnasium and educational institutions of the same rank. As lawyers, judges, civil servants, and diplomats, they had ample opportunity to serve their cause. All other strata of the population resisted the new ideas for some time. They did not want more wars and conquests. They wanted to live in peace. They were, as the nationalists scornfully observed, selfish people not eager to die but to enjoy life. The popular theory that the junkers and officers, big business and finance, and the middle classes were the initiators of German nationalism is contrary to fact. All these groups were at first strongly opposed to the aspirations of pan-Germanism, but their resistance was vain because it lacked an ideological backing. There were no longer any liberal authors in Germany. Thus, the nationalist writers and professors easily conquered. Very soon the youth came back from the universities and lower schools convinced pan-Germans. By the end of the century, Germany was almost unanimous in its approval of pan-Germanism. Businessmen and bankers were for many years the sturdiest opponents of pan-Germanism. They were more familiar with foreign conditions than were the nationalists. They knew that France and Great Britain were not decadent and that it would be very difficult to conquer the world. They did not want to imperil their foreign trade and investments through wars. They did not believe that armored cruisers could accomplish the task of commercial travelers and bring them higher profits. They were afraid of the budgetary consequences of greater armaments. They wanted increased sales, not booty. But it was easy for the nationalists to silence these plutocratic opponents. All important offices soon came into the hands of men whom university training had imbued with nationalist ideas. In the Etat estate, entrepreneurs are at the mercy of officialdom. Officials enjoy discretion to decide questions on which the existence of every firm depends. They are practically free to ruin any entrepreneur they want to. They had the power not only to silence these objectors, but even to force them to contribute to the party funds of nationalism. In the trade associations of businessmen, the syndics, executives, were supreme. Former pupils of the pan-German university teachers, they tried to outdo each other in nationalist radicalism. Thus, they sought to please the government officials and further their own careers through successful intercession on behalf of the interests of their members. German nationalism was not, as the Marxians insist, the ideological superstructure of the selfish class interests of the armaments industry. In the 1870s, Germany possessed, apart from the Krupp plant, only comparatively small and not very profitable armament works. There is not the slightest evidence for the assumption that they subsidized the contemporary nationalist freelance writers. They had nothing whatever to do with the much more effective propaganda of the university teachers. The large capital invested in munitions works since the 80s has been rather a consequence than the cause of German armaments. Of course, every businessman is in favor of tendencies that may result in an increase in his sales. Soap capital desires more cleanliness, building capital a greater demand for homes, publishing capital more and better education, and armaments capital bigger armaments. The short-run interests of every branch of business encourage such attitudes. In the long run, however, increased demand results in an inflow of more capital into the booming branch, and the competition of the new enterprises cuts down the profits. The dedication of a greater part of Germany's national income to military expenditure correspondingly reduced that part of the national income that could be spent by individual consumers for their own consumption. In proportion, as armaments increased the sales of munitions plants, they reduced the sales of all other industries. The more subtle Marxians do not maintain that the nationalist authors have been bribed by munitions capital, but that they have unconsciously supported its interests. 
but this implies that they have to the same extent unconsciously hurt the interests of the greater part of the German entrepreneurs and capitalists. What made the world soul, which directs the working of philosophers and writers against their will, and forces them to adjust their ideas to the lines prescribed by inevitable trends of evolution, so partial as to favor some branches of business at the expense of other, more numerous branches? It is true that since the beginning of our century, almost all German capitalists and entrepreneurs have been nationalists. But so were, even to a greater degree, all other strata, groups, and classes of Germany. This was the result of nationalist education. This was an achievement of authors like Lagarde, Peters, Langben, Treitsky, Schmoller, Houston, Stuart Chamberlain, and Naumann. It is not true that the Berlin court, the Junkers, and the aristocratic officers sympathized from the beginning with the pan-German ideas. The Hohenzollerns and their retainers had sought Prussian hegemony in Germany and at an increase in German prestige in Europe. They had attained these goals and were satisfied. They did not want more. They were anxious to preserve the German caste system with the privileges of the dynasties and of the aristocracy. This was more important for them than the struggle for world domination. They were not enthusiastic about the construction of a strong navy or about colonial expansion. Bismarck yielded unwillingly to colonial plans. But courts and noblemen were unable to offer successful resistance to a popular movement supported by intellectuals. They had long since lost all influence on public opinion. They derived an advantage from the defeat of liberalism, the deadly foe of their own privileges. But they themselves had contributed nothing to the ascendancy of the new etast ideas. They simply profited by the change of mentality. They regarded the nationalist ideas as somewhat dangerous. Pan-Germanism was full of praise for old Prussia and its institutions, for the conservative party in its capacity as adversary of liberalism, for the army and the navy, for the commissioned officers and for the nobility. But the Junkers disliked one point in the nationalist mentality which seemed to them democratic and revolutionary. They considered the nationalist commoners' interference with foreign policy and military problems a piece of impudence. In their eyes, these two fields were the exclusive domain of the sovereign, while the support which the nationalists granted to the government's domestic policies pleased them, they regarded as a kind of rebellion the fact that the pan-Germans had views of their own about higher politics. The court and the nobles seemed to doubt the right of the people even to applaud their achievements in these fields. But all such qualms were limited to the older generations, to the men who had reached maturity before the foundation of the new empire. William II and all his contemporaries were already nationalists. The rising generation could not protect itself from the power of the new ideas. The schools taught them nationalism. They entered the stage of politics as nationalists. True when in public office they were obliged to maintain a diplomatic reserve. Thus it happened time and again that the government publicly rebuked the pan-Germans and sharply rejected suggestions with which it secretly sympathized. But as officialdom and pan-Germans were in perfect agreement about ultimate aims, such incidents were of little importance. The third group which opposed radical nationalism was Catholicism. But Catholicism's political organization, the Center Party, was neither prepared nor mentally fitted to combat a great intellectual evolution. Its methods consisted simply in yielding to every popular trend and trying to use it for its own purposes, the preservation and improvement of the Church's position. The Center's only principle was Catholicism. For the rest, it had neither principles nor convictions. It was purely opportunist. It did everything from which success in the next election campaign could be expected. It cooperated, according to changing conditions, at one time with the Protestant conservatives, at another with the nationalists, 
at another with the Social Democrats. It worked with the Social Democrats in 1918 to overthrow the old system and later in the Weimar Republic. But in 1933, the center was ready to share power in the Third Reich with the Nazis. The Nazis frustrated these designs. The center was not only disappointed but indignant when its offer was refused. The center party had organized a powerful system of Christian labor unions which formed one of its most valuable auxiliaries and was eager to call itself a working men's party. As such, it considered it its duty to further Germany's export trade. The economic ideas generally accepted by German public opinion maintained that the best means of increasing exports was a great navy and an energetic foreign policy. Since the German pseudo-economists viewed every import as a disadvantage and every export as an advantage, they could not imagine how foreigners could be induced to buy more German products by other means than by an impressive display of German naval power. As most of the professors taught that whoever opposes increased armaments furthers unemployment and a lowering of the standard of living, the center in its capacity as a labor party could not vigorously resist the nationalist extremists. Besides, there were other considerations. The territories marked first for annexation in Pan-Germanism's program for conquest were inhabited mainly by Catholics. Their incorporation was bound to strengthen the Reich's Catholic forces. Could the center regard such plans as unsound? Only liberalism would have had the power to antagonize Pan-Germanism. But there were no more liberals left in Germany. Part 3. German Nationalism Within an Etized World German nationalism differs from that of other European countries only in the fact of the people's believing itself to be the strongest in Europe. Pan-Germanism and its heir, Nazism, are the application of general nationalist doctrines to the special case of the most populous and most powerful nations, which is, however, in the unlucky position of being dependent on imported foodstuffs and raw materials. German nationalism is not the outcome of innate Teutonic brutality or rowdyism. It does not stem from blood or inheritance. It is not a return of the grandsons to the mentality of their Viking ancestors. The Germans are not the descendants of the Vikings. The forefathers of the Germans of our day were German tribes who did not participate in the invasions which gave the last blow to ancient civilization. Slavonic and Baltic tribes of the Northeast and Celtic Aborigines of the Alps. There is more non-German than German blood in the veins of present-day Germans. The Scandinavians, the genuine scions of the Vikings, have a different type of nationalism and apply different political methods from those of the Germans. No one can tell whether the Swedes, if they were as numerous as the Germans are today, would, in our age of nationalism, have adopted the methods of Nazism. Certainly the Germans, if they had not been more numerous than the Swedes, would not have succumbed to the mentality of world conquest. The Germans invented neither interventionism nor etaism with their inevitable result, nationalism. They imported these doctrines from abroad. They did not even invent the most conspicuous chauvinistic adornment of their own nationalism, the fable of Arianism. It is easy to expose the fundamental errors, fallacies, and paralogisms of German nationalism if one places on the sound basis of scientific praxeology and economics and the practical philosophy of liberalism derived from them. But etaists are helpless when trying to refute the essential statements of pan-Germanism and Nazism. The only objection they can consistently raise to the teachings of German nationalism is that the Germans were mistaken when they assumed they could conquer all other nations, and the only weapons they can use against Nazism are military ones. It is inconsistent for an etaist to object to German nationalism on the ground that it means coercion. The state always means coercion. 
But while liberalism seeks to limit the application of coercion and compulsion to a narrow field, Etaists do not recognize these restrictions. For Etaism, coercion is the essential means of political action, indeed the only means. It is considered proper for the government of Atlantis to use armed men, i.e. customs and immigration officers, in order to hinder the citizens of Thule from selling commodities on the markets of Atlantis or from working in the factories of Atlantis. But if this is so, then no effective logical argument can be brought forward against the plans of the government of Thule to defeat the armed forces of Atlantis and thus to prevent them from inflicting harm on the citizens of Thule. The only working argument for Atlantis is to repulse the aggressors. We can see this essential matter clearly by comparing the social effects of private property and those of territorial sovereignty. Both private property and territorial sovereignty can be traced back to a point where someone either appropriated ownerless goods or land, or violently expropriated a predecessor whose title had been based on appropriation. To law and legality, no other origins can be ascribed. It would be contradictory or nonsensical to assume a legitimate beginning. The factual state of affairs became a legitimate one by its acknowledgement by other people. Lawfulness consists in the general acceptance of the rule that no further arbitrary appropriations or violent expropriations shall be tolerated. For the sake of peace, security, and progress, it is agreed that in the future, every change of property shall be the outcome of voluntary exchange by the parties directly concerned. This, of course, involves the recognition of the appropriations and expropriations affected in the past. It means a declaration that the present state of distribution, although arbitrarily established, must be respected as the legal one. There was no alternative. To attempt to establish a fair order through the expropriation of all owners and an entirely new distribution would have resulted in endless wars. Within the framework of a market society, the fact that legal formalism can trace back every title either to arbitrary appropriation or to violent expropriation has lost its significance. Ownership in the market society is no longer linked up with the remote origin of private property. Those events in a far distant past, hidden in the darkness of primitive mankind's history, are no longer of any concern for our present life. For in an unhampered market society, the consumers decide, by their daily buying or not buying, who should own and what he should own. The working of the market daily allots anew the ownership of the means of production to those who know how to use them best for the satisfaction of consumers. Only in a legal and formalistic sense can the owners be considered the successors of appropriators and expropriators. In fact, they are the mandatories of the consumers, bound by the laws of the market to serve the wants or whims of the consumers. The market is a democracy. Capitalism is the consummation of the self-determination of consumers. Mr. Ford is richer than Mr. X because he succeeded better in serving the consumers. But all this is not true of territorial sovereignty. Here the fact that once in a remote past a Mongolian tribe occupied the country of Tibet still has its full importance. If there should one day be discovered in Tibet precious resources that could improve the lot of every human being, it would depend on the Dalai Lama's discretion whether the world should be allowed to make use of these treasures or not. His is the sovereignty of his country. His title, derived from a bloody conquest thousands of years ago, is still supreme and exclusive. This unsatisfactory state of things can be remedied only by violence, by war. Thus war is inescapable. It is the ultima ratio. It is the only means of solving such antagonisms unless people have recourse to the principles of liberalism. It is precisely in order to make war unnecessary that liberalism recommends laissez-faire and laissez-passer, 
which would render political boundaries innocuous. A liberal government in Tibet would not hinder anyone from making the best use of the country's resources. If you want to abolish war, you must eliminate its causes. What is needed is to restrict government activities to the preservation of life, health, and private property, and thereby to safeguard the working of the market. Sovereignty must not be used for inflicting harm on anyone, whether citizen or foreigner. In the world of Etaism, sovereignty once more has disastrous implications. Every sovereign government has the power to use its apparatus of coercion and compulsion to the disadvantage of citizens and foreigners. The gendarmes of Atlantis apply coercion against the citizens of Thule. Thule orders its army to attack the forces of Atlantis. Each country calls the other aggressor. Atlantis says, This is our country. We are free to act within its boundaries as we like. You, Thule, have no right to interfere. Thule answers, You have no title but earlier conquest. Now you take advantage of your sovereignty to discriminate against our citizens, but we are strong enough to annul your title by superior force. Under such conditions, there is but one means to avoid war, to be so strong that no one ventures aggression against you. Part 4. A Critique of German Nationalism No further critique of nationalism is needed than that provided by liberalism, which has refuted in advance all its contentions. But the plans of German nationalism must be considered impracticable even if we omit any reference to the doctrines of liberalism. It is simply not true that the Germans are strong enough to conquer the world. It is moreover not true that they could enjoy the victory if they succeeded. Germany built up a tremendous military machine, while other nations foolishly neglected to organize their defenses. Nevertheless, Germany is much too weak even when supported by allies to fight the world. The arrogance of the Pan-Germans and of the Nazis was founded upon the vain hope that they would be able to fight each foreign nation as an isolated enemy in a sequence of successful wars. They did not consider the possibility of a united front of the menaced nations. Bismarck succeeded because he was able to fight first Austria and then France, while the rest of the world kept its neutrality. He was wise enough to realize that this was due to extraordinarily fortunate circumstances. He did not expect that fate would always favor his country in the same way. And he freely admitted that the cauchemar de Collichon disturbed his sleep. The Pan-Germans were less cautious. But in 1914, the coalition which Bismarck had feared became a fact. And so it is again today. Germany did not learn the lesson taught by the First World War. We shall see later, in the chapter dealing with the role of anti-Semitism, what ruse the Nazis used to disguise the meaning of this lesson. The Nazis are convinced that they must finally conquer because they have freed themselves from the chains of morality and humanity. Thus they argue, if we conquer, this war will be the last one, and we will establish our hegemony forever. For when we are victorious, we will exterminate our foes, so that a later war of revenge or a rebellion of the subdued will be impossible. But if the British and the Americans conquer, they will grant us a passable peace. As they feel themselves bound by moral law, divine commandments, and other nonsense, they will impose on us a new Versailles, maybe something better or something worse, at any rate not extermination, but a treaty which will enable us to renew the fighting after some lapse of time. Thus we will fight again and again until one day we will have reached our goal, the radical extermination of our foes. Let us assume for the sake of argument that the Nazis succeeded and that they impose on the world what they call a German peace. Will the satisfactory functioning of the German state be possible in such a world, whose moral foundations are not mutual understanding but oppression? 
Where the principles of violence and tyranny are supreme, there will always be some groups eager to gain advantage from the subjugation of the rest of the nation. Perpetual wars will result among the Germans themselves. The subdued non-German slaves may profit from these troubles in order to free themselves and to exterminate their masters. The moral code of Nazism supported Hitler's endeavors to smash by the weapons of his bands all opposition that his plans encountered in Germany. The stormtroopers are proud of battles fought in beer saloons, assembly halls, and back streets, of assassinations and felonious assaults. Whoever deemed himself strong enough would in the future, too, take recourse to such stratagems. The Nazi code results in endless civil wars. The strongman, say the Nazis, is not only entitled to kill. He has the right to use fraud, lies, defamation, and forgery as legitimate weapons. Every means is right that serves the German nation. But who has to decide what is good for the German nation? To this question, the Nazi philosopher replies quite candidly, Right and noble are what I and my comrades deem such, are what the sound feelings of the people, das gesunde Volksempfinden, hold good, right, and fair. But whose feelings are sound and whose unsound? About that matter, say the Nazis, there can be no dispute between genuine Germans. But who is a genuine German? Whose thoughts and feelings are genuinely German and whose are not? Whose ideas are German ones? Those of Lessing, Goethe, and Schiller? or those of Hitler and Goebbels? Was Kant, who wanted eternal peace, genuinely German? Or are Spengler, Rosenberg, and Hitler, who call pacifism the meanest of all ideas, genuine Germans? There is dissension among men to whom the Nazis themselves do not deny the Appalachian German. The Nazis try to escape from this dilemma by admitting that there are some Germans who unfortunately have un-German ideas. But if a German does not always necessarily think and feel in a correct German way, who is to decide which Germans' ideas are German and which un-German? It is obvious that the Nazis are moving in a circle. Since they abhor as manifestly un-German decision by majority vote, the conclusion is inescapable that according to them, German is whatever those who have succeeded in civil war consider to be German. Nazism and German Philosophy It has been asserted again and again that Nazism is the logical outcome of German idealistic philosophy. This, too, is an error. German philosophical ideas played an important role in the evolution of Nazism, but the character and extent of these influences have been grossly misrepresented. Kant's moral teachings and his concept of the categorical imperative have nothing at all to do with Prussianism or with Nazism. The categorical imperative is not the philosophical equivalent of the regulations of the Prussian military code. It was not one of the merits of old Prussia that, in a far distant little town, a man like Kant occupied a chair of philosophy. Frederick the Great did not care a whit for his great subject. He did not invite him to his philosophical breakfast table whose shining stars were the Frenchman Voltaire and Alembert. The concern of his successor, Frederick William II, was to threaten Kant with dismissal if he were once more insolent enough to write about religious matters. Kant submitted, It is nonsensical to consider Kant a precursor of Nazism. Kant advocated eternal peace between nations. The Nazis praise war as the eternal shape of higher human existence, and their ideal is to live always in a state of war. The popularity of the opinion that German nationalism is the outcome of the ideas of German philosophy is mainly due to the authority of George Santayana. However, Santayana admits that what he calls German philosophy is not identical with philosophy in Germany, and that the majority of intelligent Germans held views which German philosophy proper must entirely despise.
On the other hand, Santayana declares that the first principle of German philosophy is borrowed indeed from non-Germans. Now, if this nefarious philosophy is neither of German origin nor the opinion held by the majority of intelligent Germans, Santayana's statements shrink to the establishment of the fact that some German philosophers adhere to teachings first developed by non-Germans and rejected by the majority of intelligent Germans, in which Santayana believes he has discovered the intellectual roots of Nazism. But he does not explain why these ideas, although foreign to Germany and contrary to the convictions of its majority, have begotten Nazism just in Germany and not in other countries. Then again, speaking of Fichte and Hegel, he says, theirs is a revealed philosophy. It is the heir of Judaism. It could never have been founded by free observation of life and nature, like the philosophy of Greece or of the Renaissance. It is Protestant theology rationalized. Exactly the same could be said with no less justification of the philosophy of many British and American philosophers. According to Santayana, the main source of German nationalism is egotism. Egotism should not be confused with the natural egoism or self-assertion proper to every living creature. Egotism assumes, if it does not assert, that the source of one's being and power lies in oneself, that will and logic are by right omnipotent, and that nothing should control the mind or the conscience except the mind or the conscience itself. But egotism, if we are prepared to use the term as defined above by Santayana, is the starting point of the utilitarian philosophy of Adam Smith, Ricardo, Bentham, and the two Mills, father and son. Yet these British scholars did not derive from their first principal conclusions of a Nazi character. Theirs is a philosophy of liberalism, democratic government, social cooperation, goodwill, and peace among nations. Neither egoism nor egotism is the essential feature of German nationalism, but rather its ideas concerning the means through which the supreme good is to be attained. German nationalists are convinced that there is an insoluble conflict between the interests of the individual nations and those of a world-embracing community of all nations. This also is not an idea of German origin. It is a very old opinion. It prevailed up to the Age of Enlightenment, when the above-mentioned British philosophers developed the fundamentally new concept of the harmony of the, rightly understood, interests of all individuals and of all nations, peoples, and races. As late as 1764, no less a man than Voltaire could blithely say in the article Fatherland of his Dictionary of Philosophy, To be a good patriot means to wish that one's own community shall acquire riches through trade and power through its arms. It is obvious that a country cannot profit but by the disadvantage of another country, and cannot be victorious but by making other peoples miserable. This identification of the effects of peaceful human cooperation and the mutual exchange of commodities and services with the effects of war and destruction is the main vice of the Nazi doctrines. Nazism is neither simple egoism nor simple egotism. It is misguided egoism and egotism. It is a relapse into errors long ago refuted, a return to mercantilism and a revival of ideas described as militarism by Herbert Spencer. It is, in short, the abandonment of the liberal philosophy, today generally despised as the philosophy of Manchester and laissez-faire. And its ideas are, in this respect, unfortunately not limited to Germany. The contribution of German philosophy to the ascendancy of Nazi ideas had a character very different from that generally ascribed to it. German philosophy always rejected the teachings of utilitarian ethics and the sociology of human cooperation. German political science never grasped the meaning of social cooperation and division of labor. 
With the exception of Feuerbach, all German philosophers scorned utilitarianism as a mean system of ethics. For them, the basis of ethics was intuition. A mystical voice in his soul makes man know what is right and what is wrong. The moral law is a restraint imposed upon men for the sake of other people's or society's interests. They did not realize that each individual serves his own, rightly understood, i.e. long-run, interests better by complying with the moral code and by displaying attitudes which further society than by indulging in activities detrimental to society. Thus, they never understood the theory of the harmony of interests and the merely temporary character of the sacrifice which man makes in renouncing some immediate gain, lest he endanger the existence of society. In their eyes, there is an insoluble conflict between the individual's aims and those of society. They did not see that the individual must practice morality for his own, not for somebody else's or for the state's or society's welfare. The ethics of the German philosophers are heteronomous. Some mystical entity orders man to behave morally, that is, to renounce his selfishness for the advantage of a higher, nobler, and more powerful being, society. Whoever does not understand that the moral laws serve the interests of all, and that there is no insoluble conflict between private and social interests, is also incapable of understanding that there is no insoluble conflict between the different collective entities. The logical outcome of his philosophy is the belief in an irremediable antagonism between the interests of every nation and the whole of human society. Man must choose between allegiance to his nation and allegiance to humanity. Whatever best serves the great international society is detrimental to every nation and vice versa. But, adds the nationalist philosopher, only the nations are true collective entities, while the concept of a great human society is illusory. The concept of humanity was a devilish brew concocted by the Jewish founders of Christianity and of Western and Jewish utilitarian philosophy in order to debilitate the Aryan master race. The first principle of morality is to serve one's own nation. Right is whatever best serves the German nation. This implies that right is whatever is detrimental to the races that stubbornly resist Germany's aspirations for world domination. This is very fragile reasoning. It is not difficult to expose its fallacies. The Nazi philosophers are fully aware that they are unable logically to refute the teachings of liberal philosophy, economics, and sociology, and thus they resort to polylogism. Part 6. Polylogism The Nazis did not invent polylogism. They only developed their own brand. Until the middle of the 19th century, no one ventured to dispute the fact that the logical structure of mind is unchangeable and common to all human beings. All human interrelations are based on this assumption of a uniform logical structure. We can speak to each other only because we can appeal to something common to all of us, namely the logical structure of reason. Some men can think deeper and more refined thoughts than others. There are men who unfortunately cannot grasp a process of inference in long chains of deductive reasoning. But as far as man is able to think and to follow a process of discursive thought, he always clings to the same ultimate principles of reasoning that are applied by all other men. There are people who cannot count further than three, but their counting, as far as it goes, does not differ from that of Gauss or Laplace. No historian or traveler has ever brought us any knowledge of people for whom A and non-A were identical, or who could not grasp the difference between affirmation and negation. Daily it is true people violate logical principles in reasoning. But whoever examines their inferences competently can uncover their errors. Because everyone takes these facts to be unquestionable, men enter into discussions. They speak to each other. They write letters and books. They try to prove or to disprove. 
social and intellectual cooperation between men would be impossible if this were not so. Our minds cannot even consistently imagine a world peopled by men of different logical structures or a logical structure different from our own. Yet in the course of the 19th century, this undeniable fact has been contested. Marx and the Marxians, foremost among them, the proletarian philosopher Dietzkin, taught that thought is determined by the thinker's class position. What thinking produces is not truth but ideologies. This word means, in the context of Marxian philosophy, a disguise of the selfish interests of the social class to which the thinking individual is attached. It is therefore useless to discuss anything with people of another social class. Ideologies do not need to be refuted by discursive reasoning. They must be unmasked by denouncing the class position, the social background of their authors. Thus, Marxians do not discuss the merits of physical theories. They merely uncover the bourgeois origin of the physicists. The Marxians have resorted to polylogism because they could not refute by logical methods the theories developed by bourgeois economics, or the inferences drawn from these theories demonstrating the impracticability of socialism. As they could not rationally demonstrate the soundness of their own ideas or the unsoundness of their adversaries' ideas, they have denounced the accepted logical methods. The success of this Marxian stratagem was unprecedented. It has rendered proof against any reasonable criticism all the absurdities of Marxian would-be economics and would-be sociology. Only by the logical tricks of polylogism could etaism gain a hold in the modern mind. Polylogism is so inherently nonsensical that it cannot be carried consistently to its ultimate logical consequences. No Marxian was bold enough to draw all the conclusions that his own epistemological viewpoint would require. The principle of polylogism would lead to the inference that Marxian teachings also are not objectively true, but are only ideological statements. But the Marxians deny it. They claim for their own doctrines the character of absolute truth. Thus, Dietzgen teaches that the ideas of proletarian logic are not party ideas but the outcome of logic pure and simple. The proletarian logic is not ideology but absolute logic. Present-day Marxians who label their teachings the sociology of knowledge give proof of the same inconsistency. One of their champions, Professor Mannheim, tries to demonstrate that there exists a group of men, the unattached intellectuals, who are equipped with the gift of grasping truth without falling prey to ideological errors. Of course, Professor Mannheim is convinced that he is the foremost of these unattached intellectuals. You simply cannot refute him. If you disagree with him, you only prove thereby that you yourself are not one of this elite of unattached intellectuals, and that your utterances are ideological nonsense. The German nationalists had to face precisely the same problem as the Marxians. They also could neither demonstrate the correctness of their own statements nor disprove the theories of economics and praxeology. Thus they took shelter under the roof of polylogism, prepared for them by the Marxians. Of course, they concocted their own brand of polylogism. The logical structure of mind, they say, is different with different nations and races. Every race or nation has its own logic and therefore its own economics, mathematics, physics, and so on. But no less inconsistently than Professor Mannheim, Professor Tirala, his counterpart as champion of Aryan epistemology, declares that the only true, correct, and perennial logic and science are those of the Aryans. In the eyes of the Marxians, Ricardo, Freud, Bergson, and Einstein are wrong because they are bourgeois. In the eyes of the Nazis, they are wrong because they are Jews. One of the foremost goals of the Nazis is to free the Aryan soul from the pollution of the Western philosophies of Descartes, Hume, and John Stuart Mill. They are in search of Artigan, 
German science, that is, of a science adequate to the racial character of the Germans. We may reasonably assume as hypothesis that man's mental abilities are the outcome of his bodily features. Of course, we cannot demonstrate the correctness of this hypothesis, but neither is it possible to demonstrate the correctness of the opposite view as expressed in the theological hypothesis. We are forced to recognize that we do not know how out of physiological processes thoughts result. We have some vague notions of the detrimental effects produced by traumatic or other damage inflicted on certain bodily organs. We know that such damage may restrict or completely destroy the mental abilities and functions of men. But that is all. It would be no less than insolent humbug to assert that the natural sciences provide us with any information concerning the alleged diversity of the logical structure of the mind. Polylogism cannot be derived from physiology or anatomy or any other of the natural sciences. Neither Marxian nor Nazi polylogism ever went further than to declare that the logical structure of mind is different with various classes or races. They never ventured to demonstrate precisely in what logic of the proletarians differs from the logic of the bourgeois, or in what the logic of the Aryans differs from the logic of the Jews or the British. It is not enough to reject wholesale the Ricardian theory of comparative cost or the Einstein theory of relativity by unmasking the alleged racial background of their authors. What is wanted is first to develop a system of Aryan logic different from non-Aryan logic. Then it would be necessary to examine point by point these two contested theories and to show where in their reasoning inferences are made, which, although correct from the viewpoint of non-Aryan logic, are invalid from the viewpoint of Aryan logic. And finally, it should be explained what kind of conclusions the replacement of the non-Aryan inferences by the correct Aryan inferences must lead to. But all this never has been and never can be ventured by anybody. The garrulous champion of racism and Aryan polylogism, Professor Tarala, does not say a word about the difference between Aryan and non-Aryan logic. Polylogism, whether Marxian or Aryan, or whatever, has never entered into details. Polylogism has a peculiar method of dealing with dissenting views. If its supporters fail to unmask the background of an opponent, they simply brand him a traitor. Both Marxians and Nazis know only two categories of adversaries. The aliens, whether members of a non-proletarian class or of a non-Aryan race, are wrong because they are aliens. The opponents of proletarian or Aryan origin are wrong because they are traitors. Thus they lightly dispose of the unpleasant fact that there is dissension among the members of what they call their own class or race. The Nazis contrast German economics with Jewish and Anglo-Saxon economics. But what they call German economics differs not at all from some trends in foreign economics. It developed out of the teachings of the Genovese Sismondi and of the French and British socialists. Some of the older representatives of this alleged German economics merely imported foreign thought into Germany. Frederick List brought the ideas of Alexander Hamilton to Germany. Hildebrand and Brentano brought the ideas of early British socialism. Artigine German economics is almost identical with contemporary trends in other countries, example with American institutionalism. On the other hand, what the Nazis call Western economics and therefore Artfremd is to a great extent an achievement of men to whom even the Nazis cannot deny the term German. Nazi economists wasted much time in searching the genealogical tree of Karl Menger for Jewish ancestors. They did not succeed. It is nonsensical to explain the conflict between economic theory on the one hand and institutionalism and historical empiricism on the other hand as a racial or national conflict. Polylogism is not a philosophy or an epistemological theory. 
It is an attitude of narrow-minded fanatics who cannot imagine that anybody could be more reasonable or more clever than they themselves. Nor is polylogism scientific. It is rather the replacement of reasoning and science by superstitions. It is the characteristic mentality of an age of chaos. Part 7. Pan-Germanism and Nazism The essential ideas of Nazism were developed by the Pan-Germans and the socialists of the chair in the last 30 years of the 19th century. The system was completed long before the outbreak of the First World War. Nothing was lacking and nothing but a new name was added later. The plans and policies of the Nazis differ from those of their predecessors in Imperial Germany, only in the fact that they are adapted to a different constellation of political conditions. The ultimate aim, German world hegemony, and the means for its attainment, conquest, have not changed. One of the most curious facts of modern history is that the foreigners for whom this German nationalism was a menace did not sooner become aware of the danger. A few Englishmen saw through it, but they were laughed at. To Anglo-Saxon common sense, the Nazi plans seem too fantastic to be taken seriously. Englishmen, Americans, and Frenchmen seldom have a satisfactory command of the German language. They do not read German books and newspapers. English politicians who had visited Germany as tourists and had met German statesmen were regarded by their fellow countrymen as experts on German problems. Englishmen who had once attended a ball at the court in Berlin or dined in the officers' mess of a Potsdam regiment of the Royal Guards came home with the glad tidings that Germany is peace-loving and a good friend of Great Britain. Proud of their knowledge acquired on the spot, they arrogantly dismissed the holders of dissenting views as theorists and pedantic doctrinaires. King Edward VIII, himself the son of a German father and of a mother whose German family did not assimilate itself to British life, was highly suspicious of the challenging attitudes of his nephew, William II. It was to the king's credit that Great Britain, almost too late, turned toward a policy of defense and of cooperation with France and Russia. But even then the British did not realize that not the Kaiser alone, but almost the whole German nation was eager for conquest. President Wilson labored under the same mistake. He too believed that the court and the junkers were the instigators of the aggressive policy and that the people were peace-loving. Similar errors prevail today. Misled by Marxian prejudices, people cling to the opinion that the Nazis are a comparatively small group which has, through fraud and violence, imposed its yoke on the reluctant masses. They do not understand that the internal struggles which shook Germany were disputes among people who were unanimous in regard to the ultimate ends of German foreign policy. Rathenau, whom the Nazis assassinated, was one of the outstanding literary champions both of German socialism and of German nationalism. Stressman, who the Nazis disparaged as pro-Western, was in the years of the First World War one of the most radical advocates of the so-called German peace i.e. the annexation of huge territories at both western and eastern borders of the Reich. His Locarno policy was a makeshift devised to give Germany a free hand in the east. If the communists had seized power in Germany, they would not have adopted a less aggressive policy than the Nazis did. Strasser, Rochsching, and Hugenberg were personal rivals of Hitler, not opponents of German nationalism. Section 7. The Social Democrats in Imperial Germany Part 1. The Legend Knowledge concerning Germany and the evolution and present-day actions of Nazism is obscured by the legends about the German Social Democrats. The older legend, developed before 1914, runs like this. The German bourgeoisie have betrayed freedom to German militarism. They have taken refuge with the imperial government in order to preserve, through the protection of the Prussian army, their position as an exploiting class, which was menaced by the fair claims of labor. But the cause of democracy and freedom, which the bourgeois have deserted, 
has found new advocates in the proletarians. The Social Democrats are gallantly fighting Prussian militarism. The emperor and his aristocratic officers are eager to preserve feudalism. The bankers and industrialists who profit from armaments have hired corrupt writers in order to spread a nationalist ideology and to make the world believe that Germany is united in nationalism. But the proletarians cannot be deceived by the nationalist hirelings of big business. Thanks to the education that they got from the Social Democrats, they see through this fraud. Millions vote the socialist ticket and return to parliament members fearlessly opposing militarism. The Kaiser and his generals arm for war, but they fail to take account of the people's strength and resolution. There are the 110 socialist members of parliament. Behind them are millions of workers organized in the trade unions who vote for the Social Democrats, in addition to other voters who, although not registered members of the party, also vote its ticket. They all combat nationalism. They stand with the Second International Working Men's Association and are firmly resolved to oppose war at all costs. These truly democratic and pacifist men can be relied upon without hesitation. They, the workers, are the deciding factor, not the exploiters and parasites, the industrialists and junkers. The personalities of the social democratic leaders were well known all over the world. The public listened whenever they addressed the Reichstag or party congresses. Their books were translated into nearly every language and read everywhere. Led by such men, mankind seemed to be marching toward a better future. Legends die hard. They blind the eyes and close the mind against criticism or experience. It was in vain that Robert Michaels and Charles Andler tried to give a more realistic picture of German social democrats. Not even the later events of the First World War shattered these illusions. To the old legend, instead, a new one was added. The new legend goes, Before the outbreak of the First World War, the party's great old men, Bebel and Liebknecht, unfortunately died. Their successors, mainly intellectuals and other professional politicians of non-proletarian background, betrayed the party's principles. They cooperated with the Kaiser's policy of aggression, but the workers who in their capacity as proletarians naturally and necessarily were socialist, democratic, revolutionary, and internationally minded, deserted these traitors and replaced them by new leaders. Old Liebknecht's son Karl and Rosa Luxemburg the workers, not their old dishonest leaders, made the revolution of 1918 and dethroned the Kaiser and other German princes. But the capitalists and the junkers did not give up the game. The treacherous party leaders, Noska, Ebert, and Scheidermann, aided them. For 14 long years, the workers fought a life-and-death struggle for democracy and freedom. But again and again, betrayed by their own leaders, they were doomed to fail. The capitalists concocted a satanic scheme which finally brought them victory. Their armed gangs seized power, and now Adolf Hitler, the puppet of big business and finance, rules the country. But the masses despise this wretched hireling. They yield unwillingly to the terrorism which has overpowered them, and they gallantly prepare the new decisive rebellion. The day of victory for genuine proletarian communism. The day of liberation is already dawning. Every word of these legends distorts the truth. Part 2. Marxism and the Labor Movement Karl Marx turned to socialism at a time when he did not yet know economics and because he did not know it. Later, when the failure of the revolution of 1848 and 1849 forced him to flee Germany, he went to London. There, in the reading room of the British Museum, he discovered in the 50s not, as he boasted, the law of capitalist evolution, but the writings of British political economy, the reports published by the British government, and the pamphlets in which earlier British socialists use the theory of value as expounded by classical economics for a moral justification of labor's claims. These were the materials out of which Marx built his Economic Foundations of Socialism. 
Before he moved to London, Marx had quite naively advocated a program of interventionism. In the Communist Manifesto in 1847, he expounded ten measures for imminent action. These points, which are described as pretty generally applicable in the most advanced countries, are defined as despotic inroads on the rights of property and on the conditions of bourgeois methods of production. Marx and Engels characterized them as measures economically unsatisfactory and untenable, but which in the course of events outstrip themselves, necessitate further inroads upon the old social order, and are indispensable as a means of entirely revolutionizing the whole mode of production. Eight of these ten points have been executed by the German Nazis with a radicalism that would have delighted Marx. The two remaining suggestions, namely expropriation of private property in land and dedication of all rents of land to public expenditure, and abolition of all right of inheritance, have not yet been fully adopted by the Nazis. However, their methods of taxation, their agricultural planning, and their policies concerning rent restrictions are daily approaching the goals determined by Marx. The authors of the Communist Manifesto aimed at a step-by-step -step realization of socialism by measures of social reform. They were thus recommending procedures which Marx and the Marxians in later years branded as socio-reformist fraud. In London, in the 50s, Marx learned very different ideas. The study of British political economy taught him that such acts of intervention in the operation of the market would not serve their purpose. From then on, he dismissed such acts as petty bourgeois nonsense, which stemmed from ignorance of the laws of capitalist evolution. Class-conscious proletarians are not to base their hopes on such reforms. They are not to hinder the evolution of capitalism as the narrow-minded petty bourgeois want to. The proletarians, on the contrary, should hail every step of progress in the capitalist system of production. For socialism will not replace capitalism until capitalism has reached its full maturity, the highest stage of its own evolution. No social system ever disappears before all the productive forces are developed, for the development of which it is broad enough, and new higher methods of production never appear before the material conditions of their existence have been hatched out in the womb of the previous society. Therefore, there is but one road toward the collapse of capitalism i.e. the progressive evolution of capitalism itself. Socialization through the expropriation of capitalists is a process which executes itself through the operation of the inherent laws of capitalist production. Then, the knell of capitalistic private property sounds. Socialism dawns and ends the primeval history of human society. From this viewpoint, it is not only the endeavors of social reformers eager to restrain, to regulate, and to improve capitalism that must be deemed vain. No less contrary to purpose appear the plans of the workers themselves to raise wage rates and their standard of living through unionization and through strikes within the framework of capitalism. The very development of modern industry must progressively turn the scales in favor of the capitalist against the working men, and consequently the general tendency of capitalist production is not to raise but to sink the average standard of wages. Such being the tendency of things within the capitalist system, the most that trade unionism can attempt is to make the best of the occasional chances for their temporary improvement. Trade unions ought to understand that and to change their policies entirely. Instead of the conservative motto, a fair day's wages for a fair day's work, they ought to inscribe on their banner the revolutionary watchword, abolition of the wages system. These Marxian ideas might impress some Hegelians steeped in dialectics. Such doctrinaires were prepared to believe that capitalist production begets with the inexorability of a law of nature its own negation, as negation of negation, and to wait until, with the change of the economic basis, 
the whole immense superstructure will have more or less rapidly accomplished its revolution. A political movement for the seizure of power as Marx envisaged it could not be built up on such beliefs. Workers could not be made supporters of them. It was hopeless to look for cooperation on the ground of such views from the labor movement, which did not have to be inaugurated, but was already in existence. This labor movement was essentially a trade union movement. Fully impregnated with ideas branded as petty bourgeois by Marx, unionized labor sought higher wage rates and fewer hours of work. It demanded labor legislation, price control of consumers' goods, and rent restriction. The workers sympathized not with Marxian teachings and the recipes derived from them, but with the program of the interventionists and the social reformers. They were not prepared to renounce their plans and wait quietly for the far distant day when capitalism was bound to turn into socialism. These workers were pleased when the Marxian propagandists explained to them that the inevitable laws of social evolution had destined them for greater things, that they were chosen to replace the rotten parasites of capitalistic society, that the future was theirs. But they wanted to live for their own day, not for a distant future, and they asked for an immediate payment on account of their future inheritance. The Marxians had to choose between a rigid, uncompromising adherence to their master's teaching and an accommodating adaptation to the point of view of the workers, who could provide them with honors, power, influence, and, last but not least, with a nice income. They could not resist the latter temptation and yielded. They kept on discussing Marxian dialectics in the midst of their own circles. Marxism, moreover, had an esoteric character, but out in the open they talked and wrote in a different way. They headed the labor movement for which wage raises, labor legislation, and social insurance provisions were of greater importance than sophisticated discussions concerning the riddle of the average rate of profit. They organized consumers' cooperatives and housing societies. They backed all the anti-capitalist policies which they stigmatized in their Marxian writings as petty bourgeois issues. They did everything that their Marxian theories denounced as nonsense, and they were prepared to sacrifice all the principles and convictions if some gain at the next election campaign could be expected from such a sacrifice. They were implacable doctrinaires in their esoteric books and unprincipled opportunists in their political activities. The German Social Democrats developed this double-dealing into a perfect system. There was, on the one side, the very narrow circle of initiated Marxians, whose task it was to watch over the purity of the orthodox creed and to justify the party's political actions, incompatible with these creeds, by some paralogisms and fallacious inferences. After the death of Marx, Engels was the authentic interpreter of Marxian thought. With the death of Engels, Kautsky inherited this authority. He who deviated an inch from the correct dogma had to recant submissively or face pitiless exclusion from the party's ranks. For all those who did not live on their own funds, such an exclusion meant the loss of the source of income. On the other hand, there was the huge, daily increasing body of party bureaucrats, busy with the political activities of the labor movement. For these men, the Marxian phraseology was only an adornment to their propaganda. They did not care a whit for historical materialism or for the theory of value. They were interventionists and reformers. They did whatever would make them popular with the masses, their employers. This opportunism was extremely successful. Membership figures and contributions to the party, its trade unions, cooperatives, and other associations increased steadily. The party became a powerful body with a large budget and thousands of employees. It controlled newspapers, publishing houses, printing offices, assembly halls, boarding houses, cooperatives, and plants to supply the needs of the cooperatives. It ran a school for the education of the rising generation of party executives. 
it was the most important agency in the Reich's political structure and was paramount in the Second International Working Men's Association. It was a serious mistake not to perceive this dualism, which housed under the same roof two radically different principles and tendencies, incompatible and incapable of being welded together. For it was the most characteristic feature of the German Social Democratic Party and of all parties formed abroad after its model. The very small groups of zealous Marxians, probably never more than a few hundred persons in the whole Reich, were completely segregated from the rest of the party membership. They communicated with their foreign friends, especially with the Austrian Marxians, the Austro-Marxian doctrinaires, the exiled Russian revolutionaries, and with some Italian groups. In the Anglo-Saxon countries, Marxism in those days was practically unknown. With the daily political activities of the party, these orthodox Marxians had little in common. Their points of view and their feelings were strange, even disgusting, not only to the masses, but also to many party bureaucrats. The millions voting the Social Democratic ticket paid no attention to these endless theoretical discussions concerning the concentration of capital, the collapse of capitalism, finance capital and imperialism, and the relations between Marxian materialism and Kantian criticism. They tolerated this pedantic clan because they saw that they impressed and frightened the bourgeois world of statesmen, entrepreneurs, and clergymen, and that the government-appointed university professors, that German Brahmin caste, took them seriously and wrote voluminous works about Marxism. But they went their own way and let the learned doctors go theirs. Much has been said concerning the alleged fundamental difference between the German labor movement and the British, but it is not recognized that a great many of these differences were of an accidental and external character only. Both labor parties desired socialism. Both wanted to attain socialism gradually by reforms within the framework of capitalist society. Both labor movements were essentially trade union movements. For German labor in the Imperial Reich, Marxism was only an ornament. The Marxians were a small group of literati. The antagonism between the Marxian philosophy and that of labor organized in the Social Democratic Party and its affiliated trade unions became crucial the instant the party had to face new problems. The artificial compromise between Marxism and labor interventionism broke down when the conflict between doctrine and policy spread into fields which up to that moment had no practical significance. The war put the party's alleged internationalism to the test, as the events of the post-war period did its alleged democratic tendencies and its program of socialization. Part 3. The German Workers and the German State For an understanding of the role played by the social democratic labor movement within Imperial Germany, a correct conception of the essential features of trade unionism and its methods is indispensable. The problem is usually dealt with from the viewpoint of the right of workers to associate with one another. But this is not at all the question. No liberal government has ever denied anybody the right to form associations. Furthermore, it does not matter whether the laws grant or do not grant the employees and wage earners the right to break contracts ad libitum. For even if the workers are legally liable to indemnify the employer concerned, practical expediency renders the claims of the employer worthless. The chief method which trade unions can and do apply for the attainment of their aims, more favorable terms for labor, is the strike. At this point of our inquiry, we do not need to discuss again whether trade unions can ever succeed in raising wages, lastingly and for all workers, above the rates fixed by the unhampered market. We need merely mention the fact that economic theory, both the old classic theory, including its Marxian wing, and the modern, including its socialist wing, categorically answers this question in the negative. 
We are here concerned only with the problem of what kind of weapon trade unions employ in their dealings with employers. The fact is that all their collective bargaining is conducted under the threat of a suspension of labor. Union spokesmen argue that a yellow or company union is a spurious union because it objects to recourse to strike. If the labor unions were not to threaten the employer with a strike, their collective bargaining would succeed no better than the individual bargaining of each worker. But a strike may be frustrated by the refusal of some of the workers to join it, or the entrepreneurs employing strike breakers. The trade unions use intimidation and coercion against everyone who tries to oppose the strikers. They resort to acts of violence against the persons and property of both strike breakers and entrepreneurs, or executives who try to employ strike breakers. In the course of the 19th century, the workers of all countries achieved this privilege, not so much by explicit legislative sanction, as by the accommodating attitudes of the police and the courts. Public opinion has espoused the union's cause. It has approved strikes, stigmatized strike breakers as treacherous scoundrels, approved the punishment inflicted by organized labor on reluctant employers and on strike breakers, and reacted strongly when the authorities tried to interfere to protect the assaulted. A man who ventures to oppose trade unions has been practically an outlaw, to whom the protection of the government is denied. A law of custom has been firmly established that entitles trade unions to resort to coercion and violence. This resignation on the part of the governments has been less conspicuous in the Anglo-Saxon countries, where custom always allowed a wider field for the individual's redress of his private grievances, than in Prussia and the rest of Germany, where the police were almighty and accustomed to interfere in every sphere of life. Woe to anybody who in the realm of the Hohenzollerns was found guilty of the slightest infraction of one of the innumerable decrees and verboten. The police were busy interfering and the courts pronounced draconic sentences. Only three kinds of infringements were tolerated. Dueling, although prohibited by the penal code, was practically free within certain limits to commissioned officers, university students, and men of that social rank. The police also connived when drunken members of smart university students' clubs kicked up a row, disturbed quiet people, and took their pleasures in other kinds of disorderly conduct. Of incomparably greater importance, however, was the indulgence granted to the excesses usually connected with strikes. Within a certain sphere, the violent action of strikers was tolerated. It is in the nature of every application of violence that it tends towards a transgression of the limit within which it is tolerated and viewed as legitimate. Even the best discipline cannot always prevent police officers from striking harder than circumstances require, or prison wardens from inflicting brutalities on inmates. Only formalists, cut off from reality, fall into the illusion that fighting soldiers can be induced to observe the rules of warfare strictly. Even if the field customarily assigned for the violent action of trade unions had been limited in a more precise manner, transgressions would have occurred. The attempt to put boundaries around this special privilege has led again and again to conflicts between officials and strikers. And because the authorities time and again could not help interfering, sometimes even with the use of weapons, the illusion spread that the government was assisting the employers. For that reason, the public's attention has been diverted from the fact that employers and strike breakers were within broad limits at the mercy of the strikers. Wherever there was a strike, there was within certain limits no longer any government protection for the opponents of the trade unions. Thus, the unions became, in effect, a public agency entitled to use violence to enforce their ends, as were later the pogrom gangs in Tsarist Russia and the stormtroopers in Nazi Germany. That the German government granted these privileges to the trade unions became of the highest importance in the course of German affairs. 
Thus, from the 1870s on, successful strikes became possible. There had been some strikes, it is true, before then in Prussia. But at that time, conditions were different. The employers could not find strikebreakers in the neighborhood of plants located in small places, and the backward state of transportation facilities, the laws restricting freedom of migration within the country, and lack of information about labor market conditions in other districts prevented them from hiring workers from distant points. When these circumstances changed, strikes could only be successful when supported by threats, violence, and intimidation. The imperial government never seriously considered altering its pro-union policy. In 1899, seemingly yielding to the demands of the employers and non-unionized workers, it brought up in the Reichstag a bill for the protection of non-strikers. This was merely a deception. For the lack of protection of those ready to work was not due to the inadequacy or defectiveness of the existing penal code, but to the purposeful neglect of the valid laws on the part of the police and other authorities. Neither the laws nor the rulings of the courts played any real role in this matter. As the police did not interfere and the state's attorneys did not prosecute, the laws were not enforced and the tribunals had no opportunity to pass judgment. Only when the trade unions transgressed the actual limits drawn by the police could a case be brought to the tribunals. The government was firmly resolved not to change this state of affairs. It was not eager to induce Parliament to agree to the proposed bill, and Parliament, in fact, rejected it. If the government had taken the bill seriously, Parliament would have proceeded quite differently. The German government knew very well how to make the Reichstag yield to its wishes. The outstanding fact in modern German history was the imperial government's entering into a virtual alliance and factual political cooperation with all groups hostile to capitalism, free trade, and an unhampered market economy. Hohenzollern militarism tried to fight bourgeois liberalism and plutocratic parliamentarism by associating with the pressure groups of labor, farming, and small business. It aimed at substituting for what it called a system of unfair exploitation, government interference with business, and at a later stage, all-round national planning. The ideological and speculative foundations of this system were laid down by the socialists of the chair, a group of professors monopolizing the departments of the social sciences at the German universities. These men, whose tenets were almost identical with those later held by the British Fabians and the American institutionalists, acted, as it were, as the brain trust of the government. The system itself was called by its supporters Socialpolitik, or Das Sozialkonigtum der Hohenzollern. Neither expression lends itself to literal translation. Perhaps they should be translated as New Deal, for their main features, labor legislation, social security, endeavors to raise the price of agricultural products, encouragement of cooperatives, a sympathetic attitude toward trade unionism, restrictions imposed on stock exchange transactions, heavy taxation of corporations, corresponded to the American policy inaugurated in 1933. The new policy was inaugurated at the end of the 70s and was solemnly advertised in an imperial message of November 17, 1881. It was Bismarck's aim to outdo the Social Democrats in measures beneficial to labor interests. His old-fashioned autocratic inclinations pushed him into a hopeless fight against the Social Democratic leaders. His successors dropped the anti-socialist laws but unswervingly continued the sociopolitik. It was with regard to British policies that Sidney Webb said as early as in 1889. It may now fairly be claimed that the socialist philosophy of today is but the conscious and explicit assertion of principles of social organization, which have been already in great part unconsciously adopted. The economic history of the century is an almost continuous record of the progress of socialism. 
However, in those years, German socialpolitik was far ahead of contemporary British reformism. The German socialists of the chair gloried in the achievements of their country's social progress. They prided themselves on the fact that Germany was paramount in pro-labor policies. It escaped their notice that Germany could eclipse Great Britain in matters of social legislation and trade unionism, only because its protective tariffs and its cartels raised domestic prices above world market prices, while the English still clung to free trade. German real wages did not rise more than the productivity of labor. Neither the government's socialpolitik nor trade union activities, but the evolution of capitalist enterprise caused the improvement in the general standard of living. It was no merit of the government or of trade unions that the entrepreneurs perfected the methods of production and filled the market with more and better goods. The German worker could consume more goods than his father and grandfather because, thanks to the new methods of production, his work was more efficient and produced more and better commodities. But in the eyes of the professors, the fall of mortality figures and the rise in per capita consumption were a proof of the blessings of the Hohenzollern system. They attributed the increase of exports to the fact that Germany was now one of the most powerful nations and that the imperial navy and army made other nations tremble before it. Public opinion was fully convinced that but for the government's interference, the workers would be no better off than they had been 50 or a 100 years earlier. Of course, the workers were prepared to believe that the government was slow to act and that its pro-labor policy could proceed much more quickly. They found in every new measure only an incentive to ask for more. Yet, while criticizing the government for its tardiness, they did not disapprove of the attitude of the Social Democrat members of the Reichstag, who voted against all bills proposed by the government and supported by the bourgeois members. The workers agreed both with the Social Democrats who called every new pro-labor measure an insolent fraud imposed by the bourgeoisie on labor, and with the government-appointed professors who lauded the same measures as the most beneficial achievements of German culture. They were delighted with the steady rise in their standard of living, which they too attributed not to the working of capitalism, but to the activities both of trade unions and of the government. They ventured no attempts at upheaval. They liked the revolutionary phraseology of the social democrats because it frightened the capitalists. But the glory and the splendor of the Reich fascinated them. They were loyal citizens of the Reich, His Majesty's loyal opposition. This allegiance was so firm and unshakable that it stood the test of the laws against the social democrats. These laws were but one link in the long series of blunders committed by Bismarck in his domestic policies. Like Metternich, Bismarck was fully convinced that ideas could be successfully defeated by policemen, but the results obtained were contrary to his intentions. The Social Democrats emerged from the trial of these years no less invigorated than in the 70s, the Center Party and the Catholic Church had emerged from the Kulturkampf, the great anti-Catholic campaign. In the 12 years the anti-socialist laws were in force, 1878-1890, the socialist votes increased considerably. The laws touched only those socialists who took an active part in politics. They did not seriously discommode the trade unions and the masses voting for the socialists. Precisely in those years, the government's pro-labor policy made its greatest steps forward. The government wanted to surpass the socialists. The workers realized that the state was becoming more and more their own state and that it was increasingly backing their fight against the employers. The government-appointed factory inspectors were the living personification of this cooperation. The workers had no reason to be hostile to the state merely because it annoyed the party leaders. The individual party member in the years of the anti-socialist laws punctually and regularly received newspapers and pamphlets smuggled in from Switzerland, 
and read the Reichstag's speeches of the socialist deputies. He was a loyal revolutionary and a somewhat critical and sophisticated monarchist. Marx and the Kaiser both were mistaken in their belief that these quiet fellows thirsted for the prince's blood. But LaSalle had been right when he delineated the future cooperation of the Hohenzollern state and the socialist proletarians. The unconditional loyalty of the proletarians made the army an accommodating tool in the hands of its commanders. Liberalism had shaken the foundations of Prussian absolutism. In the days of its supremacy, the king and his aides no longer trusted the bulk of their army. They knew that this army could not be used against the domestic foe or for wars of undisguised aggression. Socialism and interventionism, the Kaiser's New Deal, had restored the loyalty of the armed forces. Now they could be used for any purpose. The men responsible for the new trends in politics, the statesmen and professors, were fully aware of this. It was just because they strove towards this end that they supported the inauguration of the sociopolitik and asked for its intensification. The officers of the army were convinced that the social democratic soldiers were completely reliable men. The officers disapproved, therefore, of the Kaiser's contemptuous disparagement of the social democrats, just as in earlier years they had disapproved of Bismarck's measures against them, as well as of his anti-Catholic policy. They detested the defiant speeches of the socialist deputies but trusted the social democratic soldier. They themselves hated the wealthy entrepreneurs no less than the workers did. In the days of the anti-socialist campaign in 1889, their lyrical spokesman, Detlev von Lilienkron, admitted it frankly. Junkers and officers were firmly welded into a virtual coalition with labor by the instrument that forges the most solid unions, deadly hatred. When the Social Democrats paraded in the streets, the officers, in plain clothes, looked upon the marching columns and smilingly commented, We ourselves have taught these boys how to march properly. They will do a very good job under our orders when Mobilization Day comes. Later events proved the correctness of these expectations. On August 3, 1914, Reich's Chancellor Bethmann Hallweg received the chairman of all parliamentary party groups at a conference. Comrade Scheidman reports, The Chancellor shook hands with each of us. It seemed to me that he shook my hand in a surprising way, firmly and longly, and when he then said, How do you do, Mr. Scheidman? I felt as if he were giving me to understand. Well, now I hope our traditional squabble is finished for some time. Such were the views of the party's great popular leader on the 50 years of antagonism. Not a historical struggle of the class-conscious proletariat against exploiters and imperialistic warmongers, as the official speakers at party meetings used to declare, but merely a squabble that could be ended by a handshake. Part 4. The Social Democrats Within the German Caste System Capitalism improved the social and economic position of hired labor. From year to year, the number of hands employed in German industries increased. From year to year, the incomes and living standards of labor went up. The workers were more or less contented. Of course, they envied the wealth of the upper middle classes, but not that of the princes and the aristocrats, and they were eager to get more. But looking back to the conditions under which their parents had lived and remembering the experiences of their own childhood, they had to confess that things were, after all, not so bad. Germany was prosperous and the working masses shared its prosperity. There was still much poverty left in Germany. It could hardly be otherwise in a country in which public opinion, government, and almost all political parties were eager to put obstacles in the way of capitalism. The standards of living were unsatisfactory in eastern agriculture, in coal mining, and in some branches of production which failed to adjust their methods to change conditions. But those workers who were not themselves involved were not much concerned about the lot of their less fortunate fellow workers. 
the concept of class solidarity was one of the Marxian illusions. Yet one thing vexed the more prosperous workers just because they were prosperous. In their capacity as wage earners, they had no definite standing in German society. Their new caste lacked recognition by the old established castes. The petty bourgeois, the small traders, shopkeepers and craftsmen, and the numerous class of people holding minor offices in the service of the Reich, of the individual states, and of the municipalities, turned up their noses at them. The incomes of these petty bourgeois were no higher than the workers. Their jobs indeed were often more tedious than the average workers, but they were haughtily and priggish and disdained the wage earners. They were not prepared to admit workers to their bowling circles, to permit them to dance with their daughters or to meet them socially. Worst of all, the burghers would not let the workers join their ex-warriors' associations. On Sundays and on state occasions, these ex-warriors, clad in correct black frock coats, with tall silk hats and black ties, paraded gravely through the main streets, strictly observing the rules of military marching. It distressed the workers very much that they could not participate. They felt ashamed and humiliated. For such grievances, the Social Democratic Organization provided an efficacious remedy. The Social Democrats gave the workers bowling clubs, dances, and outdoor gatherings of their own. There were associations of class-conscious proletarian canary breeders, philatelists, chess players, friends of Esperanto, and so on. There were independent workers' athletics with labor championships, and there were proletarian parades with bands and flags. There were countless committees and conferences. There were chairmen and deputy chairmen, honorary secretaries, honorary treasurers, committee members, shop stewards, wardens, and other party officers. The workers lost their feeling of inferiority and sense of loneliness. They were no longer society's stepchildren. They were firmly integrated into a large community. They were important people burdened with responsibilities and duties. And their official speakers, spectacled scholars with academic degrees, convinced them that they were not only as good but better than the petty bourgeois, a class that was in any event doomed to disappear. What the Social Democrats really achieved was not to implant a revolutionary spirit in the masses, but on the contrary to reconcile them to the German caste system. The workers got a status within the established order of the German clan system. They became a caste by themselves, with all the narrow-mindedness and all the prejudices of a social set. They did not cease to fight for higher wages, shorter hours of work, and lower prices for cereals. But they were no less loyal citizens than the members of those other pressure groups, the farmers and the artisans. It was one of the paradoxical phenomena of Imperial Germany that the social democratic workers used to talk sedition in public while remaining in their hearts perfectly loyal, and that the upper middle class and the professions, although flamboyantly advertising their loyalty to king and fatherland, grumbled in private. One of the main objects of their worry was their relation to the army. The Marxian legends, which have misrepresented every angle of German life, have distorted this too. The bourgeoisie, they say, surrendered to militarism because they were anxious to obtain commissions in the reserve of the armed forces. Not to be an officer in the reserve, it is true, was a serious blow to the honor and reputation of a man of the upper middle class. The civil servants, the professional men, the entrepreneurs, and the business executives who did not achieve this were seriously handicapped in their careers and business activities. But the attainment and maintenance of a commission in the reserve also brought their troubles. It was not the fact that an officer of the reserve was forbidden to be connected in any way with opposition parties that made them complain. The judges and the civil servants were in any case members of the parties backing the government. If they had not been, they would never have received their appointments. The entrepreneurs and the business executives were, by the working of the interventionist system, 
forced to be politically neutral or to join one of the pro-government parties. But there were other difficulties. Governed by junker prejudices, the Army required that in his private life and business, an officer of the Reserve should strictly comply with its own code of gentlemanly conduct. It was not officer-like for an entrepreneur or an executive to do any manual work in his plan, even merely to show a worker how he should perform his task. The son of an entrepreneur who worked for some time at a machine in order to become familiar with the business was not eligible for a commission. Neither was the owner of a big store who occasionally looked after a customer. A lieutenant of the reserve who happened to be an architect of worldwide fame was once reprimanded by his colonel because one day, when supervising the redecoration of the reception room in the town hall of a large city, he had taken off his jacket and personally hung an old painting on the wall. There were men who were distressed because they did not obtain commissions in the reserve, and there were officers who secretly boiled with rage because of the attitude of their superiors. It was, in brief, not a pleasure for a commoner to be an officer of the reserve in the Prussian army. The lower classes, of course, were not familiar with these tribulations of the officers of the reserve. They saw only the insolence with which these men overcompensated their feelings of inferiority. But they observed, too, that the officers, both commissioned and non-commissioned, were eager to harass the so-called one-year men, i.e. the high school graduates who had only one year to serve. They exulted when the officers called the son of their boss names and shouted that, in the ranks of the army, neither education nor wealth, nor one's father's big business made any difference. The social life of the upper middle class was poisoned by the continuous friction between the pretensions of the noble officers and the bourgeoisie. But the civilians were helpless. They had been defeated in their struggle for a reorganization of Germany. Part 5. The Social Democrats and War Marx was not a pacifist. He was a revolutionary. He scorned the wars of emperors and kings, but he worked for the great civil war, in which the united proletarians of the world should fight the exploiters. Like all other utopians of the same brand, he was convinced that this war would be the last one. When the proletarians had conquered and established their everlasting regime, nobody would be in a position to deprive them of the fruits of their victory. In this last war, Engels assigned to himself the role of commander-in-chief. He studied strategy in order to be equal to his task when the day should dawn. This idea of the cooperation of all proletarians in the last struggle for liberation led to the foundation of the first International Working Men's Association in 1864. This association was hardly more than a roundtable of doctrinaires. It never entered the field of political action. Its disappearance from the scene attracted as little notice as had its previous existence. In 1870, two of the five Social Democratic members of the North German Parliament, Bebel and Liebknecht, opposed the war with France. Their attitudes, as the French socialist Hervé observed, were personal gestures which had no consequences and did not meet with any response. The two nations, the Germans and the French, says Hervé, were heart and soul on the battlefields. The internationalists of Paris were the most fanatical supporters of the war to the knife. The Franco-German war was the moral failure of the international. The Second International, founded in Paris in 1889, was an achievement of one of the many international congresses held in cities blessed by a World's Fair. In the 25 years which had passed since the foundation of the First International, the concept of a great world revolution had lost a good deal of its attraction. The new organization's purpose could no longer be presented as coordinating the military operations of the proletarian armies of various countries. Another object had to be found for its activities. This was rather difficult. The labor parties had begun to play a very important role in the domestic policies of their countries. 
They were dealing with innumerable problems of interventionism and economic nationalism and were not prepared to submit their own political tactics to the supervision of foreigners. There were many serious problems in which the conflict of interests between the proletarians or different countries became apparent. It was not always feasible to evade discussion of such annoying matters. Sometimes even immigration barriers had to be discussed. The result was a violent clash of dissenting views and a scandalous exposure of the Marxian dogma that there is an unshakable solidarity among proletarian interests all over the world. The Marxian pundits had some difficulty in tolerably concealing the fissures that had become visible. But one neutral and innocuous subject could be found for the agenda of the international's meetings. Peace. The discussions soon made plain how vain the Marxian catchwords were. At the Paris Congress, Frederick Engels declared that it was the duty of the proletarians to prevent war at all costs until they themselves had seized power in the most important countries. The International discussed various measures in the light of this principle, the general strike, general refusal of military service, railroad sabotage, and so on. But it was impossible not to touch on the problem of whether destroying one's own country's defense system would really serve the interests of the workers. The worker has no fatherland, says the Marxian. He has nothing to lose but his chains. Very well. But is it really of no consequence to the German worker whether he exchanges his German chains for Russian ones? Should the French working man let the Republic fall prey to Prussian militarism? This Third Republic, said the German Social Democrats, is only a Pluto democracy and a counterfeit republic. It is not the French proletarian's business to fight for it. But the French could not be persuaded by such reasoning. They clung to their prejudice against the Hohenzollerns. The Germans took offense at what they called the French stubbornness and petty bourgeois sentiments, although they themselves made it plain that the Social Democrats would unconditionally defend Germany against Russia. Even Bebel had boasted that in a war with Russia, he himself, old fellow as he was, would shoulder a rifle. Engels, in a contribution to the Almanac of the French Workers' Party for 1892, declared, If the French Republic aids His Majesty the Tsar, an autocrat of all the Russias, the German Social Democrats will be sorry to fight them, but they will fight them nevertheless. The request which Engels put in these words to the French was in full agreement with the naive demands of the German nationalists. They too considered it the duty of France to isolate itself diplomatically and either remain neutral in a war between the Triple Alliance and Russia or find itself without allies in a war against Germany. The amount of delusion and insincerity in the dealings of the Second International was really amazing. It is still more astonishing that people followed these loquacious discussions with eager attention and were convinced that the speeches and resolutions were of the highest importance. Only the pro-socialist and pro-Marxian bias of public opinion can explain this phenomenon. Whoever was free from this could easily understand that it was merely idle talk. The oratory of these labor congresses meant no more than the toasts proposed by monarchs at their meetings. The Kaiser and the Tsar, too, used to speak on such occasions of the comradeship and traditional friendship, which linked them and to assure each other that their only concern was the maintenance of peace. Within the Second International, the German Social Democratic Party was paramount. It was the best organized and largest of all socialist parties. Thus, the congresses were an exact replica of conditions within the German party. The delegates were Marxians who interlarded their speeches with quotations from Marx. But the parties which they represented were parties of trade unions, for which internationalism was an empty concept. They profited from economic nationalism. The German workers were biased not only against Russia but also against France and Great Britain. 
the countries of Western capitalism. Like all other Germans, they were convinced that Germany had a fair title to claim British and French colonies. They found no fault with the German-Morocco policy but its lack of success. They criticized the administration of military and naval affairs, but their concern was the armed forces' readiness for war. Like all other Germans, they too viewed the sword as the main tool of foreign policy, and they too were sure that Great Britain and France envied Germany's prosperity and planned aggression. It was a serious mistake not to recognize this militarist mentality of the German masses. On the other hand, too much attention had been paid to the writings of some socialists who, like Schiphol, Hildebrand, and others, proposed that the Social Democrats should openly support the Kaiser's aggressive policy. After all, the Social Democrats were a party of opposition. It was not their job to vote for the government. Their accommodating attitude, however, was effective enough to encourage the nationalist trend of foreign policy. The government was fully aware that the Social Democratic workers would back it in the event of war. About the few Orthodox Marxians the administration leaders were less assured. But they knew very well that a wide gulf separated these doctrinaires from the masses, and they were convinced that the bulk of the party would condone precautionary measures against the Marxian extremists. They ventured, therefore, to imprison several party leaders at the outbreak of the war. Later, they realized that this was needless. But the party's executive committee, badly informed as it had always been, did not even learn that the authorities had changed their minds and that there was nothing to fear from them. Thus, on August 3, 1914, the party chairman Ebert and the treasurer Braun fled to Switzerland with the party's funds. It is nonsense to say that the socialist leaders in voting for war credits betrayed the masses. The masses unanimously approved the Kaiser's war. Even those few members of parliament and editors who dissented were bound to respect the will of the voters. The social democratic soldiers were the most enthusiastic fighters in this war for conquest and hegemony. Later, of course, things changed. The hoped-for victories did not come. Millions of Germans were sacrificed in unsuccessful attacks against the enemy's trenches. Women and children were starving. Then even the trade union members discovered they had been mistaken in considering the war a favorable opportunity to improve their standard of living. The nation became ripe for the propaganda of radicalism. But these radicals did not advocate peace. They wanted to substitute class war, civil war, for the war against the external foe. Section 8. Anti-Semitism and Racism Part 1. The Role of Racism Nazism is frequently regarded as primarily a theory of racism. German chauvinism claims for the Germans a lofty ancestry. They are the scions of the Nordic-Aryan master race, which includes all those who have contributed to the development of human civilization. The Nordic is tall, slim, with fair hair and blue eyes. He is wise, a gallant fighter, heroic, ready to sacrifice, and animated by Faustic ardor. The rest of mankind are trash, little better than apes. For, says Hitler, the gulf which separates the lowest so-called human beings from our most noble races is broader than the gulf between the lowest men and the highest apes. It is obvious that this noble race has a fair claim to world hegemony. In this shape, the Nordic myth serves the national vanity. But political nationalism has nothing in common with chauvinistic self-praise and conceit. The German nationalists do not strive for world domination because they are of noble descent. The German racists do not deny that what they are saying of the Germans could be said with better justification of the Swedes or Norwegians. Nevertheless, they would call these Scandinavians lunatics if they ventured to adopt the policies which they recommend for their own German nation. For the Scandinavians lack both of the conditions which underlie German aggressivism, 
high population figures in a strategically advantageous geographical position. The idiomatic congeniality of the Indo-European languages was once explained on the hypothesis of a common descent of all these peoples. This Aryan hypothesis was scientifically disproved long ago. The Aryan race is an illusion. Scientific anthropology does not recognize this fable. The first Mosaic book tells us that Noah is the ancestor of all men living today. Noah had three sons. From one of them, Shem, stemmed the old Hebrews, the people whom Moses delivered from Egyptian slavery. Judaism teaches that all persons embracing the Jewish religion are the scions of this people. It is impossible to prove the statement. No attempt has ever been made to prove it. There are no historical documents reporting the immigration of Jews from Palestine to Central or Eastern Europe. On the other hand, there are documents available concerning the conversion of European non-Jews to Judaism. Nevertheless, this ancestry hypothesis is widely accepted as an unshakable dogma. The Jews maintain it because it forms an essential teaching of their religion. Others because it can justify a policy of discrimination against Jews. The Jews are called Asiatic strangers because, according to this hypothesis, they immigrated into Europe only some 1,800 years ago. This explains also the use of the term Semites to signify people professing the Jewish religion and their offspring. The term Semitic languages is used in philology to signify the family of languages to which Hebrew, the idiom of the Old Testament, belongs. It is a fact, of course, that Hebrew is the religious language of Judaism as Latin is of Catholicism and Arabic of Islam. For more than a hundred years, anthropologists have studied the bodily features of various races. The undisputed outcome of these scientific investigations is that the people of white skin, Europeans and non-European descendants of emigrated European ancestors, represent a mixture of various bodily characteristics. Men have tried to explain this fact as the result of intermarriage between the members of pure primitive stocks. Whatever the truth of this, it is certain that there are today no pure stocks within the class or race of white skinned people. Further efforts have been made to coordinate certain bodily features, racial characteristics, with certain mental and moral characteristics. All these endeavors have also failed. Finally, people have tried, especially in Germany, to discover the physical characteristics of an alleged Jewish or Semitic race, as distinguished from the characteristics of European non-Jews. These quests, too, have failed completely. It has proven impossible to differentiate the Jewish Germans anthropologically from the non-Jewish ones. In the field of anthropology, there is neither a Jewish race nor Jewish racial characteristics. The racial doctrine of the anti-Semites pretends to be natural science, but the material from which it is derived is not the result of the observation of natural phenomena. It is the genealogy of Genesis and the dogma of the rabbi's teaching that all members of their religious community are descended from the subjects of King David. Men living under certain conditions often acquire in the second, sometimes even in the first generation, a special physical or mental conformation. This is, of course, a rule to which there are many exceptions, but very often poverty or wealth, urban or rural environment, indoor or outdoor life, mountain peaks or lowlands, sedentary habits or hard physical labor stamp their peculiar mark on a man's body. Butchers and watchmakers, tailors and lumbermen, actors and accountants can often be recognized as such by their expressions or physical constitution. Racists intentionally ignore these facts. However, they alone can account for the origin of those types which are in everyday speech called aristocratic or plebeian, an officer's type, a scholarly type, or a Jewish type. The laws promulgated by the Nazis for discrimination against Jews and the offspring of Jews have nothing at all to do with racial considerations proper. 
A law discriminating against people of a certain race would first have to enumerate with biological and physiological exactitude the characteristic features of the race concerned. It would then have to decree the legal procedure and proper formalities by which the presence or absence of these characteristics could be duly established for every individual. The validly executed final decisions of such procedures would then have to form the basis of the discrimination in each case. The Nazis have chosen a different way. They say it is true that they want to discriminate not against people professing the Jewish religion, but against the people belonging to the Jewish race. Yet they define the members of the Jewish race as people professing the Jewish religion, or descended from people professing the Jewish religion. The characteristic legal feature of the Jewish race is, in the so-called racial legislation of Nuremberg, the membership of the individual concerned or of his ancestors in the religious community of Judaism. If a law pretends that it tends toward a discrimination against the short-sighted, but defines short-sightedness as the quality of being bald, people using the generally accepted terminology would not call it a law to the disadvantage of the short-sighted, but of the bald. If Americans want to discriminate against Negroes, they do not go to the archives in order to study the racial affiliation of the people concerned. They search the individual's body for traces of Negro descent. Negroes and whites differ in racial, i.e. bodily, features, but it is impossible to tell a Jewish-German from a non-Jewish one by any racial characteristic. The Nazis continually speak of race and racial purity. They call their policies an outcome of modern anthropology but it is useless to search their policies for racial considerations. They consider, with the exception of Jews and the offspring of Jews, all white men speaking German as Aryans. They do not discriminate among them according to bodily features. German-speaking people are, in their opinion, Germans, even if it is beyond doubt that they are the scions of Slavonic, Romanic, or Mongol, Magyar, or Finno-Ogric ancestors. The Nazis have claimed that they were fighting the decisive war between the Nordic master race and the human underdogs. Yet for the struggle, they were allied with the Italians, whom their racial doctrines depicted as a mongrel race, with the slit-eyed, yellow-skinned, dark-haired Japanese Mongols. On the other hand, they despise the Scandinavian Nordics, who do not sympathize with their own plans for world supremacy. The Nazis call themselves anti-Semites, but they aid the Arab tribes in their fight against the British, whom they themselves consider as Nordic. The Arabs speak a Semitic idiom, and the Nazi scholars call them Semites who, in the Palestinian struggles, has the fairer claim to the appellation anti-Semites. Even the racial myth itself is not a product of Germany. It is of French origin. Its founders, especially Gobineau, wanted to justify the privileges of the French aristocracy by demonstrating the gentle Frankish birth of the nobility. Hence originated in Western Europe the mistaken belief that the Nazis too recognized the claims of princes and noblemen to political leadership and caste privileges. The German nationalists, however, consider the whole German people, with the exception of the Jews and the offspring of Jews, a homogeneous race of noblemen. Within this noble race, they make no discriminations. No higher degree of nobility than Germanhood is conceivable. Under the laws of the Nazis, all German-speaking people are comrades, Volksgenossen, and as such equal. The only discrimination which the Nazis make among Germans is according to the intensity of their zeal in the display of those qualities which are regarded as genuinely German. Every non-Jewish German, prince, nobleman, or commoner has the same right to serve his nation and to distinguish himself in the service. It is true that in the years preceding the First World War, the Nationalists too clung to the prejudice, once very popular in Germany, 
that the Prussian junkers were extraordinarily gifted for military leadership. In this respect, only did the old Prussian legend survive until 1918. The lessons taught by the failure of the Prussian officers in the campaign of 1806 were long since forgotten. Nobody cared about Bismarck's skepticism. Bismarck, himself the son of a non-aristocratic mother, observed that Prussia was breeding officers of lower ranks up to the position of regimental commanders of a quality unsurpassed by any other country. But as far as the higher ranks were concerned, the native Prussian stock was no longer so fertile in producing able leaders as it had been in the days of Frederick II. But the Prussian historians had extolled the deeds of the Prussian army until all critics were silenced. Pan-Germans, Catholics, and Social Democrats were united in their dislike of the arrogant junkers, but fully convinced that these junkers were especially fitted for military leadership and for commissions. People complained about the exclusion of non-aristocratic officers from the Royal Guards and from many regiments of the cavalry, and about the disdainful treatment they received in the rest of the army. But they never ventured to dispute the junkers' paramount military qualifications. Even the Social Democrats had full confidence in the active officers of the Prussian army. The firm conviction that the war would result in a smashing German victory, which all strata of the German nation held in 1914, was primarily founded on this overestimation of the military genius of the Junkers. People did not notice that the German nobility, who had long since ceased to play a leading role in political life, were now on the point of losing the army's reins. They had never excelled in science, art, and literature. Their contributions in these fields cannot be compared with the achievements of British, French, and Italian aristocrats. Yet in no other modern country was the position of the aristocrats more favorable or that of the commoners less auspicious than in Germany. At the peak of his life and success, Goethe wrote full of bitterness, I do not know how conditions are in foreign countries, but in Germany only the nobleman can attain a certain universal and personal perfection. A commoner may acquire merit, he may, at best, cultivate his mind. But his personality goes astray whatever he tries. But it was commoners and not noblemen who created the works which led Germany to be called the nation of poets and thinkers. In the ranks of the authors who formed the nation's political thought, there were no noblemen. Even the Prussian conservatives got their ideologies from plebeians, from Stahl, Rodbertus, Wagner, Adolf Wagner. Among the men who developed German nationalism, there was hardly a member of the aristocracy. Pan-Germanism and Nazism are in this sense bourgeois movements like socialism, Marxism, and interventionism. Within the ranks of the higher bureaucracy, there was a steady penetration of non-aristocratic elements. It was the same with the armed forces. The hard work in the offices of the general staff, in the technical services, and in the navy did not suit the tastes and desires of the junkers. Many important posts in the general staff were occupied by commoners. The outstanding personality in German pre-war militarism was Admiral Tirpitz, who attained nobility only in 1900. Ludendorff, Grenner, and Hoffmann were also commoners. But it was the defeat in the First World War which finally destroyed the military prestige of the Junkers. In the present German army, there are still many aristocrats in higher ranks because the officers who got their commission in the last years preceding the First World War have now reached the top of the ladder but there is no longer any preference given to aristocrats. Among the political leaders of Nazism, there are few nobles, and the titles even of these are often questionable. The German princes and nobles who unswervingly disparaged liberalism and democracy, and until 1933 stubbornly fought for the preservation of their privileges, have completely surrendered to Nazism and connive at its egalitarian principles. They are to be found in the ranks of the most fanatical admirers of the Fuhrer, 
Princes of the Blood take pride in serving as satellites of notorious racketeers who hold party offices. One may wonder whether they act out of sincere conviction or out of cowardice and fear. But there can be no doubt that the belief, common to many members of the British aristocracy, that a restoration of the German dynasties would change the German mentality and the temper of politics is entirely mistaken. Part 2. The Struggle Against the Jewish Mind Nazism wants to combat the Jewish mind, but it has not succeeded so far in defining its characteristic features. The Jewish mind is no less mythical than the Jewish race. The earlier German nationalists tried to oppose to the Jewish mind the Christian Teutonic worldview. The combination of Christian and Teutonic is, however, untenable. No exegetical tricks can justify a German claim to a preferred position within the realm of Christianity. The Gospels do not mention the Germans. They consider all men equal under God. He who is anxious to discriminate not only against Jews but against the Christian descendants of Jews has no use for the Gospels. Consistent anti-Semites must reject Christianity. We do not need to decide here whether or not Christianity itself can be called Jewish. At any rate, Christianity developed out of the Jewish creed. It recognizes the Ten Commandments as eternal law and the Old Testament as holy writ. The apostles and the members of the primitive community were Jews. It could be objected that Christ did not agree in his teachings with the rabbis. But the facts remain that God sent the Savior to the Jews and not to the Vandals, and that the Holy Spirit inspired books in Hebrew and in Greek, but not in German. If the Nazis were prepared to take their racial myths seriously and to see in them more than oratory for their party meetings, they would have to eradicate Christianity with the same brutality they use against liberalism and pacifism. They failed to embark upon such an enterprise not because they regarded it as hopeless, but because their politics had nothing at all to do with racism. It is strange indeed in a country in which the authorities officially outrage Jews and Judaism in filthy terms, and in which mathematical theorems, physical hypotheses, and therapeutical procedures are boycotted, if their authors are suspected of being non-Aryans, that priests continue in many thousands of churches of various creeds to praise the Ten Commandments revealed to the Jew Moses as the foundation of moral law. It is strange that in a country in which no word of a Jewish author must be printed or read, the Psalms and their German translations, adaptations, and imitations are sung. It is strange that the German armies which exult in Eastern Europe in cowardly slaughtering thousands of defenseless Jewish women and children are accompanied by army chaplains with Bibles in their hands. But the Third Reich is full of such contradictions. Of course, the Nazis do not comply with the moral teachings of the Gospels. Neither do any other conquerors and warriors. Christianity is no more allowed to become an obstacle in the way of Nazi politics than it was in the way of other aggressors. Nazism not only fails explicitly to reject Christianity, it solemnly declares itself a Christian party. The 24th point of the unalterable party program proclaims that the party stands for positive Christianity without linking itself with one of the various Christian churches and denominations. The term positive in this connection means neutrality in respect to the antagonisms between the various churches and sects. Many Nazi writers, it is true, take pleasure in denouncing and deriding Christianity and in drafting plans for the establishment of a new German religion. The Nazi party as such, however, does not combat Christianity, but the Christian churches as autonomous establishments and independent agencies. Its totalitarianism cannot tolerate the existence of any institution not completely subject to the Fuhrer's sovereignty. No German is granted the privilege of defying an order issued by the state by referring to an independent authority. The separation of church and state is contrary to the principles of totalitarianism. 
Nazism must consequently aim at a return to the conditions prevailing in the German Lutheran churches, and likewise in the Prussian Union Church before the Constitution of Weimar. Then the civil authority was supreme in the church too. The ruler of the country was the supreme bishop of the Lutheran Church of his territory. He was the Jus Circa Sacra. The conflict with the Catholic Church is of a similar character. The Nazis will not tolerate any link between German citizens and foreigners or foreign institutions. They dissolved even the German Rotary Clubs because they were tied up with the Rotary International, whose headquarters are located in Chicago. A German citizen owes allegiance to his Führer and nation only. Any kind of internationalism is an evil. Hitler could tolerate Catholicism only if the Pope were a resident of Germany and a subordinate of the party machine. Except for Christianity, the Nazis reject as Jewish everything which stems from Jewish authors. This condemnation includes the writing of those Jews who, like Stahl, LaSalle, Gumblowitz, and Rathenau, have contributed many essential ideas to the system of Nazism. But the Jewish mind is, as the Nazis say, not limited to the Jews and their offspring only. Many Aryans have been imbued with Jewish mentality. For instance, the poet, writer, and critic Getold Ephraim Lessing, the socialist Friedrich Engels, the composer Johann Brahms, the writer Thomas Mann, and the theologian Karl Barth. They too are damned. Then there are whole schools of thought, art, and literature rejected as Jewish. Internationalism and pacifism are Jewish, but so is warmongering. So are liberalism and capitalism as well as the spurious socialism of the Marxians and of the Bolsheviks. The epithets Jewish and Western are applied to the philosophies of Descartes and Hume, to positivism, materialism, and imperial criticism, to the economic theories both of the classics and of modern subjectivism. Atonal music, the Italian opera style, the operetta, and the paintings of Impressionism are also Jewish. In short, Jewish is what any Nazi dislikes. If one put together everything that various Nazis have stigmatized as Jewish, one would get the impression that our whole civilization has been the achievement only of Jews. On the other hand, many champions of German racism have tried to demonstrate that all the eminent men of non-German nations were Aryan Nordics of German extraction. The ex-Marxian Voltmann, for example, has discovered features of Germanism in Petrarch, Dante, Ariosto, Raphael, and Michelangelo who have their genius as an inheritance from their Teutonic ancestors. Voldman is fully convinced that he has proved that the entire European civilization, even in the Slavonic and Latin countries, is an achievement of the German race. It would be a waste of time to dwell upon such statements. It is enough to remark that the various representatives of German racism contradict one another, both in establishing the racial characteristics of the noble race and in the racial classification of the same individuals. Very often they contradict even what they themselves have said elsewhere. The myth of the master race has been elaborated carelessly indeed. All Nazi champions insist again and again that Marxism and Bolshevism are the quintessence of the Jewish mind, and that it is the great historic mission of Nazism to root out this pest. It is true that this attitude did not prevent the German nationalists either from cooperating with the German communists in undermining the Weimar Republic, or from training their black guards in Russian artillery and aviation camps in the years 1923 through 1933, or in the period from August 1939 until June 1941, from entering into a close political and military complicity with Soviet Russia. Nevertheless, public opinion supports the view that Nazism and Bolshevism are philosophies, Weltanschauungen, implacably opposed to each other. Actually, there have been in these last years all over the world two main political parties, 
the anti-fascists, i.e. the friends of Russia, communists, fellow travelers, self-styled liberals and progressives, and the anti-communists, i.e. the friends of Germany, parties of shirts of different colors, not very accurately called fascists by their adversaries. There have been few genuine liberals and democrats in these years. Most of those who have called themselves such have been ready to support what are really totalitarian measures, and many have enthusiastically praised the Russian methods of dictatorship. The mere fact that these two groups are fighting each other does not necessarily prove that they differ in their philosophies and first principles. There have always been wars between people who adhere to the same creeds and philosophies. The parties of the left and of the right are in conflict because they both aim at supreme power. Charles V used to say, I and my cousin, the King of France, are in perfect agreement. We are fighting each other because we both aim at the same end, Milan. Hitler and Stalin aim at the same end. They both want to rule in the Baltic states, in Poland, and in the Ukraine. The Marxians are not prepared to admit that the Nazis are socialists too. In their eyes, Nazism is the worst of all evils of capitalism. On the other hand, the Nazis described the Russian system as the meanest of all types of capitalist exploitation and as a devilish machination of world Jewry for the domination of the Gentiles. Yet it is clear that both systems, the German and the Russian, must be considered from an economic point of view as socialist. And it is only the economic point of view that matters in debating whether or not a party or system is socialist. Socialism is and has always been considered a system of economic organization of society. It is the system under which the government has full control of production and distribution. As far as socialism existing merely within individual countries can be called genuine, both Russia and Germany are right in calling their system socialist. Whether the Nazis and the Bolsheviks are right in styling themselves workers' parties is another question. The Communist Manifesto says, The proletarian movement is the self-conscious independent movement of the immense majority. And it is in this sense that old Marxians used to define a workers' party. The proletarians, they explained, are the immense majority of the nation. They themselves, not a benevolent government or a well-intentioned minority, seize power and establish socialism. But the Bolsheviks have abandoned the scheme. A small minority proclaims itself the vanguard of the proletariat, seizes the dictatorship, forcibly dissolves the parliament elected by universal franchise, and rules by its own right and might. Of course, this ruling minority claims that what it does serves best the interests of the many, and indeed of the whole of society. But this has always been the pretension of oligarchic rulers. The Bolshevists set the precedent. The success of the Lenin clique encouraged the Mussolini gang and the Hitler troops. Both Italian fascism and German Nazism adopted the political methods of Soviet Russia. The only difference between Nazism and Bolshevism is that the Nazis got a much bigger minority in the elections preceding their coup d'etat than the Bolsheviks got in the Russian election in the fall of 1917. The Nazis have not only imitated the Bolshevist tactics of seizing power, they have copied much more. They have imported from Russia the one-party system and the privileged role of this party and its members in public life, the paramount position of the secret police the organization of affiliated parties abroad, which are employed in fighting their domestic governments and in sabotage and espionage, assisted by public funds and the protection of the diplomatic and consular service, the administrative execution and imprisonment of political adversaries, concentration camps, the punishment inflicted on the families of exiles, the methods of propaganda. They have borrowed from the Marxians even such absurdities as the mode of address, party comrade, parte genose, 
derived from the Marxian comrade, Genose, and the use of a military terminology for all items of civil and economic life. The question is not in which respects both systems are alike, but in which they differ. It has already been shown wherein the socialist patterns of Russia and Germany differ. These differences are not due to any disparity in the basic philosophical views. They are the necessary consequence of the differences in the economic conditions of the two countries. The Russian pattern was inapplicable in Germany, whose population cannot live in a state of self-sufficiency. The German pattern seems very inefficient when compared with the incomparably more efficient capitalist system, but it is far more efficient than the Russian method. The Russians live at a very low economic level notwithstanding the inexhaustible richness of their natural resources. There is inequality of incomes and of standards of living in both countries. It would be futile to try to determine whether the difference in the living standards of party comrade Goering and the average party comrade is greater or smaller than that in the standards of comrade Stalin and his comrades. The characteristic feature of socialism is not equality of income, but the all-round control of business activities by the government, the government's exclusive power to use all means of production. The Nazis do not reject Marxism because it aims at socialism, but because, as they say, it advocates internationalism. Marx's internationalism was nothing but the acceptance of 18th-century ideas on the root causes of war. Princes are eager to fight each other because they want aggrandizement through conquest, while free nations do not covet their neighbor's land. But it never occurred to Marx that this propensity to peace depends upon the existence of an unhampered market society. Neither Marx nor his school was ever able to grasp the meaning of international conflicts within a world of ataism and socialism. They contented themselves with the assertion that in the promised land of socialism there would no longer be any conflicts at all. We have already seen what a questionable role the problem of the maintenance of peace played in the Second International. For Soviet Russia, the Third International has been merely a tool in its unflagging warfare against all foreign governments. The Soviets are as eager for conquest as any conqueror of the past. They did not yield an inch of the previous conquests of the Tsars, except where they were forced to do so. They have used every opportunity to expand their empire. Of course, they no longer use the old Tsarist pretext for conquest. They have developed a new terminology for this purpose. But this does not render the lot of the subdued any easier. What the Nazis really have in mind when indicting the Jewish mind for internationalism is the liberal theory of free trade and the mutual advantages of international division of labor. The Jews, they say, want to corrupt the innate Aryan spirit of heroism by the fallacious doctrines of the advantages of peace. One could hardly overrate in a more inaccurate way the contribution of Jews to modern civilization. Peaceful cooperation between nations is certainly more than an outcome of Jewish machinations. Liberalism and democracy, capitalism and international trade are not Jewish inventions. Finally, the Nazis call the business mentality Jewish. Tacitus informs us that the German tribes of his day considered it clumsy and shameful to acquire with sweat what could be won by bloodshed. This is also the first moral principle of the Nazis. They despise individuals and nations eager to profit by serving other people. In their eyes, robbery is the noblest way to make a living. Werner Sombard has contrasted two specimens of human being. The peddlers, handlers, and heroes, Helden. The Britons are peddlers, the Germans heroes. But more often, the appellation peddlers is assigned to the Jews. The Nazis simply call everything that is contrary to their own doctrines and tenets Jewish and communist. When executing hostages in the occupied countries, they always declare that they have punished Jews and communists. 
They call the President of the United States a Jew and a Communist. He who is not prepared to surrender to them is by that token unmistakably a Jew. In the Nazi dictionary, the term Jew and Communist are synonymous with non-Nazi. Part 3. Interventionism and Legal Discrimination Against Jews In the days before the ascendancy of liberalism, the individuals professing a certain religious creed formed an order, a caste of their own. The creed determined the membership in a group which assigned to each member privileges and disqualifications, privilegia odiosa. In only a few countries has liberalism abolished this state of affairs. In many European countries in which, in any other respect, freedom of conscience and of the practice of religion and equality of all citizens under the law are granted, matrimonial law and the register of births, marriages, and deaths remain separate for each religious group. Membership within a church or religious community preserves a peculiar legal character. Every citizen is bound to belong to one of the religious groups, and he bestows this quality upon his children. The membership and procedure to be observed in cases of change of religious allegiance are regulated by public law. Special provisions are made for people who do not want to belong to any religious community. This state of things makes it possible to establish the religious allegiance of a man and of his ancestors with legal precision in the same unquestionable way in which kinship can be ascertained in inheritance cases. The bearing of this fact can be elucidated by contrasting it with the conditions concerning attachment to a linguistic group. Membership within a linguistic group never had a caste quality. It was and is a matter of fact, but not a legal status. It is as a rule impossible to establish the linguistic group to which a man's dead ancestors belonged. The only exceptions are those ancestors who were eminent personalities, writers, or political leaders of linguistic groups. It is further, for the most part, impossible to establish whether or not a man changed his linguistic allegiance at some time in his past. He who speaks German and declares himself to be a German needs seldom fear that his statement could be disproved by documentary evidence that his parents or he himself in the past were not German. Even a foreign accent need not betray him. In countries with a linguistically mixed population, the accent and inflection of each group influence the other. Among the leaders of German nationalism in the eastern parts of Germany and in Austria, Czechoslovakia, and the other eastern countries, there were numerous men who spoke German with a sharp Slavonic, Hungarian, or Italian accent, whose names sounded foreign or who had only a short time before substituted German-sounding names for their native ones. There were even Nazi stormtroopers whose still-living parents understood New German. It happened often that brothers and sisters belonged to different linguistic groups. One could not attempt to discriminate legally against such neophytes because it was impossible to determine the facts in a legally unquestionable way. In an unhampered market society, there is no legal discrimination against anybody. Everyone has the right to obtain the place within the social system in which he can successfully work and make a living. The consumer is free to discriminate, provided that he is ready to pay the cost. A Czech or a Pole may prefer to buy at higher cost than a shop owned by a Slav instead of buying cheaper and better in a shop owned by a German. An anti-Semite may forego being cured of an ugly disease by the employment of the Jewish drug Salverson and have recourse to a less efficacious remedy. In this arbitrary power consists what economists call consumer's sovereignty. Interventionism means compulsory discrimination which furthers the interests of a minority of citizens at the expense of the majority. Nevertheless, discrimination can be applied in a democratic community too. Various minority groups form an allegiance and thereby a majority group in order to obtain privileges for each. For instance, a country's wheat producers, cattle breeders, and wine growers form a farmer's party. 
They succeed in obtaining discrimination against foreign competitors and thus privileges for each of the three groups. The cost of the privilege granted to the wine growers burden the rest of the community, including the cattle breeders and wheat producers, and so on for each of the others. Whoever sees the facts from this angle, and logically they cannot be viewed from any other, realizes that the arguments brought forward in favor of this so-called producer's policy are untenable. One minority group alone could not obtain any such privilege because the majority would not tolerate it. But if all minority groups or enough of them obtain a privilege, every group that did not get a more valuable privilege than the rest suffers. The political ascendancy of interventionism is due to the failure to recognize this obvious truth. People favor discrimination and privileges because they do not realize that they themselves are consumers and as such must foot the bill. In the case of protectionism, for example, they believe that only the foreigners against whom the import duties discriminate are hurt. It is true that foreigners are hurt, but not they alone. The consumers who must pay higher prices suffer with them. Now, wherever there are Jewish minorities, and in every country, the Jews are only a minority. It is as easy to discriminate against them legally as against foreigners, because the quality of being a Jew can be established in a legally valid way. Discrimination against this helpless minority can be made to seem very plausible. It seems to further the interests of all non-Jews. People do not realize that it is certain to hurt the interests of the non-Jews as well. If Jews are barred from access to a medical career, the interests of non-Jewish doctors are favored, but the interests of the sick are hurt. Their freedom to choose the doctor whom they trust is restricted. Those who did not want to consult a Jewish doctor do not gain anything, but those who wanted to do so are injured. In most European countries, it is technically feasible to discriminate legally against Jews and the offspring of Jews. It is furthermore politically feasible because Jews are usually insignificant minorities whose votes do not count much in elections. And finally, it is considered economically sound in an age in which government interference for the protection of the less efficient producer against more efficient and cheaper competitors is regarded as a beneficial policy. The non-Jewish grocer asks, why not protect me too? You protect the manufacturer and the farmer against the foreigners producing better and at lower cost. You protect the worker against the competition of immigrant labor. You should protect me against the competition of my neighbor, the Jewish grocer. Discrimination need have nothing to do with hatred or repugnance towards those against whom it is applied. The Swiss and Italians do not hate the Americans or Swedes. Nevertheless, they discriminate against American and Swedish products. People always dislike competitors. But for the consumer, the foreigners who supply him with commodities are not competitors but purveyors. The non-Jewish doctor may hate his Jewish competitor, but he asks for the exclusion of Jews from the medical profession precisely because many non-Jewish patients not only do not hate Jewish doctors, but prefer them to many non-Jewish doctors and patronize them. The fact that the Nazi racial laws impose heavy penalties for sexual intercourse between Jews and Aryans does not indicate the existence of hatred between these two groups. It would be needless to keep people who hate each other from sexual relations. However, in an investigation devoted to the political problems of nationalism and Nazism, we need not deal with the issues of sex pathology involved. To study the inferiority complexes and sexual perversity responsible for the Nuremberg racial laws, and for the sadistic bestialities exhibited in killing and torturing Jews, is the task of psychiatry. In a world in which people have grasped the meaning of a market society and therefore advocate a consumer's policy, there is no legal discrimination against Jews. 
Whoever dislikes the Jews may in such a world avoid patronizing Jewish shopkeepers, doctors, and lawyers. On the other hand, in a world of interventionism, only a miracle can in the long run hinder legal discrimination against Jews. The policy of protecting the less efficient domestic producer against the more efficient foreign producer, the artisan against the manufacturer, and the small shop against the department store and the chain stores would be incomplete if it did not protect the Aryan against the Jew. Many decades of intensive anti-Semitic propaganda did not succeed in preventing German Aryans from buying in shops owned by Jews, from consulting Jewish doctors and lawyers, and from reading books by Jewish authors. They did not patronize the Jews unawares. Aryan competitors were careful to tell them again and again that these people were Jews. Whoever wanted to get rid of his Jewish competitors could not rely on an alleged hatred of Jews. He was under the necessity of asking for legal discrimination against them. Such discrimination is not the result of nationalism or of racism. It is basically, like nationalism, a result of interventionism and the policy of favoring the less efficient producer to the disadvantage of the consumer. Nearly all writers dealing with the problem of anti-Semitism have tried to demonstrate that the Jews have in some way or other, through their behavior or attitudes, excited anti-Semitism. Even Jewish authors and non-Jewish opponents of anti-Semitism share this opinion. They too search for Jewish faults driving non-Jews toward anti-Semitism. But if the cause of anti-Semitism were really to be found in distinctive features of the Jews, these properties would have to be extraordinary virtues and merits which would qualify the Jews as the elite of mankind. If the Jews themselves are to blame for the fact that those whose ideal is perpetual war and bloodshed, who worship violence and are eager to destroy freedom, consider them the most dangerous opponents of their endeavors, it must be because the Jews are foremost among the champions of freedom, justice, and peaceful cooperation among nations. If the Jews have incurred the Nazis' hatred through their own conduct, it is no doubt because what was great and noble in the German nation, all the immortal achievements of Germany's past, were either accomplished by the Jews or congenial to the Jewish mind. As the parties seeking to destroy modern civilization and return to barbarism have put anti-Semitism at the top of their programs, this civilization is apparently a creation of the Jews. Nothing more flattering could be said of an individual or of a group than that the deadly foes of civilization have well-founded reasons to persecute them. The truth is that while the Jews are the objects of anti-Semitism, their conduct and qualities did not play a decisive role in inciting and spreading its modern version. That they form everywhere a minority which can be legally defined in a precise way makes it tempting, in an age of interventionism, to discriminate against them. Jews have, of course, contributed to the rise of modern civilization. But this civilization is neither completely nor predominantly their achievement. Peace and freedom, democracy and justice, reason and thought are not specifically Jewish. Many things, good and bad, happen on the earth without the participation of the Jews. The anti-Semites grossly exaggerate when they see in the Jews the foremost representatives of modern culture and make them alone responsible for the fact that the world has changed since the centuries of the barbarian invasions. In the Dark Ages, heathens, Christians, and Muslims persecuted the Jews on account of their religion. This motive has lost much of its strength and is still valid only for a comparatively few Catholics and fundamentalists who make the Jews responsible for the spread of free thinking. And this, too, is a mistaken idea. Neither Hume nor Kant, neither Laplace or Darwin, were Jews. Higher criticism of the Bible was developed by Protestant theologians. The Jewish rabbis opposed it bitterly for many years. Neither were liberalism, capitalism, or a market economy Jewish achievements. 
There are those who try to justify anti-Semitism by denouncing the Jews as capitalists and champions of laissez-faire. Other anti-Semites, and often the same ones, blame the Jews for being communists. These contradictory charges cancel each other, but it is a fact that anti-capitalist propaganda has contributed a good deal to the popularity of anti-Semitism. Simple minds do not grasp the meaning of the abstract term capital and exploitation, capitalists and exploiters. They substitute for them the terms Jewry and Jews. However, even if the Jews were more unpopular with some people than is really the case, there would be no discrimination against them if they were not a minority clearly distinguishable legally from other people. Part 4. The Stab in the Back the end of the First World War glaringly exposed the nucleus of German nationalism's dogma. Ludendorff, idol of the nationalists, himself had to confess that the war was lost, that the Reich had suffered a crushing defeat. The news of this failure was not anticipated by the nation. For more than four years, the government had told the credulous people that Germany was victorious. It was beyond doubt that the German armies had occupied almost the whole territory of Belgium and several departments of France while the Allied armies held only a few square miles of the Reich's territory. German armies had conquered Brussels, Warsaw, Belgrade, and Bucharest. Russia and Romania had been forced to sign peace treaties dictated by Germany. Look at the map, said the German statesman, if you want to see who is victorious. The British Navy, they boasted, had been swept from the North Sea and was creeping into port. The British Merchant Marine was an easy prey for German U-boats. The English were starving. The citizens of London could not sleep for fear of zeppelins. America was not in a position to save the Allies. The Americans had no army, and if they had, they would have lacked the ships to send it to Europe. The German generals had given proof of ingenuity. Hindenburg, Ludendorff, and Mackensen were equal to the most famous leaders of the past, and in the German armed forces everybody was the hero, above all the intrepid pilots and the unflinching crews of the submarines. And now, the collapse. Something horrible and ghastly had happened, for which the only explanation could be treason. Once again, a traitor had ambushed the victor from a safely hidden corner. Once again, Hagen had murdered Siegfried. The victorious army had been stabbed in the back. While the German men were fighting the enemy, domestic foes had stirred up the people at home to rise in the November Rebellion, that most infamous crime of the ages. Not the front, but the hinterland had failed. The culprits were neither the soldiers nor the generals, but the weaklings of the civil government and of the Reichstag, who failed to curb the rebellion. Shame and contrition for the events of November 1918 were the greater with aristocrats, officers, and nationalist notables, because they had behaved in those days in a way that they themselves very soon were bound to regard as scandalous. Several officers on battleships had tried to stop the mutineers, but almost all other officers had bowed to the revolution. Twenty-two German thrones were smashed without any attempt at resistance. Court dignitaries, adjutants, or orderly officers, and bodyguards quietly acquiesced when the princes to whom they had sworn oaths of personal allegiance unto death were dethroned. The example once set by the Swiss guards who died for Louis XVI and his consort was not imitated. There was not a trace of the fatherland party and of the nationalists when the masses assaulted the castles of the various kings and dukes. It was salvation for the self-esteem of all these disheartened souls when some generals and nationalist leaders found a justification and an excuse. It had been the work of the Jews. Germany was victorious by land and sea and air, but the Jews had stabbed the victorious forces in the back. Whoever ventured to refute this legend was himself denounced as a Jew or a bribed servant of the Jews. 
No rational argument could shake the legend. It has been picked to pieces. Each of its points has been disproved by documentary evidence. An overwhelming mass of material has been brought to its refutation in vain. It must be realized that German nationalism managed to survive the defeat of the First World War only by means of the legend of the stab in the back. Without it, the nationalists would have been forced to drop their program, which was founded wholly on the thesis of Germany's military superiority. In order to maintain this program, it was indispensable to be able to tell the nation, we have given new proof of our invincibility. But our victories did not bring us success because the Jews have sabotaged the country. If we eliminate the Jews, our victories will bring their due reward. Up to that time, anti-Semitism had played but a small role in the structure of the doctrines of German nationalism. It was mere byplay, not a political issue. The endeavors to discriminate against the Jews stemmed from interventionism as did nationalism, but they had no vital part in the system of German political nationalism. Now, anti-Semitism became the focal point of the nationalist creed, its main issue. That was its meaning in domestic politics, and very soon it acquired an equal importance in foreign affairs. Part 5. Anti-Semitism as a Factor in International Politics It was a very strange constellation of political forces that turned anti-Semitism into an important factor in world affairs. In the years after the First World War, Marxism swept triumphantly over the Anglo-Saxon countries. Public opinion in Great Britain came under the spell of the neo-Marxian doctrines on imperialism according to which wars are fought only for the sake of the selfish class interests of capital. The intellectuals and the parties of the left felt rather ashamed of England's participation in the World War. They were convinced that it was both morally unfair and politically unwise to oblige Germany to pay reparations and to restrict its armaments. They were firmly resolved never again to let Great Britain fight a war. They purposely shut their eyes to every unpleasant fact that could weaken their naive confidence in the omnipotence of the League of Nations. They overrated the efficacy of sanctions and of such measures as outlawing war by the Bryant-Kellogg Pact. They favored for their country a policy of disarmament which rendered the British Empire almost defenseless within a world indefatigably preparing for new wars. But at the same time, the same people were asking the British government and the League to check the aspirations of the dynamic powers and to safeguard with every means short of war, the independence of the weaker nations. They indulged in strong language against Japan and against Italy, but they practically encouraged by their opposition to armaments and their unconditional pacifism the imperialistic policies of these countries. They were instrumental in Great Britain's rejecting Secretary Stimson's proposals to stop Japan's expansion in China. They frustrated the Hora-Laval plan, which would have left at least a part of Abyssinia independent. But they did not lift a finger when Italy occupied the whole country. They did not change their policy when Hitler seized power and immediately began to prepare for the wars which were meant to make Germany paramount, first on the European continent and later in the whole world. Theirs was an ostrich policy in the face of the most serious situation that Britain ever had to encounter. The parties of the right did not differ in principle from those of the left. They were only more moderate in their utterances and eager to find a rational pretext for the policy of inactivity and indolence in which the left acquiesced lightheartedly and without a thought of the future. They consoled themselves with the hope that Germany did not plan to attack France but only to fight Soviet Russia. It was all wishful thinking, refusing to take account of Hitler's schemes as exposed in Mein Kampf. The left became furious. 
Our reactionaries, they shouted, are aiding Hitler because they are putting their class interests over the welfare of the nation. Yet the encouragement which Hitler got from England came not so much from the anti-Soviet feelings of some members of the upper classes as from the state of British armament, for which the left was even more responsible than the right. The only way to stop Hitler would have been to spend large sums for rearmament and to return to conscription. The whole British nation, not only the aristocracy, was strongly opposed to such measures. Under these conditions, it was not unreasonable that a small group of lords and rich commoners should try to improve relations between the two countries. It was, of course, a plan without prospect of success. The Nazis could not be dissuaded for their aims by comforting speeches from socially prominent Englishmen. British popular repugnance to armaments and conscription was an important factor in the Nazi plans, but the sympathies of a dozen lords were not. It was no secret that Great Britain would be unable, right at the outbreak of a new war, to send an expeditionary force of seven divisions to France as it did in 1914, that the Royal Air Force was numerically much inferior to the German Air Force, or that even the British Navy was less formidable than in the years 1914 through 18. The Nazis knew very well that many politicians in South Africa opposed that dominion's participating in a new war, and they were in close touch with the anti-British parties in the East Indies, in Egypt, and the Arabian countries. The problem which Great Britain had to face was simply this. Is it in the interest of the nation to permit Germany to conquer the whole European continent? It was Hitler's great plan to keep England neutral at all costs until the conquest of France, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and the Ukraine should be completed. Should Great Britain render him this service? Whoever answered this question in the negative must not talk but act. But the British politicians buried their heads in the sand. Given the state of British public opinion, France should have understood that it was isolated and must meet the Nazi danger by itself. The French know little about the German mentality and German political conditions. Yet, when Hitler seized power, every French politician should have realized that the main point in his plans was the annihilation of France. Of course, the French parties of the left shared the prejudices, illusions, and errors of the British left. But there was in France an influential nationalist group which had always mistrusted Germany and favored an energetic anti-German policy. If the French nationalists in 1933 and the years following had seriously advocated measures to prevent German rearmament, they would have had the support of the whole nation with the exception of the intransigent communists. Germany had already started to rearm under the Weimar Republic. Nevertheless, in 1933, it was not ready for a war with France, nor for some years thereafter. It would have been forced either to yield to a French threat or to wage a war without prospect of success. At that time, it was still possible to stop the Nazis with threats. And even had war resulted, France would have been strong enough to win. But then something amazing and unexpected happened. Those nationalists who for more than 60 years had been fanatically anti-German, who had scorned everything German, and who had always demanded an energetic policy against the Weimar Republic, changed their minds overnight. Those who had disparaged as Jewish all endeavors to improve Franco-German relations, who had attacked as Jewish machinations the Dawes and Young plans and the Locarno Agreement, and who had held the League suspect as a Jewish institution, suddenly began to sympathize with the Nazis. They refused to recognize the fact that Hitler was eager to destroy France once and for all. Hitler, they hinted, is less a foe of France than of the Jews. As an old warrior, he sympathizes with his French fellow warriors. They belittle German rearmament. Besides, they said, Hitler rearms only in order to fight Jewish Bolshevism. 
Nazism is Europe's shield against the assault of world Jewry and its foremost representative Bolshevism. The Jews are eager to push France into a war against the Nazis. But France is wise enough not to pull any chestnuts out of the fire for the Jews. France will not bleed for the Jews. It was not the first time in French history that the nationalists put their anti-Semitism above their French patriotism. In the Dreyfus Affair, they fought vigorously in order to let a treacherous officer quietly evade punishment while an innocent Jew languished in prison. It has been said that the Nazis corrupted the French nationalists. Perhaps some French politicians really took bribes. But politically, this was of little importance. The Reich would have wasted its funds. The anti-Semitic newspapers and periodicals had a wide circulation. They did not need German subsidies. Hitler left the League. He annulled the disarmament clauses of the Treaty of Versailles. He occupied the demilitarized zone on the Rhine. He stirred anti-French tendencies in North Africa. The French nationalists, for the most part, criticized these acts only in order to put all the blame on their political adversaries in France. It was they who were guilty because they had adopted a hostile attitude toward Nazism. Then, Hitler invaded Austria. Seven years earlier, France had vigorously opposed the plan of an Austro-German customs union. But now the French government hurried to recognize the violent annexation of Austria. At Munich, in cooperation with Great Britain and Italy, it forced Czechoslovakia to yield to the German claims. All this met with the approval of the majority of the French nationalists. When Mussolini, instigated by Hitler, proclaimed the Italian aspirations for Savoy, Nice, Corsica, and Tunis, the nationalists' objections were ventured timidly. No Demosthenes rose to warn the nation against Philip. But if a new Demosthenes had presented himself, the nationalists would have denounced him as the son of a rabbi or a nephew of Rothschild. It is true that the French left did not oppose the Nazis either, and in this respect they did not differ from their British friends. But that is no excuse for the nationalists. They were influential enough to induce an energetic anti-Nazi policy in France. But for them, every proposal seriously to resist Hitler was a form of Jewish treachery. It does credit to the French nation that it loved peace and was ready to avoid war even at the price of sacrifice. But that was not the question. Germany openly prepared a war for the total annihilation of France. There was no doubt about the intentions of the Nazis. Under such conditions, the only policy appropriate would have been to frustrate Hitler's plans at all costs. Whoever dragged in the Jews in discussing Franco-German relations forsook the cause of his nation. Whether Hitler was a friend or foe of the Jews was irrelevant. The existence of France was at stake. This alone had to be considered, not the desire of French shopkeepers or doctors to get rid of their Jewish competitors. That France did not block Hitler's endeavors in time, that it long neglected its military preparations, and that finally, when war could no longer be avoided, it was not ready to fight, was the fault of anti-Semitism. The French anti-Semites served Hitler well. Without them, the new war might have been avoided or at least fought under much more favorable conditions. When war came, it was stigmatized by the French right as a war for the sake of the Jews and by the French communists as a war for the sake of capitalism. The unpopularity of the war paralyzed the hands of the military chiefs. It slowed down work in the armament factories. From a military point of view, matters in June 1940 were not worse than in early September 1914, and less unfavorable than in September 1870. Gambetta, Clemenceau, or Briand would not have capitulated. Neither would George Mandel. But Mandel was a Jew and therefore not eligible for political leadership. Thus, the unbelievable happened. 
France disavowed its past, branded the proudest memories of its history Jewish, and hailed the loss of its political independence as a national revolution and a regeneration of its true spirit. Not alone in France, but the world over, anti-Semitism made propaganda for Nazism. Such was the detrimental effect of interventionism and its tendencies toward discrimination that a good many people became unable to appreciate problems of foreign policy from any viewpoint but that of their appetite for discrimination against successful competitors. The hope of being delivered from a Jewish competitor fascinated them while they forgot everything else, their nation's independence, freedom, religion, civilization. There were and are pro-Nazi parties all over the world. Every European country has its Quislings. Quislings commanded armies whose duty it was to defend their country. They capitulated ignominiously. They cooperated with invaders. They had the impudence to style their treachery true patriotism. The Nazis have an ally in every town or village where there is a man eager to get rid of a Jewish competitor. The secret weapon of Hitler is the anti-Jewish inclinations of many millions of shopkeepers and grocers, of doctors and lawyers, professors and writers. The present war would never have originated but for anti-Semitism. Only anti-Semitism made it possible for the Nazis to restore the German people's faith in the invincibility of its armed forces, and thus to drive Germany again into the policy of aggression and the struggle for hegemony. Only the anti-Semitic entanglement of a good deal of French public opinion prevented France from stopping Hitler when he could still be stopped without war. And it was anti-Semitism that helped the German armies find in every European country men ready to open the doors to them. Mankind has paid a high price indeed for anti-Semitism.